This is Audible. The Institute for Advanced Consciousness and Spiritual Research presents Power versus Force An Anatomy of Consciousness The Hidden Determinants of Human Behavior Read by the author, Dr. David R. Hawkins The skillful are not obvious. In fact, they appear to be simple-minded. Those who know this know the patterns of the Absolute. To know the patterns is the subtle power. The subtle power moves all things and has no name. Forward Written by E. Whalen Editor, Bard Press Arizona, 1995 Imagine what if you had access to a simple yes or no answer to any question you wished to ask? A demonstrably true answer. Any question. Think about it. There's the obvious. Jane is seeing another guy. Yes. No. Johnny is telling the truth about school. Yes. No. But it's only a short step to, this is a safe investment. Yes. No. Or this career is worthy of my pursuit? Yes? No. What if everyone had such access? Staggering implications suggest themselves immediately. Think again. What would happen to our ponderous and all-too-often flawed judicial system if there were a clear, confirmable answer to the proposition, John Doe is guilty as charged? Yes? No? What would happen to politics as we know it if all of us could ask the question, Candidate X honestly intends to fulfill this campaign promise? Yes? No? And all of us got the same answer? And what would happen to advertising, period? You get the idea. But the idea gets bigger fast. What happens to nationalism? Nation X is, in fact, dedicated to the overthrow of democracy to government. This bill does, in fact, protect the rights of citizens. What happens to, the check is in the mail? If, as has been said, man learned to lie an hour after he learned to talk, then a phenomenon such as we are discussing would be the genesis of the most fundamental change in human knowledge since the beginning of society. The transformations it would wreak in fields from communications to ethics in our most basic concepts, in every detail of daily existence, would be so profound that it is difficult even to conceive what life would be like in a subsequent new era of truth. The world as we know it would be irrevocably changed to its very roots. The study of kinesiology, which is the study of muscles and their movements, especially as applied to physical conditioning, first received scientific attention in the second half of this century through the work of Dr. George Goodhart, who pioneered the specialty he called applied kinesiology after finding that benign physical stimuli, for instance, beneficial nutritional supplements, would increase the strength of certain indicator muscles, whereas inimical stimuli would cause those muscles to suddenly weaken. The implication was that, at a level far below conceptual consciousness, the body knew, and through muscle testing was able to signal what was good and bad for it. 
The classic example cited later in this work is a universally observed weakening of indicator muscles in the presence of a chemical sweetener. The same muscles strengthen in the presence of a healthful natural supplement. In the late 70s, Dr. John Diamond refined this specialty into a new discipline he called behavioral kinesiology. Dr. Diamond's startling discovery was that indicator muscles would strengthen or weaken in the presence of positive or negative emotional and intellectual stimuli, as well as physical stimuli. A smile will make you test strong. The statement, I hate you, will make you test weak. Before we go any farther, let us explain in detail exactly how one tests, especially as the listener will certainly wish to try this himself. Here is Dr. Diamond's outline from his 1979 book, Your Body Doesn't Lie, of the procedure adapted by him from the classic description in H. O. Kendall's Muscles, Testing and Function. It takes two people to perform a kinesiological test. Choose a friend or family member for testing. We'll call him or her your subject. 1. Have the subject stand erect, right arm relaxed at his side, left arm held out parallel to the floor, elbow straight. You may use the other arm if you wish. 2. Face your subject and place your left hand on his right shoulder to steady him. Then place your right hand on the subject's extended left arm just above the wrist. 3. Tell the subject you are going to push his arm down as he resists with all his strength. 4. Now push down on his arm fairly quickly, firmly, and evenly. The idea is to push just hard enough to test the spring and bounce in the arm, not so hard that the muscle becomes fatigued. It is not a question of who is stronger, but of whether the muscle can lock the shoulder joint against the push. Assuming there is no physical problem with the muscle and the subject is in a normal, relaxed state of mind, receiving no extraneous stimuli, for this reason it is important that the tester not smile or otherwise interact with the subject, the muscle will test strong. The arm will remain locked. If the test is repeated in the presence of a negative stimulus, for instance, artificial sweetener, Although you are pushing down no harder than before, the muscle will not be able to resist the pressure and the subject's arm will fall to his side. A striking aspect of Diamond's research was the uniformity of response among his subjects. Diamond's results were predictable, repeatable, universal. This was so even where no rational link existed between stimulus and response. For totally undetermined reasons, certain abstract symbols caused all subjects to test weak, others the opposite. Some results were perplexing. Certain pictures, with no overtly positive or negative content, would cause all subjects to test weak, while other neutral pictures caused all subjects to test strong. And some results were food for considerable surmise. Whereas virtually all classical music and most pop music, including classic rock and roll, caused a universally strong response, the hard or metal rock that first gained popularity in the late 70s produced a universally weak response. There was one other phenomenon that Diamond noted in passing, though devoting no deeper analysis to its extraordinary implications. 
Subjects listening to tapes of known deceits. Lyndon Johnson perpetrating the Tonkin Gulf hoax. Edward Kennedy stonewalling the Chappaquiddick incident. Universally tested weak. While listening to recordings of demonstrably true statements, they universally tested strong. This was the starting point of the work of the author of this volume, the well-known psychiatrist and physician David R. Hawkins. In 1975, Dr. Hawkins began research on the kinesiological response to truth and falsehood. It had been established the test subjects did not need any conscious acquaintance with the substance or issue being tested. In double-blind studies and in mass demonstrations involving entire lecture audiences, subjects universally tested weak in response to unmarked envelopes containing artificial sweetener and strong to identical placebo envelopes. The same naive response appeared in testing intellectual values. What seems to be at work is a form of communal consciousness, spiritus mundi, or as Hawkins calls it, following Young, a database of consciousness. The phenomenon seen so commonly in other social animals, whereby a fish swimming at one edge of a school will turn instantaneously when its fellows a quarter mile away flee a predator, pertains in some subconscious way to our species also. There are simply too many documented instances of individuals having intimate acquaintance with information experienced firsthand by remote strangers for us to deny that there are forms of shared knowledge other than those achieved by rational consciousness, or perhaps more simply, the same spark of inner subrational wisdom that can discriminate healthy from unhealthy can discriminate true from false. One highly suggestive element of this phenomenon is the binary nature of the response. Hawkins found that questions must be phrased so that the answer is very clearly yes or no, like a nerve synapse that is on or off, like the most basic cellular forms of knowledge. Like so much of what our cutting-edge physicists tell us is the essential nature of universal energy, is the human brain at some primal level a wondrous computer linked with a universal energy field that knows far more than it knows it knows? Be that as it may, as Dr. Hawkins' research continued. His most fertile discovery was a means of calibrating a scale of relative truth, by which intellectual positions, statements, or ideologies could be rated on a range of one to one thousand. One can ask: This item, book, philosophy, teacher, calibrates at two hundred. Yes, no. At two fifty. Yes, no, and so on. Until the point of common weak response determines the calibration, the enormous implication of these calibrations was that for the first time in human history, ideological validity could be appraised as an innate quality in any subject. Through twenty years of similar calibrations, Hawkins was able to analyze the full spectrum of the levels of human consciousness, developing a fascinating map of the geography of man's experience. 
This anatomy of consciousness produces a profile of the entire human condition, allowing a comprehensive analysis of the emotional and spiritual development of individuals, societies, and the race in general. So profound and far-reaching a view provides not only a new understanding of man's journey in the universe, but also a guide to all of us as to where we and our neighbors are on the ladder of spiritual enlightenment and on our own personal journeys to become who we could be. In this volume, Dr. Hawkins brings these fruits of decades of research and insight into the penetrating illumination of revolutionary discoveries in advanced particle physics and nonlinear dynamics. For the first time in our Western intellectual record, he shows the cold light of science is confirming what mystics and saints have always said about the self, God, and the very nature of reality. This vision of being, essence, and divinity presents a picture of man's relation to the universe that is unique in its capacity to satisfy both soul and reason. There is a rich intellectual and spiritual harvest here, much that you can take and much more that you can give yourself. Continue listening. The future starts now. Preface. To explain that which is simple can be difficult indeed. Much of this book is devoted to the process of making the simple obvious. If we can understand even one simple thing in depth, we will have greatly expanded our capacity for comprehending the nature of the universe and of life itself. Kinesiology is now a well-established science based on testing of an all-or-none muscle response to stimuli. A positive stimulus provokes a strong muscle response. A negative stimulus results in a demonstrable weakening of the test muscle. Clinical kinesiologic muscle testing has found widespread verification over the last 25 years. Goodhart's original research on the subject was given wider application by Dr. John Diamond, whose books brought the subject to the public. Diamond determined that this positive or negative response occurs with stimuli, both physical and mental. The research reflected in this volume has taken Dr. Diamond's technique several steps further through the discovery that this kinesiologic response reflects a capacity of the human organism to differentiate not only positive from negative stimuli, but also anabolic, meaning life-enhancing, from catabolic, meaning life-consuming, and most dramatically, true from false. The test itself is simple, rapid, and relatively foolproof. A positive muscle reaction occurs in response to a statement which is objectively true. A negative response occurs if the test subject is presented with a false statement. This phenomenon occurs independently of the test subject's own opinion or knowledge of the topic, and the response has proven cross-culturally valid in many populations and consistent throughout time. The test results thus fulfill the scientific requirement of replication and therefore reliable verification by other investigators. This technique provides for the first time in human history an objective basis for distinguishing truth from falsehood which is totally verifiable across time with randomly selected naive test subjects. Moreover, we found that this testable phenomenon can be used to calibrate human levels of consciousness so that an arbitrary logarithmic scale of whole numbers emerges, 
stratifying the relative power of levels of consciousness in all areas of human experience. Exhaustive investigation has resulted in a calibrated scale of consciousness in which the log of whole numbers from 1 to 1,000 calibrates the degree of power of all possible levels of human awareness. The millions of calibrations which confirm this discovery further disclose the stratification of levels of power in human affairs, revealing a remarkable distinction between power and force and their respective qualities. This, in turn, led to a comprehensive reinterpretation of human behavior in order to identify the invisible energy fields that control it. The calibrated scale was found to coincide with sublevels of the hierarchy of the perennial philosophy, correlations with emotional and intellectual phenomena in sociology, clinical psychology, psychoanalysis, and traditional spirituality, which immediately suggested themselves. The calibrated scale has been examined here in light of current discoveries in advanced theoretical physics and the nonlinear dynamics of chaos theory. Calibrated levels, we suggest, represent powerful attractor fields within the domain of consciousness itself that dominate human existence and therefore define content, meaning, and value, and serve as organizing energies for widespread patterns of human behavior. This stratification of attractor fields according to corresponding levels of consciousness provides a new paradigm for recontextualizing the human experience throughout all time. Practically, by accessing data to which there has been heretofore no avenue of approach, our method promises both great value in researching history and enormous possible benefit for man's future. In attempting to emphasize the value of this technique as a research tool, Examples have been given of its potential uses in the wide range of human activities, such as in art, history, commerce, politics, medicine, sociology, the natural sciences, and pragmatically in marketing, advertising, research and development, and empirically in psychological, philosophic, and religious spiritual inquiry. Specific applications have been suggested in such diverse fields as criminology, intelligence, addictionology, and the whole field of self-improvement. But further uses and extrapolations of the research method detailed have been barely hinted at. Although the results described here are the product of 20 years of investigation and literally millions of calibrations on thousands of subjects by teams of investigators, this book represents only a beginning exploration of the method's potential to enhance our knowledge in all the arts and sciences. Perhaps most important is its promise as an aid in spiritual growth and maturation to the most advanced levels of consciousness, even enlightenment itself. By use of the kinesiologic testing procedure described herein, unlimited information about any subject, past or present, is universally available. But the realization that everything is knowable about anything or anyone, anywhere, at any point in time, creates at first a paradigm shock. This reaction arises generally from realization of the non-locality, impersonality, and universality of consciousness itself, and specifically from the realization of the observability of one's own thoughts and motivations and their transparency across time, that one's every thought and action leave an indelible trace forever in the universe can be an unsettling thought. As in the case of the discovery of radio waves or x-rays, 
A sudden expansion of our awareness of the workings of the universe not only allows but demands a recontextualization of our worldview. Implications of new knowledge require a reworking of old ideas to form a larger context. Though it may occasion some intellectual stress, such scientific recontextualization of human behavior can expose the basic structures that underline personal and social problems, thereby revealing their potential solutions. Because this subject matter is, in fact, extraordinarily simple, it is difficult to present in a world enamored of complexity. Despite our mistrust of simplification, we may see two general classes of people in the world, believers and non-believers. To the non-believers, everything is false until proven true. To the believers, everything said in good faith is probably true unless it is proven false. The pessimistic position of cynical skepticism stems from fear. The more optimistic manner of accepting information arises from self-confidence. Either style works, and each has its pros and cons. I have been faced, therefore, with the problem of presenting the data in a manner that will satisfy both approaches. This book is, therefore, oxymoronic in style, written to facilitate both so-called left and right brain comprehension. In actuality, we know things by a holistic pattern recognition. The easiest way to grasp a whole new concept is simply by familiarity. This kind of understanding is encouraged by a style of writing characterized as closure. Instead of using only sparse adjectives or examples to express thoughts, they are instead run out and completed by use of repetition. The concept is then done and the mind is left at ease. Such an approach is also desirable because the mind that reads chapter 3 will not be the same as the mind that reads chapter 1. For that matter, the idea of having to start from chapter 1 and read progressively to the end is merely a fixed left-brain concept. This is the pedestrian path of Newtonian physics, based on a limited and limiting view of the world in which all events supposedly happen in a sequence A causes B causes C. This form of myopia arises from an outdated paradigm of reality. Our wider and far more comprehensive view draws not only upon the essence of the most advanced physics, mathematics, and nonlinear theory, but as well upon intuitions that can be experientially validated by anyone. In general, the challenge in presenting this material lies in the paradox of comprehending nonlinear concepts in a linear sentence-by-sentence -sentence structure. The fields of science from which the data emerged are of themselves complex and difficult enough, such as advanced theoretical physics and the mathematics thereof, nonlinear dynamics, chaos theory and its mathematics, advanced behavioral kinesiology, neurobiology, turbulence theory, as well as the philosophic considerations of epistemology and ontology. Beyond this, it was necessary to address the nature of human consciousness itself an uncharted area at the perimeter of which the sciences have all drawn back. To conclusively comprehend such subjects from a purely intellectual viewpoint would be a staggering enterprise requiring a lifetime of study. Instead of essaying so formidable a task, I have tried to extract the essence of each subject and work only with these essences. Even a rudimentary attempt to explain the workings of the testing technique fundamental to this book which seems initially to transcend known laws of the universe, inevitably leads us into the intellectual territories of advanced theoretical physics, 
nonlinear dynamics, and chaos theory. I have therefore attempted as much as possible to present these subjects in non-technical terms. There is no need to worry that some erudite intellectual capacity is required to digest this material. It is not. We will circle around the same concepts over and over until they are obvious. Each time we return to comment on an example, greater comprehension will occur. This kind of learning is like surveying new terrain in an airplane. On the first pass, it all looks unfamiliar. The second time around, we spot some points of reference. The third time, it starts to make sense. And we finally gain familiarity through simple exposure. The inborn pattern recognition mechanism of the mind takes care of the rest. To quell my own fear that perhaps, despite my best efforts, the reader might not get the essential message of the study, I will spell it out in advance. The individual human mind is like a computer terminal connected to a giant database. The database is human consciousness itself, of which our own consciousness is merely an individual expression, but with its roots in the common consciousness of all of mankind. This database is the realm of genius. Because to be human is to participate in the database, everyone by virtue of his birth has access to genius. The unlimited information contained in the database has now been shown to be readily available to anyone in a few seconds, at any time, and in any place. This is indeed an astonishing discovery, bearing the power to change the lives, both individually and collectively, to a degree never yet anticipated. The database transcends time and space and all limitations of individual consciousness. This distinguishes it as a unique tool for future research and opens as yet undreamed-of areas for possible investigation. It holds forth the prospect of the establishment of an objective basis for human values, behaviors, and belief systems. The information obtained by this method reveals a new context for understanding human behavior and a new paradigm for validating objective truth. Because the technique itself can be used by integrous people anywhere at any time, it has the capacity to initiate a new era of human experience based on observable and verifiable truth. We have at our fingertips a means of accurately distinguishing truth from falsehood, workable from unworkable, benevolent from malign, we can illuminate the hidden forces hitherto overlooked that determine human behavior. We have at our disposal a means of finding answers to previously unresolvable personal and social problems. Falsehood need no longer hold sway over our lives. We might add, which is not in the original book, that subsequent research indicated that only people who themselves calibrate 200 or over are able to obtain accurate test results. Although the subject matter has proven easy to teach in lecture or videotapes, my problem has been to work it into readable form. The proofs can be complex. The demonstrations, however, are ultra-simple. Children get it right away and follow through with delight. There's nothing that is surprising to them. They have always known they were connected to the database, and we adults have merely forgotten it. The inherent genius of the child is close to the surface, which is why it was children who saw that the emperor was not wearing new clothes. Genius is like that. I will have been successful if by the end of the book you exclaim, oh, I always knew that. 
What is contained herein is only a reflection of that which you already know, but don't know that you know. All I have hoped to do here is connect the dots to let the hidden picture emerge. This book makes a huge promise, perhaps the biggest promise that has ever been made to you. It can provide you the means by which you may detect if you are being misled. Therefore, you never need read a book or buy into any major teaching again without testing it first. It's too dangerous and too costly. The level of truth of this work itself has been calibrated at 750, which is unusually high for this time in this culture. I pray that this is already a partial fulfillment of the promise. My hope as author has been that this work might undo the very sources of pain, suffering, and failure, and assist the evolution of human consciousness in each of us to rise to the level of joy that should be the essence of man's experience. The work presented by this book began in January 1965. It was finally finished in June 1994. Much of the material was originally developed in the course of work on a doctoral dissertation. The findings reported in the study were independently derived by the use of the research tool elucidated herein, the kinesiologic response. The work evolved spontaneously with reference to outside sources of information. Correlation with the work of others was incorporated at a later date to provide an intellectual frame of reference. Much of the work in this study has now been corroborated by worldwide research presented in independent studies, such as the first major conference on consciousness, entitled Towards a Scientific Basis for Consciousness, which was held at the University of Arizona Health Sciences Center, Tucson, Arizona, in April of 1994. Our research teams used the testing method described in the book to calibrate the levels of truth of every chapter, paragraph, and sentence. For instance, testing revealed an error in a list of celebrities who were destroyed themselves as a consequence of their fame. When we checked each word, the name John Lennon was found to be an error. In fact, he was shot by an assassin. When his name was deleted, the level of truth of the sentence, and therefore the paragraph and the page, rose to match that of the rest of the chapter. Preliminary versions of the book were circulated among selected readers, from rank-and-file healthcare workers to heads of state, such as Mikhail Gorbachev, Nobel winners. Some comments appear on the back cover. Each person's response to the presentation of the subject has been unique. One interesting fact observed was that the scores of tested individuals increased after encountering the material. It appears that mere exposure to the data raised the subject's level of consciousness. Because the implications and practical applications of the work are so varied, and any aspect of the material can be expanded and focused to suit the interests of a given audience, portions of it have lent themselves clinically to presentations for various special interest groups. A segment of the material was presented by the author in the keynote speech at the first International Conference on Consciousness and Addictions in San Mateo, California, and in summation was published in the proceedings of that conference by the Brookridge Institute in the book Beyond Addictions, Beyond Boundaries. An expanded version was given in a four-hour videotape lecture on consciousness and addictions at the Second National Conference on Consciousness and Addictions in San Francisco in 1987. Other parts of the material have appeared in previous series of nationally published videotapes, such as Handling Major Crisis, cardiovascular and heart disease, depression, alcoholism, spiritual first aid, the aging process, 
pain and suffering, weight, worry, fear and anxiety, health, illness, special relationships, and sexuality. Some of this material was presented during three-hour weekly lectures given in an alcohol and drug rehab center over a five-year period at the Sedona Villa of Camelback Hospital. This is the first time the anatomy of consciousness itself has been delineated in pure form in its entirety without attenuation to the interests of a specific special interest audience. Written at the Institute for Advanced Theoretical Research in 1995. Introduction All human endeavor has the common unstated goal of understanding or influencing human experience. To this end, man has developed numerous descriptive and analytic disciplines, such as morality, philosophy, psychology, and so forth. Staggering amounts of time and money are invested in data collection and analysis in attempts to predict human trends. Implicit in this frenetic search is the expectation of finding some ultimate answer. The answer we seem perennially to believe will, once found, allow us to solve the problems of the economy or crime, national health or politics, etc. But so far, we have solved none. It isn't that we lack data. We are virtually drowning in data. The obstacle is that we do not have the proper tools to interpret the significance of our data. We have not yet asked the right questions because we have not had an adequate gauge of our questions, relevance, or accuracy. Man's dilemma, now and always, has been that he misidentifies his own intellectual artifacts as reality. But these artificial suppositions are merely the products of an arbitrary point of perception. The inadequacy of the answers we receive is a direct consequence of the limitations implicit in the viewpoints of the questioner. Slight errors in the formation of questions result in gross errors in the answers that follow. Understanding does not proceed simply from examining data. It comes from examining data in a particular context. Data is useless until we know what it means. To understand its meaning, we need not only to ask the right questions, but we also need the appropriate instruments with which to measure the data in a meaningful process of sorting and description. Most of human behavior has remained indecipherable despite all attempts to understand it in depth. The systems we have created to achieve understanding may seem extensive and impressive, but each in turn has led us down a blind alley because of limitations inherent in the original design. As we explore the nature of man's problems, it becomes clear that there has never been a reliable experimental yardstick with which to measure and interpret man's motivations and experiences over the course of history. Philosophy in all of its branches attempts to comprehend human experience by creating abstractions and hypothecating their concordance with some ultimate reality. Political systems are all based on suppositions about relative human values lacking any demonstrable factual basis. All systems of morality resolve into arbitrary attempts to reduce the enormous complexity of human behavior to simplistic categories of right or wrong. Psychoanalysis, in exposing the unconscious mind, has compounded this model, giving rise to a bewildering array of treatments and psychologies derived from various viewpoints. This ongoing babble of man's attempt to understand himself finally produces a semantic morass in which, in the end, 
Anything one might say is probably true to some degree. Because of uncertainty about the exact nature of causality, even when miserable results are obtained, they are subject to being ascribed to fictitious causes. The fatal fault of all thought systems has been primarily number one, failure to differentiate between subjective and objective. Number two, disregard of the limitation of context inherent in basic design and terminology. Three, ignorance of the nature of consciousness itself. And four, misunderstanding of the nature of causality. The consequences of these shortcomings will become obvious as we explore the major areas of human experience from a new perspective with new tools. Society constantly expends its efforts to correct effects instead of causes, which is one reason why the evolution of human consciousness proceeds so slowly. Mankind is really barely on the first rung of the ladder. We haven't yet solved even such primitive problems as world hunger. The accomplishments of mankind thus far, in fact, are most impressive for having been achieved almost blindly through trial and error. While this random search for solutions has resulted in a maze of baffling complexity, true answers always have the hallmark of simplicity. The basic law of the universe is economy. The universe does not waste a single cork. All serves a purpose and fits into a balance. There are no extraneous events. Man is stuck with his lack of knowledge about himself until he can learn to look beyond apparent causes. From the human record, we may note that answers never arise from identifying so-called causes in the world. Instead, it is necessary to identify the conditions that underlie these ostensible causes, and these conditions exist only within man's consciousness itself. No definitive answer to any problem can be found by isolating sequences of events and projecting upon them a mental notation called causality. There are no actual causes within the observable world. As we shall demonstrate, the observable world is a world of effects. What is the human prognosis? Is society, by virtue of its own chaotic subsystems, a runaway juggernaut, inherently doomed? This prospect underlies a general social apprehension about the future. International polls indicate a high level of unhappiness everywhere on the globe, even in the most advanced countries. While the majority resign themselves to a pessimistic view and pray for a better life in the hereafter, the few visionaries who foresee a utopian future are unable to describe the means necessary to bring it about. Society needs visionaries of means, not dreamers of ends. Once we have the means, the ends will reveal themselves. The difficulty in finding effective means reduces itself upon examination to be our inability to discriminate the essential from the non-essential. Thus far, there has been no system offering a method by which to distinguish powerful and effective solutions from weak, ineffective ones. Our means of evaluation themselves have been inherently incapable of performing realistic appraisal. Societal choices, more often than not, are the result of expediency, statistical fallacy, sentiment, political or media pressure, or personal prejudice and vested interest. Crucial decisions affecting the lives of everyone on the planet are made under conditions that virtually guarantee failure. Because societies lack the necessary reality base for formulation of effective problem resolutions, they fall back over and over on a resort to force. In its various expressions, 
such as law, taxation, war, rules, regulations, etc., which is extremely costly, instead of employing power, which is very economical. Man has two basic types of operational faculties, reason and feeling. Both are inherently unreliable, as history of precarious individual and collective survival attests. Although we ascribe our actions to reason, in fact, man operates primarily out of pattern recognition. The logical arrangement of data serves mainly to enhance a pattern recognition system, which then becomes so-called truth. But nothing is ever actually true except under certain circumstances, and then only from a particular viewpoint, characteristically unstated. As a result, thoughtful man deduces that all his problems arise from the difficulty of knowingness. Ultimately, the mind arrives at epistemology, which is that branch of philosophy which examines the question of how and to what degree man really knows anything. Such philosophic discussions may either seem erudite or irrelevant, but the questions they pose are at the very core of human experience. No matter where we start in an examination of human knowledge, we always end up looking at the phenomena of awareness and the nature of human consciousness, and we eventually come to the same realization. Any further advance in man's condition requires a verifiable basis of knowingness upon which we may place our trust. The main obstacle to man's development, then, is the lack of knowledge about the nature of consciousness itself. If we look within ourselves at the instant-by-instant processes of our minds, we will soon notice that the mind acts much more rapidly than we would acknowledge. It becomes apparent that the notion that our actions are based on thoughtful decisions is a grand illusion. The decision-making process is a function of consciousness itself. With enormous rapidity, the mind makes choices based on millions of pieces of data and their correlations and projections far beyond conscious comprehension. This is a global function dominated by the energy patterns which the new science of nonlinear dynamics terms attractors. Consciousness automatically chooses what it deems best from instant to instant because that is ultimately the only function of which it is really capable. The relative weight and merit given to certain data are determined by a predominant attractor pattern operating in the individual or in a collective group of minds. These patterns can be identified, described, and calibrated. Out of that information arises a totally new understanding of human behavior, history, and the potential destiny of mankind. The present volume, the result of 20 years of intensive research involving millions of calibrations, can make such understanding available to anyone, that this revelation proceeds from a fortuitous connection between the physiology of consciousness the function of the human nervous system, and the physics of the universe is not surprising when we remind ourselves that we are, after all, part of a universe in which everything is connected to everything else. All its secrets are thus, theoretically at least, available to us if we know where and how to look. Can man lift himself up by his bootstraps? Why not? All he has to do is increase his buoyancy, and he will effortlessly rise to a higher state. Forests cannot accomplish that feat. Power not only can, but constantly does. Man thinks he lives by virtue of the forces he can control, but in fact he is governed by power from unrevealed sources, power over which he has no control. Because power is effortless, it goes unseen and unsuspected. Force is experienced through the senses. 
Power can be recognized only through inner awareness. Man is immobilized by his present condition, by his alignment with enormously powerful attractor energy patterns, which he himself unconsciously sets in motion. Moment by moment, he is suspended in this state of evolution, restrained by the energies of force, impelled by the energies of power. The individual is thus like a cork in the sea of consciousness. He doesn't know where he is, where he came from, where he's going, and he doesn't know why. Man wanders about in this endless conundrum, asking the same questions century after century, and so he will continue, failing a quantum leap in consciousness. One mark of such a sudden expansion of context and understanding is an inner experience of relief, joy, and awe. All who have had such an experience feel afterwards that the universe has granted them a precious gift. Facts are accumulated by effort, but truth reveals itself effortlessly. Hopefully, through this book, the reader can comprehend and then prepare the conditions for such a personal revelation. To do so is the ultimate adventure. Part 1. Tools. Chapter 1. Critical Advances in Knowledge. The evolution of this work, which began in 1965, was fostered by developments in numerous scientific fields, of which three were of special importance. Clinical research on the physiology of the nervous system and the holistic functioning of the human organism resulted in the development in the 1970s of the new science of kinesiology. Meanwhile, in the technical arena, computers were being designed that were capable of millions of calculations in milliseconds, making possible the new tools of artificial intelligence. This abrupt access to formerly inconceivable masses of data begot a revolutionary perspective on natural phenomena, chaos theory. Simultaneously, in the theoretical sciences, quantum mechanics led to advanced theoretical physics. Through associated mathematics, there emerged a whole new study of nonlinear dynamics, one of the most far-reaching developments of modern science, the long-term impact of which has yet to be realized. Kinesiology, for the first time, exposed the intimate connection between mind and body, revealing that the mind thinks with the body itself. Thence, it provided an avenue for the exploration of the ways consciousness reveals itself in the subtle mechanisms behind disease processes. Advanced computers permitting the depiction through graphics of vast amounts of data disclosed unsuspected systems within what had been ignored by Newtonian physics as indecipherable or meaningless chaotic data. Theoreticians in diverse fields were suddenly able to intimate coherent ways of understanding that had been considered incoherent or nonlinear, diffuse or chaotic, and therefore inaccessible through conventional probabilistic logical theory and mathematics. Analysis of this seemingly incoherent data identified hidden energy patterns or attractors, which had been postulated by the advanced mathematics of nonlinear equations, and these existed behind apparently random natural phenomena. Computer graphics clearly demonstrated the designs of these attractor fields. The implicit potential for analyzing supposedly unpredictable systems in such disparate areas as fluid mechanics human biology, and stellar astronomy appeared to be limitless. 
The public, however, had remained generally unaware of this new field of nonlinear dynamics, except for the appearance in the marketplace of some intriguing new computer graphics generated by fractal geometry. During the era preceding these revelations, however, linear science had grown progressively divorced from concern with the basis of life itself. All life processes are, in fact, nonlinear. This isolation was also characteristic of medicine, which, when presented with the amazing discoveries of kinesiology, merely ignored the information because it had no context, no paradigm of reality with which to comprehend it. Medicine had forgotten that it was an art and that science was merely a tool of that art. Within medicine, psychiatry had always been held at a distance by the traditionalists because it dealt with the immeasurables of human life and therefore appeared less seemingly scientific from the Newtonian viewpoint. Academic psychiatry, in fact, has made major scientific breakthroughs in psychopharmacology since at least the 1950s. However, it remains the most nonlinear area of medicine, examining such subjects as intuition, decision-making, and the whole phenomena of life as process. Although in the academic psychiatric literature, there is little mention of such things as love, meaning, value, or will, the psychiatric discipline at least essays a somewhat larger view of man than other traditional medical fields. Regardless of what branch of inquiry one starts from, whether it is philosophy, political theory, theology, etc., all avenues of investigation eventually converge at a common meeting point, the quest for an organized understanding of the nature of pure consciousness. But all of the major enterprises in human knowledge discussed, even kinesiology and nonlinear dynamics, halted at this last great barrier to human knowledge, the investigation of the nature of consciousness itself. Some advanced thinkers, it is true, went beyond the parameters of their respective fields and began to ask questions about the relationship between the universe, science, and consciousness in its experience as mind. We will refer to their theories and their impact on the advance of human understanding as we proceed. The thesis of the present work derives from amalgamating these several scientific disciplines into a methodology both elegantly simple and rewarding. We have found thereby that consciousness can indeed be investigated. Although no roadmaps for such a study have thus far been available, research into the subject has produced its own design, and with it the context needed to comprehend its findings. Inasmuch as everything in the universe is connected with everything else, it is not surprising that one of the primary objectives of this study, a map of the energy fields of consciousness, would correlate with and be corroborated by all other avenues of investigation, and thereby uniting the diversity of human experience and its expressions in an all-encompassing paradigm. Such an insight can bypass the artificial dichotomy between subject and object, transcending the limited viewpoint that creates the illusion of duality. The subjective and objective are, in fact, one and the same, as can be demonstrated without resort to nonlinear equations or computer graphics. Although no roadmaps for such a study have thus far been available, research into the subject has produced its own design, and with it, the context needed to comprehend its own findings. By identifying subjective and objective as the same, we are able to transcend the constraints of the concept of time, which by its very definition is a major hindrance to comprehension of the nature of life, 
especially in its expression as human experience. If in actuality the so-called subjective and objective are really one and the same, then we can find the answers to all questions by merely looking within man himself. By simply recording observations, we can see a grand picture emerge, one that predicates no limitations to the extent of further investigation. All of us have available to us at all times a computer far more advanced than the most elaborate artificial intelligence machine, the human mind itself. The basic function of any measuring device is simply to give a signal indicating the detection by the instrument of a slight change. In the experiments to be described, the reactions of the human body itself provide such a signal of change in conditions. As will be seen, the body can discern to the finest degree the difference between that which is supportive of life and that which is not. We should not be surprised at this. Living things all react to what is life-supportive and what is not. This is the fundamental mechanism of survival. Inherent in all life forms is the capacity to detect change and react correctively. Thus, trees become smaller at higher elevations as the oxygen in the atmosphere becomes scarcer. Human protoplasm is far more sensitive than that of a tree. The methodology proceeding from the study of nonlinear dynamics, which we employed in this work of developing a map of the fields of human consciousness, is known as attractor research. It is concerned with the identification of power ranges of energy fields utilizing critical point analysis. Critical point analysis is a technique derived from the fact that in any highly complex system, there is a specific critical point at which the smallest input will result in the greatest change. The great gears of a windmill can be halted by lightly touching the right escape mechanism. It is possible to paralyze a giant locomotive if you know exactly where to put your finger. Nonlinear dynamics enables these significant patterns to be identified in complex presentations even when they are obscured by incoherence or sheer mass of indecipherable data. It discovers the relevance in what the world discards as irrelevant. Using an entirely different approach and totally different methods of problem resolution from the ones the world is used to, the world conventionally assumes that the processing of problems requires starting from the known, such as the question or conditions, and moving on to the unknown, the so-called answer, in the time sequence following definite steps and logical progression. Nonlinear dynamics moves in the opposite direction, from the unknown, the non-deterministic data of the question, to the known, which is the answer. It operates within a different paradigm of causality. The problem is seen as one of definition and excess, rather than of logical sequence, as in solving a problem by the differential equations. But before we attempt to define the questions of this study further, let us examine some of the material we have introduced in greater detail. Critical Advances in Knowledge Continued Attractors At this point, you can review the picture of Lorenz's butterfly. Attractor is the name given to an identifiable pattern that emerges from a seemingly unmeaningful mass of data. There is a hidden coherence in all that appears incoherent. This inner coherence was first demonstrated in nature by Lorenz in studying computer graphics derived from weather patterns over long courses of time. 
The attractor pattern he identified is now quite famous as Lorenz's butterfly. Different types of attractors are denoted by different names. For instance, strange attractors. But most important to our research is the discovery that some patterns are very powerful and others are much weaker. There is a critical point which differentiates the two distinct classes. This phenomenon is parallel and corollary to the high and low energy bonds in the mathematics of the chemical bond. Fields of dominance. A field of dominance is exhibited by high energy patterns in their influence over weaker ones. This may be likened to the coexistence of a small magnetic field within the much larger, more powerful field of a giant electromagnet. The phenomenologic universe is the expression of the interaction of endless attractor patterns of varying strengths. The unending complexities of life are the reflections of the endless reverberations of the augmentations and diminutions of these fields compounded by their harmonics and other interactions. Critical Point Analysis The traditional Newtonian concept of causality had excluded all such non-deterministic data because it did not fit into its paradigm. With the discoveries of Einstein, Heisenberg, Bell, Bohr, and others, our model of the universe expanded rapidly. Advanced theoretical physics demonstrated that everything in the universe is subtly dependent and interactive with everything else. The classic Newtonian four-dimensional universe is often described as a giant clockworks, with the three dimensions of space manifesting linear processes in time. As we look at an even simpler clockworks, we will notice that some gears move slowly and ponderously, while others move very rapidly, and tiny balances twirl about as escape mechanisms as they seesaw back and forth. To place pressure on one of the large moving gears would have little effect on the mechanism. However, somewhere there is a delicate balance mechanism, at which point the slightest touch stops the entire device. This is identified as the critical point, where the least force exerts the greatest effect. Causality. Within the observable world, causality has conventionally been presumed to work in the manner of A causes B causes C. This is called a deterministic linear sequence, like billiard balls sequentially striking each other. The implicit presumption is that A causes B causes C. But our own research indicates that causality operates in a completely different manner in which the complex ABC splits through its operants and is expressed instead as the seeming sequence A and then B and then C of perception. From this diagram, we can see that the source ABC, which is unobservable, results in the visible sequence of A-B-C, which is an observable phenomena within the measurable three-dimensional world. The typical problems the world attempts to deal with exist on the observable level of A-B-C, but our work is to find the inherent attractor pattern, the ABC, out of which the A then B then C seems to arise. So the attractor pattern ABC operates then, split through operants into the sequence of observable events called separately A-B-C. In this simple diagram, the operands transcend both the observable and the non-observable, 
we might picture them as a rainbow bridging the deterministic and the non-deterministic realms. The existence of so-called operants can be inferred by asking the question, what encompasses both the possible and the impossible, the known and the unknown? In other words, what is the matrix of all possibilities? This description of how the universe works is in accord with the theories of physicist David Bohm, who has described a holographic universe with an invisible implicate enfolded and a manifest explicate unfolded order. But it is most important to note that this scientific insight corresponds with the view of reality experienced through history by enlightened sages who have evolved beyond consciousness to the state of pure awareness. Bohm postulates a source that is beyond both the explicate and implicate realms, very much like the state of pure awareness described by the sages. The advent of artificial intelligence supercomputers has allowed the application of the theories of nonlinear dynamics to be applied to the study of brain function through the technique of neurophysiologic modeling. The function of memory especially is being studied by means of neural models among which attractor networks have been identified. Conclusions of current research are that the brain's neural networks act as a system of attractor patterns and that stored memories act as attractors so that the system does not behave in a random fashion overall although each individual neuron may behave in seemingly random fashion. Neuron models of consciousness disclose a class of neural networks called constraint satisfaction systems. In these systems, a network of interconnected neuron units operates within a series of limits and thus sets up attractor patterns, some of which are now being identified with psychopathology. This kind of modeling correlates behavior with physiology and parallels the results of our kinesiologic muscle testing, demonstrating the connection between mind and body. In terms derived from chaos theory, the clinical study described in the following pages has identified a phase space encompassing the full range of the evolution of human consciousness. Within this range, numerous attractor patterns of increasing power have been denoted. These patterns represent energy fields, which are qualities of consciousness itself rather than of any particular individual, as is shown by their occurrence across large populations over long periods of time independent of testers or subjects. The evolution of consciousness and the development of human society can be depicted in the mathematical terms of nonlinear dynamics. Our study concerned itself with a limited set of parameters of consciousness, which we calibrated from 1 to 1,000. The numbers represent the logarithm, to the base 10, of the power of the respective fields. The entire field or phase space of consciousness itself is unlimited, going on up to infinity. The range of 1 to 600 represents the domain of the vast majority of human experience, and it is the primary scope of this study. The levels from 600 to 1,000, the realm of non-ordinary evolution or enlightenment, is that of sages and the highest spiritual states will later be described. Within the total field studied, sequential patterns emerged identifying the progressive powers of attractor fields in which there were local variations but global consistency. So-called strange attractors can be of either high or low energy. And the critical point in our data appeared to be at calibration level 200 below which the power of attractors could be described as weak or negative, 
and above which is strong or positive. By the time we reached the calibration of 600, they were enormously very powerful. An important element of chaos theory helpful in understanding this evolution of consciousness is the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. This refers to the fact that a slight variation over a course of time can have the effect of producing a profound change, much as a ship whose bearing is one degree off compass eventually finds itself hundreds of miles off course. This phenomenon, which we will refer to in more detail later, is an essential mechanism of all evolution and also underlies the potential of the creative process. In overview, we can see that from time immemorial, man has tried to make sense of the enormous complexity and frequent unpredictability of human behavior. A multitude of systems has been constructed to try to make that which is incomprehensible comprehensible. To make sense has ordinarily meant to be definable in terms that are linear, logical, and rational, but the process, and therefore the experience of life itself, is organic, that is to say, nonlinear by definition. This is the source of man's inescapable intellectual frustration. In this study, however, test responses were independent of our subject's belief systems or intellectual content. What emerged were patterns of energy fields, which were aspects of consciousness itself, irrespective of individual identities. In common left-brain, right-brain parlance, we could say that the test subjects reacted globally to an attractor field, irrespective of the individual variation of their left-brain logic, reason, or sequential thought. The results of the study indicate that profoundly powerful patterns organize human behavior. We can intuit, then, an infinite domain of infinite potential, consciousness itself, within which there is an enormously powerful attractor field organizing all of human behavior into what is innate to humanness. Within the giant attractor field are lesser fields of progressively less energy and power. These fields, in turn, dominate behavior, so that definable patterns are consistent across cultures and time throughout human history. The interactions of these variations within attractor fields make up the history of civilization and mankind. A side study not herein reported indicated that the animal and vegetable kingdoms as well are also controlled by attractor fields of hierarchic power. Our study correlates well with Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenetic fields hypothesis as well as Carl Prebum's holographic model of brain-mind function. Note that in a holographic universe, the achievements of every individual contribute to the advance and well-being of the whole. Our study also correlates with the conclusions reached by Nobelist Sir John Eccles that the brain acts as a receiving set for energy patterns residing within the mind itself, which exists as consciousness expressed in the form of thought. It is the vanity of the ego that claims thoughts as mine. Genius, on the other hand, commonly attributes the source of creative leaps of awareness to that basis of all consciousness which has traditionally been called divinity. Chapter 2. History and Methodology The basis of this work is research done over a 20-year period involving millions of calibrations on thousands of test subjects of all ages and personality types from all walks of life. By design, the study is clinical in method and thus has widespread pragmatic implications, 
Because this testing method is valid in application to all forms of human expression, calibrations have been successfully taken for literature, architecture, art, science, world events, and the complexity of human relationships. The test space for the determination of the data is the totality of the human experience throughout all of time. Mentally, test subjects range from what the world calls normal to severely ill psychiatric patients. Subjects were tested in Canada, the United States, Mexico, and throughout South America and Northern Europe. They were of all nationalities, ethnic backgrounds, and religions, ranging in age from children to elders in their 90s, and covered a wide spectrum of physical and emotional health. Subjects were tested individually and in groups by many different testers and groups of testers. In general, the results were identical and reproducible, fulfilling the fundamental requirement of the scientific method, perfect experimental replicability. Subjects were selected at random and tested in a wide array of physical and behavioral settings, on top of mountains and at the seashore, at holiday parties and during the course of everyday work, in moments of joy and moments of sorrow, None of these circumstances affected the test results, which were found to be universally consistent, irrespective of extraneous factors, with the exception of the methodology of the testing procedure itself. And because of the significance of this factor, the testing method will be described in some detail below. Historical Background In 1971, Three physiotherapists published a definitive study on muscle testing, and Dr. George Goodhart of Detroit, Michigan, studied muscle testing techniques extensively in his clinical practice and made the breakthrough discovery that the strength or weakness of every muscle was connected to the health or pathology of a specific corresponding body organ. He further determined that each individual muscle was associated with an acupuncture meridian and correlated his work with that of the physician Felix Mann on the medical significance of the acupuncture meridians. By 1976, Goodhart's book on applied kinesiology had reached its 12th edition. He began to teach the technique to his colleagues and also published monthly research tapes. His work was rapidly picked up by others, which led to the formation of the International College of Kinesiology many members of which also belong to the Academy of Preventive Medicine. A thorough exposition of the development of the field was detailed by David Walther in his extensive volume on applied kinesiology, also published in 1976. The most striking finding of kinesiology initially was a clear demonstration that muscles instantly became weak when the body is exposed to harmful stimuli. For instance, if a patient with hypoglycemia put sugar on his tongue. On muscle testing, the deltoid muscle, which is the one usually used as an indicator muscle, instantly went weak. Accordingly, it was discovered that substances which were therapeutic to the body made the muscles instantly become strong. Because the weakness of any particular muscle indicated the presence of a pathologic process in its corresponding organ, corroborated by diagnosis through acupuncture and physical or laboratory examination, it was a highly useful clinical tool to detect disease. Thousands of practitioners began to use the method, and data rapidly accumulated, showing kinesiology to be an important and reliable diagnostic technique 
which could accurately monitor a patient's response to treatment as well as diagnosis. The technique found widespread acceptance among professionals from many disciplines, and although it never caught on in mainstream medicine, it was used extensively by holistically-oriented physicians. One of these was Dr. John Diamond, a psychiatrist, who began to use kinesiology in diagnosing and treating psychiatric patients. He labeled this extended use of kinesiology as behavioral kinesiology. While other investigators were researching the usefulness of the method in detecting allergies, nutritional and other disorders, and response to medication, Dr. Diamond used the technique to research the beneficial or adverse effects of a great variety of sensory and psychological stimuli, such as art forms, music, facial expression, voice modulation, and emotional stress. He was an excellent teacher, and his seminars attracted thousands of professionals who returned to their own practices with renewed interest and curiosity as they explored applications of the technique. In addition to its inclusive applicability, the test was quick, simple, easy to perform, and highly decisive. All researchers confirmed the replicability of test results. For example, an artificial sweetener made every subject test weak, whether placed on the tongue, held in its package adjacent to the solar plexus, or hidden in a plain envelope, the contents of which neither the tester nor the subject knew. That the body responded even when the mind was naive was most impressive. Most practitioners did their own verification research, placing various substances in plain numbered envelopes and having a naive second person test a third. The overwhelming conclusion was that the body would indeed respond accurately even when the conscious mind was unaware. The reliability of the testing experience never ceased to amaze the public and patients, and for that matter, the practitioners themselves. When this author was on the lecture circuit, for instance, in audiences of 1,000 people, 500 envelopes containing artificial sweetener would be passed out to the audience, along with 500 identical envelopes containing organic vitamin C. The audience would be divided up and would alternate testing each other. When the envelopes were opened, the audience reaction was always one of amazement and delight. When they saw that all had gone weak in response to the artificial sweetener and strong in response to the organic vitamin C. The nutritional habits of thousands of families across the country were changed by this simple demonstration. In the early 1970s, the medical profession in general, and psychiatry in particular, was highly resistant, if not forthrightly hostile, to the idea that nutrition had much to do with health at all, let alone emotional health or brain function. Publication of the book Orthomolecular Psychiatry by this author and Nobelist Linus Pauling received a favorable reception from a wide variety of audiences, but not from the basic medical establishment itself. Interestingly enough, 20 years later, the concepts presented in the book are now fundamental to current treatment of mental illness. The thrust of the book was that mental illness, such as psychosis, as well as lesser ones, such as emotional disorders, had a genetic basis involving an abnormal biochemical pathway in the brain, a molecular basis which could be corrected on the molecular level. Manic depressive illness, schizophrenia, alcoholism, depression, and others, therefore, could be affected by nutrition as well as medication 
1973, when the book was published, the psychiatric establishment was still psychoanalytically oriented, and the work was accepted primarily by holistic practitioners. The suggested treatment methods and results were frequently verified with kinesiology. However, it was Dr. Diamond's demonstration that the body instantly went weak in response to unhealthy emotional attitudes or mental stresses, which had the greatest ongoing clinical influence. His refinement of the muscle testing technique, the one used by most practitioners, was used in this study over a period of 20 years. It was universally observed by practitioners and researchers as well as this author that test responses were completely independent of the test subject's belief systems, intellectual opinions, reason, or logic. It was also observed that a test response where the subject went weak was accompanied by desynchronization of the cerebral hemispheres. The testing technique. Two persons are required. One acts as test subject by holding out one arm laterally parallel to the ground. The second person then presses down with two fingers on the wrist of the extended arm and says, resist. The subject then resists the downward pressure with all their strength. That is all there is to it. A statement may be made by either party. While the subject holds it in mind, his arm's strength is tested by the tester's downward pressure. If the statement is negative or false or reflects a calibration below 200, the test subject will go weak. If the answer is yes or calibrates over 200, they will go strong. To demonstrate the procedure, one might have the subject hold an image of Abraham Lincoln in mind while being tested, and then for contrast, an image of Adolf Hitler. The same effect can be demonstrated by holding in mind someone who is loved, in contrast to someone who is feared or hated, or about whom there is some strong regret. Once a numeric scale is elicited, calibrations can be arrived at by stating this item, for instance a book or an organization or some person, calibrates over 100. Then they calibrate over 150. Then they calibrate over 200. Then they calibrate over 300. And so on, until a negative response is obtained. The calibration can then be refined. For instance, it is over 220, over 225, over 230, etc. Tester and testee can trade places, and the same results will be obtained. Once one is familiar with the technique, it can be used to evaluate companies, movies, individuals, events in history, or for the diagnosis of current life problems. History and methodology continued. The test procedure, the reader will note, is to use the muscle test to verify the truth or falsity of a declarative statement. Unreliable responses will be obtained if the question has not been put into this form, nor can a reliable result be obtained from inquiry into the future. Only statements regarding existent conditions or events in the past or present will produce consistent answers. It is necessary to be impersonal during the procedure to avoid transmitting positive or negative feelings. Accuracy is increased by having the test subject close their eyes and there should be no music or distractions in the background. Because the test is so deceptively simple, it is well that an inquirer first verify its accuracy to their own satisfaction. Responses can be checked by cross-questioning, and everyone who becomes acquainted with the technique thinks of tricks to satisfy themselves that it is reliable. 
it will be soon found that the same response is observed in all subjects, that it is not necessary for them to have any knowledge of the matter in question, and that the response will always be independent of the test subject's personal opinions about the question. Before presenting an inquiry, we have found that it is useful to first test the statement, I have permission to ask this question. This is analogous to an entry requisite on a computer terminal and will occasionally return a no answer. This indicates that one should leave the question alone or inquire carefully further into the reason for the no. Perhaps the questioner might have experienced psychological distress from the answer or its implications at that time or for other unknown reasons. In this study, test subjects were asked to focus on a specified thought, feeling, attitude, memory, relationship, or life circumstance. The test was frequently done on large groups of people for demonstration purposes. We first established the baseline by asking the subjects, with eyes closed, to hold in mind the memory of a time when they were angry, upset, jealous, depressed, guilty, or fearful. At that point, everyone universally went weak. We would then ask them to hold in mind a loving person or life situation, and everyone would go strong. Typically, a murmur of surprise rippled through the audience at the implications of what they had just discovered. The next phenomenon demonstrated was that the mere image of a substance held in mind produced the same response as if the substance itself were in physical contact with the body. As an example, we could hold up an apple grown with pesticides and ask the audience to look directly at it while being tested. All would go weak. We would then hold up an organically grown apple, free of contaminants, and as the audience focused on it, they would instantly go strong. Inasmuch as no one in the audience knew which apple was which, nor for that matter, had any anticipation of the test at all, the reliability of the method was demonstrated to everyone's satisfaction. For reliability of results, it should be remembered that people process experience differently. Some people primarily adopt a feeling mode, others are more auditory, and still others are more visual. Therefore, test questions should avoid such phrasing as, how do you feel about a person's situation or experience, or how does it look, or how does it sound? Customarily, if one says, hold the situation in mind, the subject will instinctively select their own appropriate mode. Occasionally, in an effort, perhaps even unconscious, to disguise their response, subjects will select a mode which is not their customary mode of processing and give a false response. When the tester elicits a paradoxical response, the question should be rephrased. For example, a patient who feels guilty about his anger towards his mother may hold in mind a photograph of her and test strong. However, if the tester were to rephrase the question and ask this subject to hold in mind his present attitude toward his mother, he would then go weak. Other precautions to maintain the accuracy of the test include removing eyeglasses, especially if they have metal frames, and hats. Synthetic materials on top of the head make everyone go weak. The testing arm should also be free of jewelry, especially quartz wristwatches. When an anomalous response does occur, further investigation will eventually reveal the cause. The tester, for instance, might be wearing a perfume to which the patient has an adverse reaction and produce false negative responses. If a tester experiences repeated failures in attempting to elicit an accurate response, 
The effect of their voice on other test subjects should be evaluated. Some testers, at least at certain times, may express sufficient negative energy in their voices to affect test results. Another factor to be considered in the face of a paradoxical response is the time frame of the memory or image involved. If a test subject is holding in mind a given person and their relationship, the response will depend on the period the memory or image represents. If he is remembering his relationship with his brother from childhood, he may have a different response than if he is holding in mind an image of his relationship with his brother as it is today. Questioning always has to be narrowed down specifically. One other cause for paradoxical test results is a physical condition of the test subject resulting from stress or depression of thymic gland function, which occurs from encountering a very negative energy field. The thymus gland is the central controller of the body's acupuncture energy system, and when its energy is low, test results are unpredictable. This can easily be remedied in a few seconds by a simple technique discovered by Dr. John Diamond, which he called the thymic thump. The thymus gland is located directly behind the top of the breastbone, with clenched fists pound over the area rhythmically several times while smiling and thinking of someone you love. At each thump say, ha, ha, ha. Retesting will now show the resumption of thymic dominance and normal test results will occur. Use of the testing procedure in this study. The testing technique just described is that recommended by Dr. Diamond in the book Behavioral Kinesiology. The only variation introduced in our study was the correlation of responses with a logarithmic scale to calibrate the relative power of the energy of different attitudes, thoughts, feelings, situations, and relationships. Because the test is rapid and actually takes less than a few seconds, it is possible to process an enormous amount of information about a variety of matters in a very short time. The numerical scale elicited spontaneously from test subjects ranges from the value of mere physical existence at one up to 600 in the ordinary worldly realm, which is the apex of ordinary consciousness. Then from 600 on to 1,000 includes advanced states of enlightenment. Responses in the form of a simple yes or no answer determine the calibration of a subject. For example, if just being alive is one, then the power of love is over 200, question mark. Subject goes strong, indicating yes. Love is over 300, subject still goes strong. Love is over 400, subject still goes strong. Love is 500 or over, subject still strong. In this case, love calibrated at 500, and this figure proved reproducible regardless of how many test subjects were tested. With repeated testing of either individuals or groups, a consistent scale emerged, which correlated well with human experience, with history, and common opinion, as well as the findings of psychology, sociology, psychoanalysis, philosophy, and medicine, and the famous great chain of being. It also correlates quite precisely with the perennial philosophy's strata of consciousness. The tester must be cautious, however, realizing that the answers to some questions could be disturbing to the subject. The technique must not be used irresponsibly, and the tester must always respect the subject's willingness to participate. It should never be used as a confrontational technique. 
In clinical situations, a personal question is never posed to the test subject unless it is pertinent for a therapeutic purpose. It is possible, though, to pose a question which precludes personal involvement on the part of the test subject, who then functions merely as an indicator for the purposes of calibration or research. The test response is independent of the subject's actual physical strength. It is frequently dumbfounding to well-muscled athletes when they go just as weak as everyone else in response to a noxious stimulus. The tester may well be a frail woman who weighs less than 100 pounds, and the subject may be a professional football player who weighs more than 200, but the test results will be the same as she puts down his powerful arm with a mere two fingers. Chapter 3, Test Results and Interpretation A goal of this study is to generate a practical map of the energy fields of consciousness so as to delineate the range and general geography of an uncharted area of human investigation. In order to make this more easily comprehensible for the reader, the numerical designations arrived at for the various energy fields have been rounded off to comparative figures. If we look at the map of consciousness, it becomes clear that the calibrated levels correlate with specific processes of consciousness, emotions, perceptions, attitudes, worldviews, and spiritual beliefs. If space permitted, the chart could be extended to include all areas of human behavior. Throughout, the research results were mutually corroborating. The more detailed and extensive the investigation, the greater was the corroboration. At this point, you can review the enclosed map of consciousness. The critical response point in the scale of consciousness calibrates at level 200, which is the level associated with courage. All attitudes, thoughts, feelings, and associations below that level of calibration make a person go weak. Attitudes, thoughts, feelings, entities, or historic figures, which calibrate higher, make subjects go strong. This is the balance point between weak and strong attractors between negative and positive influence, and between truth and falsehood. At the levels below 200, the primary impetus is survival, although at the very bottom of the scale, in the zone of hopelessness and depression, even that motive is lacking. The levels of fear and anger are characterized by egocentric impulses, which arrive from these drives for personal survival. At the level of pride, the survival motive may expand to include others as well. As one crosses the demarcation between negative and positive influence and goes on into courage, the well-being of others becomes increasingly important. By the 500 level, the happiness of others emerges as the essential motivating force. The high 500s are characterized by interest in spiritual awareness for both oneself and others. And by the 600s, the good of mankind and the search for enlightenment are the primary goals. From 700 to 1,000, life is dedicated to the salvation of all of humanity. Discussion Reflection on this map can induce a profound expansion of one's empathy for life in its variety of expressions. If we examine what are generally held to be less virtuous emotional attitudes, we realize that essentially they are neither good nor bad, Moralistic judgments are merely a function of the viewpoint from which they emanate. We see, for instance, that a person in grief, which calibrates at the energy level of 75, 
will be much better if they rise to anger, which calibrates at 150. Anger, however, itself is a destructive motion, and it's still a low state of consciousness. But as social history shows, apathy can imprison entire subcultures as well as individuals. If the hopeless can come to wanting something better, desire at 125, and then use the energy of anger at 150 to develop pride at 175, they may then be able to take the step to courage, which calibrates at 200, and proceed to actually ameliorate their individual or collective conditions. Conversely, the person who has arrived at a habitual state of unconditional love will experience anything less as unacceptable. As one advances in the evolution of their individual consciousness, the process becomes self-perpetuating and self-correcting, so that self-improvement becomes a way of life. This phenomenon can be commonly observed among members of 12-step groups who constantly work at overcoming negative attitudes such as self-pity or intolerance. People further down on the scale of consciousness may find these same attitudes acceptable and even righteously defend them. Throughout history, all the world's great religions and spiritual disciplines have been concerned with techniques to ascend through these levels of consciousness. Most have also implied or specifically stated that to move up this ladder is an arduous task and that success depends on having a teacher or at least teachings to give specific instructions and inspiration to the aspirant who might otherwise despair over their inability to achieve the goal unaided. Hopefully our chart may facilitate this ultimate human endeavor. The epistemologic effect of awareness of this schema is subtle, but can be far-reaching. Implications of these findings have pragmatic applications to sports, medicine, psychiatry, psychology, to personal relationships, and the general quest for happiness. Contemplation of the map of consciousness itself can, for instance, transform one's understanding of causality. As perception itself evolves with one's level of consciousness, it becomes apparent that what the world calls the domain of causes is, in fact, the domain of effects. By taking responsibility for the consequences of their own perceptions, the observer can transcend the role of victim to an understanding that nothing out there has power over you. It is not life's events, but how one reacts to them. The attitude that one has about them which determines whether they have a positive or negative effect on one's life, and whether they are experienced as opportunity or as stress. Psychological stress is the effect of a condition you are resisting or wish to escape, but the condition does not have any power in and of itself. Nothing has the power within itself to create stress. The loud music that raises the blood pressure of one person can be a source of delight to another. A divorce may be traumatic if it is unwanted, or a release into freedom if it is desired. The map of consciousness also casts a new light on the progress of history. A most important distinction for the purpose of this study is that between force and power. We can, for example, investigate an historical epic such as the end of British colonialism in India. If we calibrate the position of the British Empire at the time, which is one of self-interest and exploitation, we find that it was well below the critical level of 200 on the scale of consciousness. 
The motivation of Mahatma Gandhi, in contrast, calibrated at 700 and was very near the top of the range of normal human consciousness. Gandhi won in this struggle because his position was one of far greater power. The British Empire, at calibration 175, represented force, and when force meets power, force is eventually defeated. We may observe how throughout history, society has tried to treat social problems by legislative action, warfare, market manipulation, laws, and prohibitions, all of which are manifestations of force, only to see these problems persist or recur despite this treatment. Although governments or individuals who proceed from positions of force are myopic, to the sensitive observer it will eventually become obvious that conditions of social conflict will not disappear until the underlying ideology has been exposed and healed. The difference between treating and healing is that in the former, the context remains the same, whereas in the latter, the clinical response is elicited by a change of context so as to bring about an absolute removal of the basis of the condition rather than mere recovery from its symptoms. It is one thing to prescribe an antihypertensive medication for high blood pressure, and quite another to expand the patient's context of life to the degree that they stop being angry and hostile and repressive. The empathy derived from contemplating this map of consciousness will hopefully make it a shorter step to joy. The key to joy is the unconditional kindness to all of life, including one's own, which we've referred to as compassion. Without compassion, little of any significance is ever accomplished in human endeavor. We may generalize to the greater social context from individual therapies, wherein the patient cannot be truly cured or fundamentally healed until they invoke the power of compassion both for themselves and others. At that point, the healed may themselves become a hero. Chapter 4. Levels of Human Consciousness Millions of calibrations over the years of this study have defined a range of values accurately corresponding to well-recognized sets of attitudes and emotions. These are localized by specific attractor energy fields, much as electromagnetic fields gather iron filings. We have adopted the following classification of these energy fields so as to be easily comprehensible as well as clinically and subjectively accurate. It is very important to remember that the calibration figures do not represent an arithmetic, but instead a logarithmic progression. Thus, level 300 is not twice the amplitude of 150. It is 300 to the 10th power. In other words, 300 times 300 times 300 times 300, 10 times. Therefore, an increase of even a few points represents a major advance in power. The rate of increase in power as we move up the scale is therefore enormous. The ways the various levels of human consciousness express themselves are profound and far-reaching, and their effects are both gross and subtle. All levels below 200 are destructive of life in both the individual and society at large. In contrast, levels above 200 are constructive expressions of power. The decisive level of 200 is the fulcrum that divides the general areas of force or falsehood from truth and power. In describing the emotional correlates of the energy fields of consciousness, it is well to remember 
that they rarely are manifested as pure states in an individual. A person may operate on one level in a given area of life and on quite another level in another area of life. An individual's overall level of consciousness is the sum total effect of all these various levels. Energy Level 20 Shame The level of shame is perilously proximate to death, which may be chosen out of shame as conscious suicide, or more subtly elected by failure to take steps to prolong life, one might say passive suicide. Death by avoidable accident is common. We all have some awareness of the pain of losing face, becoming discredited, and a non-person. In shame, people hang their heads, slink away, and wish they were invisible. Banishment is a traditional accompaniment of shame. And in primitive societies from which we all originate, banishment is equivalent to death. Early life experiences, such as sexual abuse, which lead to shame, warp the personality, often for a lifetime, unless these issues are resolved by therapy. Shame, as Freud determined, produces neurosis. It is destructive to emotional and psychological health, and, as a consequence of low self-esteem, makes one prone to the development of physical illness. The shame-based personality is shy, withdrawn, and introverted. Shame is also used as a tool of cruelty, and its victims often become themselves cruel. Shamed children are cruel to animals and cruel to each other. The behavior of people whose consciousness level is only in the 20s is dangerous. They are prone to hallucinations of an accusatory nature, as well as paranoia. Some become psychotic or commit bizarre crimes. Some shame-based individuals compensate by perfectionism and rigidity and often become driven and intolerant. Notorious examples of this are the moral extremists who form vigilante groups, projecting their own unconscious shame onto others, whom they then feel justified in righteously attacking or killing. Serial killers have often acted out of sexual moralism with the justification of punishing so-called bad women. Because it pulls down the whole level of one's personality, shame results in a vulnerability to the other negative emotions and therefore often produces false pride, anger, and guilt. Energy level 30, guilt. Guilt, so commonly used in our society to manipulate and punish, manifests itself in a variety of expressions, such as remorse, self-recrimination, masochism, and the whole gamut of symptoms of victimhood. Unconscious guilt results in psychosomatic disease, accident proneness, and suicidal behaviors. Many people struggle with guilt their entire lives, while others desperately attempt to escape by amorally denying guilt altogether. Guilt domination results in a preoccupation with sin, an unforgiving emotional attitude frequently exploited by religious demagogues who used it for coercion and control. Such sin and salvation merchants, obsessed with punishment, are likely either acting out their own guilt or projecting it onto others. Subcultures displaying the aberration of self-flagellation often manifest other endemic forms of cruelty, such as the public ritual killing of humans or animals. Guilt provokes rage, and killing frequently is its expression. Capital punishment is an example of how killing gratifies a guilt-ridden populace. 
Our unforgiving American society, for instance, pillories its victims in the press and meets out punishments which have never been demonstrated to have any deterrent or corrective effect. Energy level 50, apathy. This level is characterized by poverty, despair, and hopelessness. The world and the future look bleak. Pathos is the theme of life. It is a state of helplessness. Its victims, needy in every way, lack not only resources, but the energy to avail themselves of what resources may be available. Unless external energy is supplied by caregivers, death through passive suicide can result. Without the will to live, the hopeless stare blankly, unresponsive to stimuli, until their eyes finally stop tracking and there is not even enough energy left to swallow proffered food. This is the level of the homeless and the derelicts of society. It is also the fate of many of the aged and others who become isolated by chronic or progressive diseases. The apathetic are dependent, people in apathy are heavy, and are felt to be a burden by those around them. Too often society lacks sufficient motivation to be of any real help to cultures as well as individuals at this level who are seen as drains of resources. This is the level of the streets of Calcutta, where only the saintly, such as Mother Teresa and her followers, dare to tread. It is the level of the abandonment of hope, and few have the courage to really look it in the face. Energy level 75. Grief. This is the level of sadness, loss, and despondency. Most humans have experienced it for periods of time, but those who remain at this level live a life of constant regret and depression. This is the level of chronic mourning, bereavement, and remorse about the past. It is also the level of habitual losers and chronic gamblers who accept failure as part of their lifestyle, often resulting in loss of jobs, friends, family, and opportunity, as well as money and health. Major losses in early life make one later vulnerable to passive acceptance of grief as though sorrow were the price of life. In grief, one sees sadness everywhere the sadness of little children, the sadness of world conditions, the sadness of life itself. This level colors one's entire vision of existence. Part of the syndrome of loss is the notion of the irreplaceability of what is lost or that which it symbolized. There is a generalization from the particular, so that the loss of a loved one is equated with the loss of love itself. At this level, such emotional losses may trigger a serious depression or death. Though grief is the cemetery of life, it still has more energy to it than does apathy. Thus, when a traumatized, apathetic patient begins to cry, we know they are getting better. Once they start to cry, they will begin to eat again. Energy level 100. Fear. At the level of 100, there is a lot more life energy available. Fear of danger is actually healthy. Fear runs much of the world, spurring endless activity. There is fear of enemies, fear of old age, fear of death, fear of rejection, and the multitude of social fears are basic motivators in most people's lives. From the viewpoint of this level, the world looks hazardous, full of traps and threats. Fear is the favorite official tool for control by oppressive totalitarian agencies and regiments, and insecurity is the stock and trade of major manipulators of the marketplace. The media and advertising play to fear to increase market share. 
The proliferation of fears is as limitless as the human imagination. Once fear becomes one's focus, the endless fearful events of the world feed it. Fear then can become obsessive and may take any form. Fear of loss of relationship leads to jealousy and a chronically high stress level. Fearful thinking can balloon into paranoia or generate neurotic defensive structures and because it is contagious, become a dominant social trend. Fear limits growth of the personality and leads to inhibition. Because it takes energy to rise above fear, the oppressed are unable to reach a higher level unaided. Thus, the fearful seek strong leaders who appear to have conquered their fear to lead them out of their slavery. Energy Level 125 Desire There is yet more energy available at this level. Desire motivates vast areas of human activity, including the economy. Advertisers play on desires to program us with needs linked to instinctual drives. Desire moves us to expend great effort to achieve goals or obtain rewards. The desire for money, prestige, or power runs the lives of many of those who have risen above fear as their limiting predominant life motif. Desire is also the level of addictions, wherein desire becomes a craving more important than life itself. The victim of desire may actually be unaware of the basis of their motives. Some people become addicted to the desire for attention and drive others away by their constant demands. The desire for sexual approval has produced an entire cosmetic and fashion and movie industries. Desire has to do with accumulation and greed. But desire is insatiable because it is an ongoing energy field, so that satisfaction of one desire is merely replaced by unsatisfied desire for something else. Multimillionaires remain obsessed with acquiring more and more money. Desire, however, is a much higher state than apathy or grief, obviously. In order to get, you have to first have the energy to want. TV has had a major influence on many oppressed people, because it inculcates wants and energizes their desires to the degree that they move out of apathy and begin to seek a better life. Want can start people on the road to achievement. Desire can, therefore, become a springboard to higher levels of consciousness. Energy Level 150 Anger Although anger may lead to homicide and war, as an energy level within itself, it is farther removed from death than those below it. Anger can lead to either constructive or destructive action. As people move out of apathy and grief to overcome fear, they begin to want. Desire leads to frustration, which in turn leads to anger. Thus, anger can be a fulcrum by which the oppressed are eventually catapulted to freedom. Anger over social injustices, victimization, and inequality have created great movements that led to major changes in the structure of society. But anger expresses itself most often as resentment and revenge and is therefore volatile and dangerous. Anger as a lifestyle is exemplified by irritable, explosive people who are oversensitive to slights and become injustice collectors, quarrelsome, belligerent, or litigious. As anger stems from frustrated want, it is based on the energy field below it. Frustration results from exaggerating the importance of desires. The angry person may, like a frustrated infant, go into a rage. Anger leads easily to hatred, which has an erosive effect on all areas of a person's life. Energy Level 175 Pride 
Pride, which calibrates at 175, has enough energy to run the United States Marine Corps. It is the level aspired to by the majority of our kind today. People feel positive as they reach this level in contrast to the lower energy fields. This rise in self-esteem is a bomb to all the pain experienced at the lower levels of consciousness. Pride looks good and knows it. It struts its stuff in the parade of life. Pride is at a far enough removal from shame, guilt, or fear that to rise, for instance, out of the despair of the ghetto to the pride of being marine is an enormous jump. Pride as such generally has a good reputation and is socially encouraged. Yet, as we see from the chart of the levels of consciousness, it is still sufficiently negative to remain below the critical level of 200. This is why pride feels good only in contrast to the lower levels. The problem, as we all know, is that pride goeth before a fall. Pride is defensive and vulnerable because it is dependent upon external conditions without which it can suddenly revert to a lower level. The inflated ego is vulnerable to attack. Pride remains weak because it can be knocked off of its pedestal into shame, which is the threat that fires the fear of loss of pride. Pride is divisive and gives rise to factionalism. The consequences are costly. Man has habitually died for pride. Armies still regularly slaughter each other for that aspect of pride called nationalism. Religious wars, political terrorism, and zealotry, the ghastly history of the Middle East and Central Europe, are all the price of pride which all of society pays. The downside, therefore, of pride is arrogance and denial. These characteristics block growth. In pride, recovery from addictions is impossible because emotional problems or character defects are denied. The whole problem of denial is one of pride. Thus, pride is a very sizable block to the acquisition of real power, which displaces pride with true stature and prestige. Energy Level 200 Courage At the 200 level, power really first appears. When we test subjects at all the energy levels below 200, we find, as can be readily verified, that they all go weak. Everyone goes strong in response to the life-supportive fields above 200. This is the critical level that distinguishes the positive and negative influences of life. At the level of courage, an attainment of true power occurs. Therefore, it is also the level of empowerment. This is the zone of exploration, accomplishment, fortitude, and determination. At the lower levels, the world is seen as hopeless, sad, frightening, or frustrating. But at the level of courage, life is seen to be exciting, challenging, and stimulating. Courage implies the willingness to try new things and deal with the vicissitudes of life. At this level of empowerment, one is able to cope with and handle effectively the opportunities of life. At 200, for instance, there is the energy to learn new job skills. Growth and education become attainable goals. There is the capacity to face fears or character defects and to grow despite them. And anxiety does not cripple endeavor as it would at the lower levels of evolution. Obstacles which defeat people whose consciousness is below 200 act as stimulants to those who have evolved into the first level of true power. People at this level put back into the world as much energy as they take. At lower levels, populations as well as individuals drain energy from society without reciprocating. 
Because accomplishment results in positive feedback, self-reward and esteem become progressively self-reinforcing. This is where true productivity begins. The collective level of consciousness of mankind remained at 190 for many centuries and curiously only jumped to its current level of 204 within the last decade. Levels of human consciousness continued. Energy level, 250. Neutrality. Energy becomes very positive as we get to the level which we have termed neutral because it is epitomized by release from the positionality which typifies lower levels. Below 250, consciousness tends to see dichotomies and take on rigid positions, which is an impediment in a world which is complex and multifactorial rather than just black and white. Taking such positions creates polarization, and polarization in turn creates opposition and division. As in the martial arts, a rigid position becomes a point of vulnerability. That which does not bend is liable to break. Rising above barriers or oppositions which dissipate one's energies, the neutral condition allows for flexibility and a non-judgmental, realistic appraisal of problems. To be neutral means to be relatively unattached to outcomes. Not getting one's way is no longer experienced as defeating, frightening, or frustrating. At the neutral level, a person can say, well, if I don't get this job, then I'll get another. This is the beginning of inner confidence, sensing one's power. One is therefore not easily intimidated. One is not driven to prove anything. The expectation that life, with its ups and downs, will be basically okay if one can roll with it, that is a typical calibration level 250 attitude. People at neutrality have a sense of well-being. The mark of this level is confident capability to live in the world. This is therefore experientially a level of safety. People at the neutral level are easy to get along with, safe to be around and associate with, because they are not interested in conflict, competition, or guilt. They are comfortable and basically undisturbed emotionally. This attitude is non-judgmental and does not lead to any need to control other people's behaviors. Correspondingly, because neutral people value freedom, they are hard to control. Energy level 310. Willingness. This very positive level of energy may be seen as the gateway to the higher levels. Whereas jobs, for instance, are done adequately at the neutral level, at the level of willingness, work is done well and success in all endeavors is common. Growth is rapid. These are people chosen for advancement. Willingness implies that one has overcome inner resistance to life and is committed to participation. Below the 200 calibration level, people tend to be closed-minded, but by level 310, a great opening occurs. At this level, people become genuinely friendly, and social and economic success seem to come automatically. The willing are not really troubled by unemployment, for they will take any job when they have to, or they will create a career or go into self-employment for themselves. They do not feel demeaned by service jobs or by having to start at the bottom. They are naturally helpful to others and contribute to the good of society. They are also willing to face inner issues and do not have major learning blocks. At this level, self-esteem is innately high and is reinforced by positive feedback from society in the forms of recognition, appreciation, and reward. Willingness is sympathetic and responsive to the needs of others. 
willing people are builders of and contributors to society. With their capacity to bounce back from adversity and learn from experience, they tend to become self-correcting. Having let go of pride, they are willing to look at their own defects and learn from others. At the level of willingness, people become excellent students. They are easily teachable and represent a considerable source of power for society. Energy level, 350, acceptance. At this level of awareness, a major transformation takes place with the understanding that one is oneself, the source and creator of the experience of one's life. Taking such responsibility is distinctive of this degree of evolution, which is characterized by the capacity to live harmoniously with the forces of life. All people at levels below 200 tend to be powerless and see themselves as victims at the mercy of life. This stems from a belief that the source of one's happiness or the causes of one's problem is so-called out there. An enormous jump, taking back one's own power, is completed at this level with the realization that the source of happiness is within oneself. At this more evolved stage, nothing so-called out there has the capacity to really make one happy. And love is not something that is given or taken away by another, but is created from within. Acceptance is not to be confused with passivity, which is a symptom of apathy. This form of acceptance allows engagement in life on life's own terms without trying to make it conform to an agenda. With acceptance, there is emotional calm and perception is widened as denial is transcended. One now sees things without distortion or misinterpretation. The context of experience is expanded so that one is capable of seeing the whole picture. Acceptance has to do essentially with balance, proportion, and appropriateness. The individual at the level of acceptance is not interested in determining right or wrong, but instead is dedicated to resolving issues and finding out what to do about problems. Tough jobs do not cause discomfort or dismay. Long-term goals take precedence over short-term ones. Self-discipline and mastery are prominent. At the level of acceptance, we are not polarized by conflict or opposition. We see that other people have the same rights as we do, and we honor equality. While lower levels are characterized by rigidity, at this level, social plurality begins to emerge as a form of resolution of problems. Therefore, this level is free of discrimination and intolerance. There is an awareness that equality does not preclude diversity. Acceptance includes rather than rejects. Energy level 400. Reason. Intelligence and rationality rise to the forefront when the emotionalism of the lower levels is transcended. Reason is capable of handling large, complex amounts of data and making rapid, correct decisions. It's capable of understanding the intricacies of relationships, gradations, and fine distinctions and also of expert manipulation of symbols as abstract concepts, which become increasingly important. This is the level of science, medicine, and of generally increased capability for conceptualization and comprehension. Knowledge and education are sought as capital. Understanding and information are the main tools of accomplishment, which is the hallmark of the 400 level. This is the level of Nobel Prize winners, great statesmen, Supreme Court justices, Einstein, Freud, and many other important figures in the history of thought calibrate here. 
and the authors of the great books of the Western world calibrate here. The shortcomings of this level are failure to clearly distinguish the difference between symbols and what they represent, and confusion between the objective and subjective worlds that limits the understanding of causality. At this level, it's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. You become infatuated with concepts and theories and ending up in intellectualism and missing the essential point. Intellectualizing can become an end in itself. Reason is limited in that it does not afford the capacity for the discernment of essence or the critical point of a complex issue and generally disregards context. Reason does not of itself provide a guide to truth. It produces massive amounts of information and documentation, but lacks the capability to resolve discrepancies in data and conclusions. All philosophic arguments sound convincing on their own. Although reason is highly effective in a technical world where the methodologies of logic dominate, reason itself paradoxically is the major block to reaching higher levels of consciousness and transcending this level is relatively uncommon in our society, by only 4%. Energy level 500, love. Love, as it is depicted in the mass media, is not what this level implies. On the contrary, what the world generally refers to as love is an intense emotionality combining physical attraction, possessiveness, control, even addiction, eroticism, novelty, it is usually evanescent and fluctuating, waxing and waning with varying conditions. When frustrated, this emotion often reveals an underlying anger and dependency that it had masked. That love can turn to hate is a common concept, but what is being spoken about then, rather than love, is an addictive sentimentality and an attachment. Hate stems from pride, not love. There probably never was actual love, therefore, in such a relationship. The 500 level is characterized by the development of a love which is unconditional, unchanging, and permanent. It does not fluctuate because its source within the person who loves is not dependent on external conditions. Loving is a state of being. It is a way of relating to the world, which is forgiving, nurturing, and supportive. Love is not intellectual and does not proceed from the mind. Love emanates from the heart. It has the capacity to lift others and accomplish great feats because of the purity of its motive. At this level of development, the capacity to discern essence becomes more predominant. The core of an issue becomes the center of focus. As reason is bypassed, there arises the capacity for instantaneous recognition of the totality of a problem and a major expansion of context, especially regarding time and process. Reason deals only with particulars, whereas love deals with wholes. This ability, often ascribed to intuition, is the capacity for instantaneously understanding without resort to sequential symbol processing. This apparently abstract phenomenon is, in fact, quite concrete. It is accompanied by a measurable release of endorphins in the brain. Love takes no position and thus is global, rising above the separation of positionality. It is then possible to be one with another, as there are no longer any barriers. Love is therefore inclusive and expands the sense of self progressively. Love focuses on the goodness of life in all its expressions and augments that which is positive. 
It dissolves negativity by recontextualizing it rather than by attacking it. This is the level of true happiness, but although the world is fascinated with the subject of love and all viable religions calibrate at 500 or over, it is interesting to note that only 0.4% of the world's population ever reaches this level of the evolution of consciousness. Energy level 540. Joy. As love becomes more and more unconditional, it begins to be experienced as an inner joy. This is not the sudden joy of a pleasurable turn of events. It is a constant accompaniment to all activities. Joy arises from within each moment of existence rather than from any external source. 540 is also the level of healing and of spiritually based self-help groups. From level 540 up is the domain of saints, spiritual healers, and advanced spiritual students. Characteristic of this energy field is the capacity for enormous patience and the persistence of a positive attitude in the face of prolonged adversity. The hallmark of this state is compassion. People who have attained this level have a notable effect on others. They are capable of prolonged open visual gaze, which induces a state of love and peace. At the high 500s, the world one sees is illuminated by the exquisite beauty and perfection of creation. Everything happens effortlessly by synchronicity, and the world and everything in it is seen to be an expression of love and divinity. Individual will merges into divine will. A presence is felt whose power facilitates phenomena outside conventional expectations of reality, termed miraculous by the ordinary observer. These phenomena represent the power of the energy field, not that of the individual. One's sense of responsibility for others at this level is of a different quality from that shown at the lower levels. There is a desire to use one's state of consciousness for the benefit of life itself rather than for particular individuals. This capacity to love many people simultaneously is accompanied by the discovery that the more one loves, the more one can love. Near-death experiences, characteristically transformative in their effect, frequently have allowed people to experience the energy level between 540 and 600. Energy level 600. Peace. This energy field is associated with the experience designated by such terms as transcendence, self-realization, and God consciousness. It is extremely rare. When this state is reached, the distinction between subject and object disappears and there is no specific focal point of perception. Not uncommonly, individuals at this level remove themselves from the world as the state of bliss that ensues precludes ordinary activity. Some become spiritual teachers. Others work anonymously for the betterment of mankind. A few become great geniuses in their respective fields and make major contributions to society. These people are saintly and may eventually even be designated officially as so, though at this level, formal religion is commonly transcended to be replaced by the pure spirituality out of which all religion originates. Perception at the level of 600 and above is sometimes reported as occurring in slow motion, suspended in time and space. Though nothing is stationary, all is alive and radiant. Although this world is the same world as seen by others, it has become continuously flowing, evolving in an exquisitely coordinated evolutionary dance in which significance and source are overwhelming. 
This awesome revelation takes place non-rationally, so that there is an infinite silence in the mind which has stopped conceptualizing. That which is witnessing and that which is witnessed take on the same identity. The observer dissolves into the landscape and becomes equally the observed. Everything is connected to everything else by a presence whose power is infinite, exquisitely gentle, yet rock-like. Great works of art, music, and architecture, which calibrate between 600 and 700, can transport us temporarily to higher levels of consciousness and are universally recognized as inspirational and timeless. Energy level 700 to 1000. Enlightenment. This is the level of the great ones of history who originated the spiritual patterns which multitudes have followed throughout the ages. All are associated with divinity with which they are often identified. It is the level of powerful inspiration. These beings set in place attractor energy fields which influence all of mankind down through the ages. At this level, there is no longer the experience of an individual personal self as separate from others. Rather, there is an identification of self with a capital S with consciousness and divinity. The unmanifest is experienced as self with a capital S beyond mind. This transcendence of the ego also serves by example to teach others how this can eventually be accomplished. This is the peak of the evolution of consciousness in the human realm. Great teachings uplift the masses and raise the level of awareness of all of humanity. To have such vision is called grace, and the gift it brings is peace described as ineffable beyond words. At this level of realization, the sense of one's existence transcends all time and all individuality. There is no longer identification with the physical body as if it were me, and therefore its fate is really of no concern. The body is seen as merely a tool of consciousness. Through the intervention of mind, its prime value, that of communication, the small self merges back into the large self. This is the level of non-duality or complete oneness. There is no localization of consciousness. Awareness is everywhere equally present. Great works of art depicting individuals who have reached the level of enlightenment characteristically show the teacher with a specific hand position called the mudra, wherein the palm of the hand radiates benediction. This is the act of the transmission of this energy field to the consciousness of mankind. This level of divine grace calibrates up to 1,000, the highest level attained by any persons who have ever lived in recorded history, to wit, the great avatars, to whom the title Lord is appropriate, Lord Krishna, Lord Buddha, Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5. Social Distribution of Consciousness Levels General Description a graphic representation of the distribution of the respective energy levels among the world's population would resemble the shape of a pagoda in that 85% of the race is below the critical level of 200, while the overall average level of human consciousness today is approximately 204. The power of the relatively few individuals near the top counterbalances the energy of the masses toward the bottom to achieve this overall average. As mentioned, only 0.4% of the world's population calibrates in an energy field of 500 or over. 
A level of consciousness calibrating at 600 or over is reached by only one in many millions. At first glance, these figures may seem improbable, but if we examine world conditions, we will quickly be reminded that the populations of whole continents live at a bare subsistence level. Famine and disease are commonplace, frequently accompanied by political oppression and paucity of social resources. Many of such people live in a state of hopelessness, calibrating at the level of apathy and resignation to their abject poverty. We must also realize that much of the remainder of the world's population, civilized as well as primitive, live primarily in the world of fear. The majority of humans spend their lives in a quest for one form or another of security. Those whose lifestyles transcend the imperative of survival, so as to allow discretionary options, then become grist for the desire-driven world economic mill, and success in the attainment of desires leads at best to pride. Any meaningful human satisfaction cannot even commence until about the level of 250, where some degree of self-confidence begins to emerge as the basis for positive life experiences in the evolution of consciousness. Cultural Correlations The energy fuels below 200 are most common in extremely primitive conditions where people eke out bare subsistence. Clothing is sparse, illiteracy is the rule. Infant mortality is high. Disease and malnutrition are widespread. And there is a vacuum of social power. Skills are rudimentary and center around fuel and food gathering and shelter preparation. And there is total dependence on the vagaries of the immediate environment. This is really a Stone Age tribal cultural level, little more than an animal existence. Populations characterized by the low 200s are typified by unskilled labor, rudimentary trade, the building of simple artifacts such as dugout canoes and temporary housing. Mobility begins to express itself in the nomadic lifestyle. And in populations that average a somewhat higher consciousness, agriculture first appears and barter evolves into the use of a token currency. The mid-200s are associated with semi-skilled labor. Simple but life-sustaining housing and food economy become dependably available. Clothing is adequate and elementary education begins. The high 200s are represented by skilled labor, blue-collar workers, tradesmen, retail commerce, and industries. At lower levels, for example, fishing is an individual or a tribal activity, but above the mid-200s, it becomes an industry. At the level of 300, we find technicians, skilled and advanced craftsmen, managers, and more sophisticated business structure. Completion of secondary education becomes customary. There is an interest in style, sport, and public entertainment, and television, of course, is the great pastime. In the mid-300s, we find upper management, artisans, and educators, informed awareness of public events, and a worldview that extends beyond the tribe, neighborhood, or city to the nation at large and its welfare. Social dialogue becomes a meaningful matter of interest. Survival has been assured by the acquisition of skills and information adequate to function as a civilized society. There is social mobility and flexibility and resources which enable a limited amount of travel and other stimulating recreation. The 400s are the level of the awakening of the intellect. 
the locus of true literacy, higher education, the professional class, executives, scientists. The home, devoid of reading material at the lower levels, now exhibits magazines, periodicals, and full bookcases. There is an interest in educational broadcast channels and a more sophisticated political awareness. There is greater communication, adeptness, intellectual preoccupation, as well as artistic creativity are common. Recreational activities take the form of chess, travel, theater, concerts. Civic enterprises intended to enhance the social milieu receive serious attention. Supreme Court justices, presidents, statesmen, inventors, and leaders of industry occupy this general range. Because education is the underpinning of this level, individuals tend to gather in metropolitan areas where they have access to sources of information and instruction such as the great universities. Some aspire to faculty status, others become lawyers or members of other professional classes. The welfare of one's fellow man is a common concern, though not yet a driving force. The high 400s are associated with leaders in their respective fields and with high social prestige, accomplishment, and corresponding social trappings. Both Einstein and Freud calibrated at 499. But while the 400s are the level of universities and doctorates, they are also the source of the limited and limiting Newtonian vision of the universe and of the Cartesian split between mind and body. Interestingly, both Newton and Descartes calibrated at 499. Just as the level 200 demarcates a critical change of consciousness, 500 is a point at which awareness makes another great leap. Although survival of the individual is still important, the motivation of love begins to color all activities, and creativity comes into full expression, accompanied by commitment, dedication, and expressions of charisma. Here, excellence is common in every field of human endeavor, from sport to scientific investigation. Altruism becomes a motivating factor, along with dedication to principles. Leadership is accepted rather than sought. From this level emerges great music, art, and architecture, and the capacity to uplift others by one's mere presence. In the upper 500s are found inspirational leaders who set an example for the rest of society, and in their respective fields, create new paradigms with far-reaching implications for all of mankind. Although well aware of themselves that they still have defects and limitations, people on this level are often seen by the general public as out of the ordinary and may be recognized with emblems of distinction. Many in the mid-500s begin to have spiritual experiences of profound import and become immersed in spiritual pursuit. Some astonish their friends and families by sudden breakthroughs into new subjective contexts of reality. Consciousness at this level can be described as visionary and may focus on uplifting society as a whole. From this level, a few make the great leap to the region which calibrates at 600. At this point, an individual's life may become legendary. The signature of the 600s is compassion, which pervades all motivation and activities. Progression of Consciousness Although the levels we have described span great variation, it is not common for individuals to move from one level to another during one lifetime. The energy fuel which is calibrated for an individual at birth only increases on an average by about five points. That an individual's level of consciousness is already in effect at birth 
is a sobering fact with profound implications. Consciousness itself and its expression as human civilization evolves slowly indeed through numerous generations. The majority of people utilize their life experiences to elaborate and express the variations of their native energy field. It is the rare individual who manages to really move beyond it, although many people make considerable internal improvements. The reason for this is more easily understandable when we see that what defines one's level is motivation. Motivation proceeds from meaning, and meaning in turn is an expression of context. Thus, achievement is bounded by context, which, when correspondingly aligned with motivation, determines the individual's relative power. The average advance of five points in a lifetime is, of course, a statistical figure, reduced by, among other things, the fact that people's cumulative life choices not uncommonly result in a net lowering of their level of consciousness, as will be enumerated in detail later, the influence of a very few individuals of advanced consciousness counterbalances whole populations at the lower levels. But conversely, the extreme negativity of a few individuals can sway entire cultures and produce a global drag on the general level of consciousness, as history illustrates all too well. Kinesiologic testing indicates that a mere 2.6% of the human population identifiable by an abnormal kinesiologic polarity in that they test strong to negative attractors and weak to positive ones, account for 72% of society's problems. Nonetheless, it is possible for isolated individuals to make sudden positive jumps, even of hundreds of points. If one can truly escape the egocentric entrainment of the sub-200 attractor fields, consciously choosing a friendly, earnest, kind, and forgiving approach to life, and eventually making charity towards others one's primary focus, higher levels can certainly be attained, at least in theory. In practice, however, great will is required. Thus, though it is not ordinary to move out of one's energy field into another during one lifetime, the opportunity still exists. It remains for motivation to activate that potential, Without the exercise of choice, no progression will occur. It is well to reemphasize that the progression of the calibrated power levels is logarithmic. Thus, individual choice can have a mighty effect. The difference in power level, for instance, between 361.0 and 361.1 can be very significant and are even capable of transforming one's life and one's effect on the world at large. Chapter 6. New Horizons in Research Our concern thus far has been primarily to elucidate the structure and the anatomy of consciousness with some reference to the mechanisms of force and power. But ours is in no sense a purely theoretical subject. The unique nature of the research method described herein allows exploration of hitheretofore inaccessible areas of potential knowledge. It is as applicable to the most prosaic practical questions as it is to the most advanced theoretical explorations. Let's investigate a few general examples. Social problems. Drug and alcohol addiction is a crucial social concern which feeds parallel problems of crime, poverty, and welfare. 
Addiction has proved an intractable social and clinical problem, thus far not understood beyond the most basic description. By the term addiction, we mean clinical addiction. In the classical sense of continued dependence on alcohol or a drug, despite serious consequences. A condition exceeding the capacity of the addicted person to discontinue use of the substance unaided because the will itself has been rendered ineffective. But what is the essential nature of addiction and to what is the addict really addicted? The common belief is that it is the addictive substance itself to which the victim has become addicted because of that substance's power to create a high state of euphoria. But if we re-examine the nature of addiction through the methodology described, a different formulation of the process emerges. Alcohol or drugs do not in themselves have the power to create a high at all. They calibrate at only 100, which is the same as the level of vegetables. The so-called high that the drug or alcohol user experiences can calibrate from 350 up to 600. The actual effect of drugs is merely to suppress the lower energy fields, thereby allowing the user to experience exclusively only the higher ones. It is as though a filter screened out all of the lower tones coming from an orchestra, so that all that could be heard were the high notes. The suppression of the low notes does not create the high ones. It merely reveals their presence. Within the levels of consciousness, the higher frequencies are extremely powerful and few people routinely experience these as pure states because they are masked by lower energy fields such as anxiety, fear, anger, resentment, etc. Rarely does the average person get to experience, for instance, love without fear or pure joy, much less ecstasy. But these higher states are so powerful that once experienced they are never forgotten and are sought ever after. It is to this experience of higher states that people become addicted. A good illustration is presented in the classic movie, Lost Horizon. Shangri-La, the movie's metaphor for unconditional love and beauty, calibrates at 600. Once experienced, it reprograms the experiencer so that they will never be content again with ordinary consciousness. The hero of the movie discovers this fact when he is unable to find happiness again in the ordinary world after returning from Shangri-La. He then gives up everything in order to seek out and return to that state of consciousness, spending years in the struggle, which almost costs him his life, to regain and find Shangri-La again. This same reprogramming process occurs in people who have reached high states of consciousness by other means, such as the experience of samadhi through meditation, or near-death experiences. Such individuals are frequently observed to have changed forever. It is not uncommon for them to leave all that the material world represents and become seekers after truth. Many who had transcended experiences with LSD in the 1960s did that very same thing. Such higher states are also attained to the experiences of love, religion, classical music or art, or through the practice of spiritual disciplines. The high state which people seek, by whatever means, is in fact the experience field of their own consciousness, self for the capital S. If they are spiritually unsophisticated and lack a context with which to comprehend the experience, they believe it is created from something out there. 
such as a guru, music, drug, lover, whatever. All that has actually happened is that under special circumstances, they have experienced their own inner reality. The majority of people are so divorced from their own states of pure consciousness that they do not recognize them when they experience them because they identify with their lower ego states. A negative self-image blots out the joyous brilliance that is the true essence of their identities, which therefore goes unrecognized. That this joyous, peaceful, fulfilling state is in reality one's own inner essence has been the basic tenet of every great spiritual teacher. The kingdom of God is within you. A high is any state of consciousness above one's customary level. Therefore, to a person who lives in fear, moving up to courage is a high. To people who live in hopelessness or apathy, anger is a high. Fear feels at least better than despair, and pride feels far better than fear. Acceptance is much more comfortable than courage, and love makes any lower state seem comparatively unattractive. While joy surpasses all lesser human emotion, ecstasy is a rarely felt emotion in a class by itself. The most sublime experience of all is the state of infinite peace at level 600 so exquisite that it belies all attempts at description. The higher the level of these states, the greater is its power to reprogram the subject's entire life. Not uncommonly, just one instant in a very high state can completely change a person's orientation to life, their goals and values. It can be said that the individual who was is no more, and a new person is born out of the experience. Through hard-won progress on a dedicated spiritual path, this is the very mechanism of spiritual evolution. The high-state experience, which may be legitimately attained through a lifetime of dedicated inner spiritual work, can, however, be reached temporarily by artificial means. But the balance of nature dictates that to artificially acquire that state without having earned it creates a debt, and the negative imbalance results in negative consequences. The cost of such stolen pleasure is the desperation of addiction, and finally both the addict and society pay a price. Ours is a society which idealizes the pleasureless, such as hard work, stoicism, self-sacrifice, restraint, and tends to condemn pleasure in most of its simpler forms, frequently even declaring them to be illegal. Politicians, whether secular or ecclesiastic, understand this phenomenon well. A ploy of local politicians to gain headlines is the public announcement of intents to prohibit pleasures in the prisons or deny the inmates tobacco or TV or magazines. In our society, unfulfilled promise and enticement are legitimized, but satisfaction is denied. Commercialized sexual allure, for instance, is used to sell many products endlessly, but the enjoyment of actual commercial sex is forbidden as immoral. Historically, all ruling classes have achieved status and wealth by controlling society through some kind of puritanical ethic. The harder underlings work and the more meager their pleasures, the richer will be the ruling system, whether they be theocracy, aristocracy, oligarchy, or corporate industry barony. Such power is built upon the forfeited pleasure of the workers. Experientially, as we have seen, pleasure is merely high energy. The energies of the masses have been co-opted over the centuries to produce for the overclasses the very wealth of pleasures denied the underclasses.
In truth, the pleasure of the life energy is mankind's best capital. Robbing man of this has resulted in the wide division between the haves and the multitudes of have-nots. What working classes envy in the lives of upper classes is their pleasures, from the pleasures of the exercise of power and its varied forms to the beautiful trophies of self-indulgence. The realization that the pleasures denied oneself are being enjoyed by others begets the outrage of revolution, or sublimated, the repression of restrictive laws against the pleasures of one's peers. New Horizons in Research Continued The moral code thus functions as a rationalized exploitation of the life energy of the masses through a calculated distortion of values. The illusion proffered is that the more hellish one's life, the more heavenly will be one's reward. The distorted coupling of pleasure with suffering has produced a morally perverse social milieu in which pain becomes associated with pleasure. In this atmosphere, the extreme alternation of suffering and euphoria that typifies addiction becomes at least provisionally tenable in a deadly antisocial game of winning and losing the forbidden high. From the same life view arises society's method of treating the problem by playing the other half of the game, denying the substance of abuse. By doing so, we have created a marketplace that is so highly lucrative and easily entered that a whole criminal industry flourishes as a result, corrupting life on multiple levels. The arrest of a drug kingpin, for instance, has no effect at all on the drug problem overall. Before he is even jailed, he will already have been replaced by a new replacement. In the recent demise of the South American drug lord Escobar, he was instantly replaced by three new kingpins, so that Hydra now had three heads instead of one. Society's drug problem requires a social approach calibrating at 350, and society's current anti-drug program calibrates at only 150. It is therefore ineffective, and the money spent is wasted. Industrial and Scientific Research the diagnostic method we have described quickly tracks fruitful areas for research and development in science and industry. Historical examples illustrate how the use of this method can save years of effort and millions of dollars. Materials Research Thomas Edison tested over 1,600 substances before he arrived at tungsten as the most suitable element to be used for his historic development of the incandescent light bulb. An easier way to detect the best material was simply to divide the possible alternatives into two groups and ask, the material I'm seeking is in this group, yes or no? After that determination, the group is again subdivided and so on. By this method, an answer can be arrived in a matter of exactly three minutes rather than years. Product Development RJR Nabisco Corporation spent approximately $350 million to research and produce a smokeless cigarette on the mistaken assumption that smoking is primarily an oral habit. In fact, it has been discovered clinically that when people go blind, they stop smoking. Smoking has multiple bases, of which oral gratification is only one, and even minor. A kinesiologic test of the market viability of any potential product, including the one mentioned, can arrive at clear conclusions regarding public acceptance and feasibility of marketing in less than a minute. Product acceptability and profitability can be ascertained very accurately 
If questions are phrased with precision and all contingencies are investigated, including timing, markets, advertising, and subpopulations to be addressed. Scientific Inquiry Science provides a field of kinesiologic exploration that offers a group of inquirers excitement eclipsing any parlor game. It is also fascinating for a group to compare what they have discovered with the discoveries of other groups using the same method. In a more general application, avenues for fruitful research can be identified quickly, and it will be discovered that often the most valuable insights to be obtained have to do with the range and dimension of the research. Because this method bypasses limitation of context, one of the most valuable uses is as a check on the process itself, i.e. whether or not it is the correct direction to take. We may thus confirm that basic premises from which inquiries originate have validity. For instance, our current search for life elsewhere in the universe takes the form of broadcasting into space the mathematical symbol pi. Implicit herein is the assumption that no civilization could develop radio reception unless it could understand that mathematical concept. But it is so enormously presumptuous to assume that life elsewhere is even three-dimensional or detectable by human senses at all, let alone be composed of discrete life units that solve problems by use of an intellect and employ symbols to communicate across space and time. Medical Science Kinesiologic diagnosis is a science in its own right, as reflected by the International College of Applied Kinesiology. Each organ of the body has its corresponding detector muscle, whose weakness signals pathology in the corresponding organ. Kinesiology is already widely used to confirm both diagnosis and the efficacy of a probable therapy. The right dose of the right medicine can also be determined by the patient's kinesiologic response. Similarly, allergies can be detected, and the need for nutritional supplements may be determined. Research in Theology, Epistemology, and Philosophy Though the validity of its application may vary with the capacity for awareness of the observer, the technique of using kinesiology to ascertain truth itself calibrates at a level of 600 as a methodology. This means that the method described itself has a degree of reliability which is beyond duality or the realm of ordinary consciousness as we know it in daily life. The level of truth of this book as a whole is approximately 750. To maintain that level throughout, the truth of every chapter, page, paragraph, etc. has been examined by use of the method described, and the statements and conclusions have been similarly verified. The confusion surrounding the nature of truth can be mitigated if we calibrate the level of truth of our questions as well as the answers. Paradoxes and ambiguities arise from confusing levels of consciousness. An answer is true only at its own level of consciousness. Thus, we may find that an answer is correct, but simultaneously invalid, like a musical note that is correctly played but at the wrong place in the score. All observations are reflections of specific levels of consciousness and are valid only on their own level. Every means of approaching a subject, therefore, has its own built-in limitations. A statement may be true at a high level of understanding, but be incomprehensible to the average mind. Its value may, therefore, be corrupted when the statement is distorted by the limitation of the listener. This has been the fate of religions throughout the ages. 
whereas statements that originate from high levels of awareness are later misinterpreted by followers who then are invested with authority. Such distortion can be seen to an extreme degree in fundamentalist sects of any religion. The fundamentalist interpretation of religious teachings proceeding from negativity is removed by this negativity from truth. The lowest depictions of deity are of a God who is jealous, vengeful, and angry, a God of death far removed from the God of mercy and love. The God of righteous negativity represents a glorification of the negative and provides for followers a disavowal of responsibility through justification of human cruelty and mayhem. Pain and suffering in general increase as one nears the bottom levels of consciousness. The truth of each level of consciousness is self-verifying in that each level has its native range of perception, which confirms what is already believed to be true. Thus, everyone feels justified in the viewpoints which underlie their actions and beliefs. That is the inherent danger of all so-called righteousness. Anyone can be righteous, from the killer who justifies his rage, to ecclesiastic demagogues and political extremists of all persuasions. By distorting context, it is possible to rationalize and justify virtually any human behavior. The human dialogue is awesome in its enormity and subtlety, reflecting the kaleidoscopic interactions of the powerful attractor energy fields which constitute man's consciousness. The brilliance of the world's great philosophers through 25 centuries has been staggering in its scope and complexity. Yet, overall, there are few areas of agreement as to the nature of truth itself. Without an objective yardstick, every individual has ever lived has had to sift through the changing reflections of life to discern their own truth. This seems a never-ending struggle to which man is condemned by virtue of his own mental design. This design predicates that any statement will be true only within a given context, despite the fact that the definitions and derivations of that context are invisible and unstated. It is as though every individual is exploring life with a compass that has a unique setting. That any meaningful dialogue at all is possible bespeaks man's enormous compassion for his own condition and attests that giving cohesion to the whole is an all-inclusive, overarching, attractive field that facilitates the manifestation of the possible into the actual. Concordance emerges from the organizing patterns hidden behind apparent chaos. Thus, the evolution of mankind progresses despite the apparently aberrant signals of individuals in any given moment. Chaos is only a limited perception. Everything is part of a larger whole. Everyone is involved in the evolution of the all-inclusive attractor field of consciousness itself. It is this evolution, innate to the overall field of consciousness, which guarantees the salvation of mankind and with it of all life. The nobility of man is expressed as his constant struggle with his own unasked-for existence in a world which is a house of mirrors, his soul support his faith in the process of life itself. Chapter 7. Everyday Critical Point Analysis The potential applications for research we have described thus far give some suggestion of the limitless uses to which this method lends itself. As the interaction of attractor fields of energy with human consciousness reveals itself 
at the interaction of mind and body, the basic level of available energy in any enterprise can be calibrated. All that is required is to have two people, one of whom is familiar with the muscle testing technique. The practical implications are staggering. This tool can be as germinal to the continuing evolution of society as any of the major discoveries of the physical sciences. Let us spell out in more detail what this could mean in everyday life. Inasmuch as the calibrated power of an identified attractor pattern is directly related to its degree of truth, it is possible to clearly distinguish truth from falsehood, constructive from destructive, the practical and efficient from the unworkable and wasteful. We can identify motive, agenda, and goal in any project or within individuals themselves. Sheep's clothing need no longer hide the wolf. As we have seen, consciousness reacts decisively to the difference between truth and falsehood. You may instantly confirm this by stating your age, which will make your arm go strong. And then if you state your incorrect age, your arm will go weak. Like a computer, consciousness simply answers zero or one, true or false. Any ambiguities in the process are introduced by the questioning method, not the answering mechanism, as we will describe later. We can identify the level of truth of any statement, belief system, or body of knowledge. We can accurately measure the truth of any sentence, paragraph, chapter, or book, including this one. We can reliably identify our own level of consciousness or motive in any enterprise. We now have available a perspective on social movements and history never before possible. Political research, for instance, is not confined only to the present. Instead, we can look back into history to make calibrations. For instance, to compare Gorbachev with Stalin, Trotsky with Lenin, and so on. In all of these exercises, kinesiology reveals the hidden implicit order by making it explicit and disclosing its true nature. The use of the system is self-educative and self-directing. Each answer it will be discovered leads to the next question, happily in an upward and beneficial direction. We discover the truth about ourselves because our questions themselves are merely the reflections of our own motives, goals, and levels of awareness. It is always informative to calibrate not the answer, but the question. In discussing the process, we must emphasize again, more specifically, some aspects of the form of questioning. Precision in wording is of paramount importance. The question might be posed, for instance, is this decision a good one? But what do we mean by the word good? Good for whom? And in what time frame? Therefore, questions have to be very carefully defined. What we think is good or bad are merely subjective, and what the universe thinks about it may be quite something else. Motive in questioning is highly significant. Always ask first, I may ask this question. Never ask a question unless you are prepared for the answer. The facts may be quite different from what you currently believe. Though there is a potential for emotional upset through the unwise use of the method, experience has shown that continuing the line of inquiry will enlarge the context and heal the disturbance. Let us say, a young woman asks, My boyfriend is honest. He is good for my life, and the answers are negative. Wow, she is disappointed to find his love is selfish and his interest exploitive. But further questions provide then a resolution. 
She asks, this relationship would end in emotional pain. The answer she gets is yes. Therefore, I am saving myself a lot of misery now by knowing this. The answer is yes. I can learn from this experience, yes, and thus we see the benefit when it is completed. On a more mundane level, the same technique can determine whether an investment is an honest one or not, or whether an institution can be trusted. We can accurately predict the potential of new developments, not only in marketing, but in medical research or engineering. We can check the safety precautions being used on great oil tankers. We can judge in advance the advisability of military strategy. We can ascertain who is really fit to govern and distinguish the statesman from the mere politician. In the case of a media event, we can instantly tell whether the interviewer or the interviewee is telling the truth, and if they are, what level of truth is being expressed. If you try this during a news hour, you may have the shocking discovery that on some occasions even all the public figures are lying. Want to tell if that's a good used car to buy? Easy. You want to find out if a salesman is telling the truth? Simple. Want to know if your new romantic interest is a good bet? You want to know if this is a reliable product, that this employee is trustworthy? What is the degree of safety of a new device? Will this device be successful or a flop? What is the integrity, skill, and competence level of a particular doctor or lawyer? Who is the best available therapist, teacher, coach, repairman, mechanic, or dentist? What levels of consciousness are required to properly discharge the duties of specific public offices? And what are the levels of the current incumbents? This capacity to instantly differentiate truth and falsehood is of such extraordinary potential value to society that we have felt it appropriate in our research to document and verify some very explicit practical applications. Current and historic events. Because the technique immediately distinguishes true from false evidence, it can resolve factual disputes, the identity of perpetrators, for instance, or the whereabouts of missing persons. The truth underlying major news events can also be revealed for instance, the guilt or innocence of victims or accusers, also the validity of historic conspiracy theories or unresolved mysteries, such as the Amelia Earhart story, the Lindbergh kidnapping, etc. Also, testimony before Senate hearings and media reports of events are verifiable in a matter of seconds. By use of this technique, for instance, it will be discovered that a major sports figure who recently served a prison term, is actually innocent, and his accuser was lying. In another recent prominent case, the accuser is telling the truth, and the accused is still holding a high office. Health research. The failure to eradicate certain diseases or find their cure is often due to the fact that reason is its own limitation. False answers often preclude searching for true causes. For instance, it is current dogma that tobacco causes cancer. Our research, on the contrary, revealed that organically grown tobacco tests kinesiologically strong, whereas commercial tobacco tests weak. Tobacco was not noted as a carcinogen before 1957, and it does so now as the result of chemicals introduced into its manufacture at the time. There are other solutions to smokers' lung cancer, Research reported in the magazine Science in 1995 indicates that one gram per day of vitamin C prevents cell damage from smoking. 
But the real solution is to identify and remove the carcinogenic chemicals from the manufacturing process. Criminal justice and police work. To know whether a witness is lying is of obvious importance in any case under investigation, but it is equally significant to discover whether the prosecution is withholding evidence, or if a jury has been tampered with, or, for that matter, is even capable of understanding the evidence. One of the most interesting applications of the technique is in crimes where there are no witnesses, and it is the word of the accuser against that of the accused. The rash of allegations of sexual crimes against prominent people is an obvious example. Public figures are very easy targets for politically motivated character assassination. And in a society where defendants are treated by the media as if proven guilty, merely by virtue of having been accused, they need public protection as much as the accusers. Statistics and methodology. Time-saving. Great amounts of money and time are spent gathering data to document what could be discerned in a matter of a few minutes. For instance, to prove the validity of the kinesiologic method itself to the skeptical, the following procedures had to be followed. Fifteen different small groups totaling 360 subjects were tested with both positive and negative stimuli. And in concordance, the statistical analysis revealed that P was less than 0.001. Secondly, seven large groups totaling 3,300 volunteers were similarly tested, and P was again less than 0.001. A third group of 325 subjects were tested individually, and in them the concurrence rate P was less than 0.001. A fourth group, 616 psychiatric patients were tested in groups and individually, and that group concordance was again P was less than 0.01. The conclusion from all the above was that the null hypothesis was rejected. By comparison, traditional methodologies are inefficient. Politics and government. Are our leaders telling us the truth? Is a political figure upholding the Constitution of the United States or subverting it for personal gain? Does a particular candidate have the unique capacity to rise to the demands of the office he or she seeks? Are facts being misrepresented by a government agency or spokesperson? Will a proposed policy actually solve the problem for which it is designed? Such practical issues can now be addressed with certitude. Political debates and public addresses can be analyzed for factuality, and proposed legislation can be assessed from a clearer perspective. Programs that are worthwhile can be definitely identified, and ineffective programs can be dropped. Commerce It is possible to diagnose an ailing business or industry and solve its problems without risking financial resources or experiments. Complete analysis of a business starts with calibrating the current and past levels of collective motivation and then the abilities of all the people concerned in its operation. Next, one may calibrate what level needs to be reached by the various departments in order to succeed. Then policies, personnel, products, supplies, Advertising, marketing, and hiring procedures can be similarly assessed. Various market strategies can then be investigated without investment in expensive market analysis, which preserves capital while saving enormous amounts of time and energy. It is wise to remember that in the conventions of commerce, like those of politics, truth has an ambiguous status. 
there is a universally accepted implicit understanding that things said to gain advantage are not held to any standard of personal honesty, a convenient conscience regarding the exaggerated claim, the bluff, the white lie, is as much a part of the garb of the marketplace as the business suit and tie. In fact, intriguingly, kinesiologic analysis commonly tells us to no longer believe an erstwhile trustworthy person once they have donned a suit and a tie. Therefore, numerous applications arise in everyday business. For instance, to determine whether a bill or invoice is accurate. A padded account will make any investigator's arm go weak, as will inferior quality or workmanship. Fraud and bogus imitations are easily detectable. The technique can quickly differentiate a bad check from a good one, a false diamond from a true gem. Chapter 7. Everyday Critical Point Analysis Continued. Science and Research. The level of truth of any scientific paper, experiment, or theory is easily determinable a great potential asset to the scientific community and the public at large. The benefits to be derived from a given direction of investigation can be ascertained in advance, as can the value of alternative avenues of research. Examination of the economics of research projects and the capabilities of investigators and equipment is also a practical value. Critical factor analysis can detect the point in the system at which the least effort is capable of producing the greatest result. Computer simulation, with all its complex and uncertain variables, is the present state-of-the-art technique for predicting developments and exploring alternative proposals. The built-in limitations of logic circuits, however, can be transcended by the kinesiologic use of the world's most advanced computer, the human nervous system. Quantum non-locality guarantees that the answers to every question are everywhere present. But this fact in itself is beyond the comprehension or capability of any conventional computer. Clinical work. In medicine, the accuracy of diagnosis as well as the efficacy of a prescribed treatment can be tested. The technique is also valuable in psychological issues where the etiology of a disorder can be quickly ascertained. One currently controversial subject of investigation that obviously suggests itself is the area of so-called repressed childhood memories of alleged sexual abuse. Facts can be quickly differentiated from false memories elicited in response to suggestion. Freud concluded that many reports of childhood incest that were reported were actually of hysterical origin, and he stopped believing them. Subsequent investigators then claimed, however, that the statements of these patients were true. Then further research indicated the report that these statements were true were themselves false, etc. Kinesiologic testing can be used to back up clinical judgments as well as scientifically controlled investigation because it can transcend the built-in design limitation of double-blind research, which can of itself create the very error it is supposed to prevent. Statistics are no substitute for truth. And in the complexity of biobehavioral phenomena, proximal antecedents can too easily become classified as ostensible causes. The real supposed cause may be the pull of the future through a hidden attractor field. Parenthesis karma in the parenthesis. Education. A profoundly telling exercise may be performed by evaluating the books in one's library. 
Simply hold them over the solar plexus and have somebody test your muscle strength. As you do this, you will notice your books will end up in two big piles, the true and the false. Reflection on the differences between the two can produce a revelation. Many testers have found it to be one of the most valuable experiences of their lives. Some even left the two piles there for a long period of time to let the lesson really sink in. It is equally informative to try the same procedure with one's music collection. The negative group will include violent, sexist, rap music, and heavy metal rock. The positive pile will contain classical music, classic rock, the Beatles included, also country western, reggae, and popular romantic ballads will be found to be positive. Spirituality Though this chapter has dealt primarily with secular uses of the tool, it should be pointed out that applications of the technique can be profoundly spiritual. We may, for instance, test the contrasting statements, I am a body, as compared to I have a body. Appropriate questions proceeding from this point can resolve one's most basic fears. All limiting self-definitions create fear because they create vulnerability. Our perceptions are essentially distorted by our own self-definition, which in turn is qualified by identifying with our limitations. Error occurs when we cling to the belief that I am that. Truth is unveiled when we see that one has that or does that instead of being that. There is great freedom in the realization that I have a body and a mind rather than I am my body or my mind. Once the fear of death is transcended, life becomes a transformed experience because that particular fear underlies all others. Few people know what it is to live without fear. But beyond fear lies joy as the meaning and purpose of existence becomes transparent. Once this realization occurs, life becomes effortless and the sources of suffering dissolve. Suffering is only the price we pay for our attachments. Empirical issues, however, are involved even in spiritual quests. In the matter of spiritual teachers, Americans are extremely naive, partly because spiritual pursuit does not have a long tradition here as it does in older cultures. That the world abounds with false gurus is well known in India, but such cynicism does not come readily to Americans. Fakes repeatedly come out of India with impressive presentations and hoodwinked naive Western spiritual aspirants who, in their childlike trust, leave home and hearth, sell their belongings, and follow the charismatic spiritual conman down a path to eventual disillusionment. The acumen of some of these gurus can be dazzling, and their capacity to mimic a convincing sincerity is amazing. They often take in even sophisticated spiritual seekers. This is spiritual seduction, a mixture of truth and falsehood blended into a slick package. The teachings sound valid if one cannot see that their truth has been distorted by a false context. Such spiritual exploitation is routinely exposed in India, where these media-hungry frauds are held in low regard and often confined to their quarters by the government should they return home. Such so-called teachers can inflict terrible suffering and tragedy. The most catastrophic depressions in clinical practice have occurred in people who have discovered that they have been spiritually deceived or raped. Such disillusionment and pain is far more severe than that which results from other losses in life, and recovery has not always been possible. The charm of all false prophets is persuasiveness. 
but use of the testing method herein described provides a foolproof safeguard against such deception. It is informative to watch TV evangelists with the sound turned off and have somebody test you. False gurus also make everyone go weak in a dramatic fashion. It is as though the universe considers spiritual rape an especially grave error. What of a true teacher? In the first place, a universal hallmark is that the true teacher never controls anyone's life in any way, instead merely explains how to advance consciousness. If we do the test, though, we will find, for instance, that Mother Teresa, recognized by the world through the Nobel Prize, calibrated at 700, as did the acknowledged Indian spiritual saint Ramana Maharshi. He went into a state of enlightenment at age 16, never left the mountain where he lived, and led a life of humble simplicity, and disregarded money, prestige, and followers, and would have remained unknown had not a well-known American writer's description of Ramana's enlightened state brought seekers from all over the world. Nowhere is spiritual fraud more prevalent than in the world of channelers and psychics. It is informative to check out the level of truth these mediums express, as well as the level of the supposed source on the other side. Sometimes the surprisingly high level of truth is in fact being taught. A level of truth which calibrates at 500 is worth listening to regardless of its origin. Because the inability to love is at the root of most human problems. Beyond the level of 500, material possessions and worldly needs becomes irrelevant, which is why true teachers neither seek nor desire material gain. Appropriate use of the system will always lead to self-discovery and growth. Eventually, it can lead us to compassion for everyone when we see how we all must struggle with the downside of human nature. Everyone is crippled in some area, and everyone is somewhere on the path of evolution, some ahead of us and some behind. In the steps we have walked are the old lessons of life, and before us are the new teachings to be learned. In actuality, there is nothing to feel guilty about and nothing to blame. There is no one to hate, but there is that which is better avoided and such blind alleys will become increasingly apparent. Everyone has chosen their own level of consciousness, yet nobody could have done otherwise at any given point in time. We can only get there from here. Every leap has to have a platform from which to originate. Pain exists to promote evolution. Its cumulative effect finally forces us in a new direction, though the mechanism may be very slow. How many times is it necessary to hit bottom? before a lesson is learned. Perhaps thousands, which may account for the sheer quantity of human suffering, so vast as to be incomprehensible. Slowly, by inches, does civilization advance. It is an interesting exercise to use our technique to reassess our society's scapegoats. For example, to calibrate the current power level of the UN and then ask what level would be required to successfully do the job for which it was designed. When we see such discrepancies spelled out in plain numbers, we may stop berating ourselves and blaming institutions, realizing they often simply do not have the requisite power to accomplish their expected tasks. Condemnation disappears with understanding, as does guilt. All judgment reveals itself to be self-judgment in the end. And when this is understood, our larger comprehension of the nature of life takes its place. That which is injurious loses its capacity to harm when it is brought into the light. 
And now nothing need remain hidden. Every thought, action, decision, or feeling creates an eddy in the interlocking, interbalancing, ever-moving energy fields of life, leaving a permanent record for all of time. This realization can be intimidating when it first dawns on us, but it becomes a springboard for rapid evolution. In this interconnected universe, every improvement we make in our private world improves the world at large for everyone. We all float on the collective level of consciousness of mankind, so that any increment we add comes back to us. We all add to our common buoyancy by our efforts to benefit life. What we do to benefit life automatically benefits all of us, because we are all included in that which is life. We are life. It is a scientific fact that what is good for you is good for me. Simple kindness to oneself and all that lives is the most powerful transformational force of all. It produces no backlash, has no downside, and never leads to loss or despair. It increases one's own true power without exacting any toll. But to reach maximum power, such kindness can permit no exceptions, nor can it be practiced with the expectation of some selfish gain or reward, and its effect is as far-reaching as it is subtle. In a universe where like goes to like and birds of a feather fly together, we attract to us that which we emanate. Consequences may come in an unsuspected way. For instance, we are kind to the elevator man, and a year later a helpful stranger gives us a hand on a deserted highway. An observable this does not cause an observable that. Instead, in reality, a shift in motive or behavior acts on a field which then produces an increased likelihood of positive responses. Our inner work is like building up a bank account, but one from which we cannot draw at our own personal will. The disposition of the funds is determined by a subtle energy field, which awaits a trigger to release this power back into our own lives. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is the story of all our lives. We all are Scrooge. We are all like Tiny Tim. All of us are selfish and lame in some areas. We are all victims like Bob Cratchit, and we are all as indignantly moralistic as Mrs. Cratchit refusing to toast Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas past haunts all of our lives. The spirit of Christmas is to come beckons us on to make the choices that will enhance both our own existence and that of others. If we calibrate the energy level of Christmas, by the way, it becomes obvious that power resides within the human heart itself. All avenues of questioning lead to the same ultimate answer. The discovery that nothing is hidden and truth stands everywhere revealed is the key to enlightenment about the simplest practical affairs and the destiny of mankind. In the process of examining our everyday lives, we can find that all our fears have been based on falsehood. The displacement of the false by the true is the essence of the healing of all things visible and invisible. And always the final question will eventually arise from every questioner. The biggest question of all, who am I? Chapter 8. The Source of Power The ultimate object of our investigation is a practical rather than an academic or philosophic understanding, although certain philosophic conclusions can immediately be drawn from even a brief analysis of power and force. 
From a practical viewpoint, before proceeding, we need to know what is the intrinsic source of power and how it operates. What accounts for its greater strengths? Why is it that force always eventually succumbs to power? In this respect, the Declaration of Independence can provide a rewarding study. The document itself calibrates at about 700. If one goes through it sentence by sentence, the source of its power appears. It is the concept that all men are equal by virtue of the divinity of their creation, and human rights are therefore intrinsic to human creation and therefore inalienable. Interestingly enough, this is the same concept that was the source of Mahatma Gandhi's power. On examination, we will see that power arises from meaning. It has to do with motive, and it has to do with principle. Power is always associated with that which supports the significance of life itself. It appeals to that in human nature which we call noble, in contrast to force, which appeals to that which we call crass. Power appeals to that which uplifts and dignifies, that which ennobles. Force must always be justified, whereas power requires no justification. Force is associated with the partial and power with the whole. If we analyze the nature of force, it becomes readily apparent why it must always succumb to power. This is in accordance with one of the basic laws of physics. Because force automatically creates counterforce, its effect is limited by definition. We could say that force is a movement. It goes from here to there, or tries to go from here to there against opposition. Power, on the other hand, stands still. It is like a standing field that does not move. Gravity itself, for instance, does not move against anything, yet its power moves all objects within its field. The gravity field itself, however, does not move. Force always moves against something, whereas power does not move against anything. Force is intrinsically incomplete and therefore has to constantly be fed energy. Power is total and complete in and of itself and requires nothing from outside of itself. It makes no demands. It has no needs. Because force has an insatiable appetite, one might say, it constantly consumes. Power, in contrast, energizes, gives forth, supplies, and supports. Power gives life and energy. Force takes these away. We notice that power is associated with compassion and makes us feel positive about ourselves. Force is associated with judgmentalism and tends to make us feel badly about ourselves. Force always creates counterforce. Its effect is to polarize rather than to unify. Polarization always implies conflict. Its cost, therefore, is always high. Because force incites polarization, it inevitably produces a win-lose dichotomy. And because somebody always loses, enemies are always created. Constantly faced with enemies, force requires constant defense. Defensiveness is costly, invariably, whether in the marketplace, politics, or international affairs. In looking for the source of power, we have noted that it is associated with meaning, and that this meaning has to do with the significance of life itself. Force is concrete, literal, and arguable. It requires proof and support. The sources of power, however, 
are beyond argument and are not subject to proof. The self-evident is not arguable, that health is more important than disease, that life is more important than death, that honor is preferable to dishonor, that faith and trust are preferable to doubt and cynicism, that the constructive is preferable to the destructive, are all self-evident statements, not subject to proof. Ultimately, the only thing we can say about a source of power is that it just is. Every civilization is characterized by native principles. If the principles of a civilization are noble, it succeeds. If they are selfish, it falls. As the term principles may sound abstract, but the consequences of principle are quite concrete. If we examine principles, we will see that they reside in an invisible realm within consciousness itself. Although we can point out examples of honesty in the world, honesty itself as an organizing principle central to civilization is nowhere independently existent in the external world. True power, then, emanates from consciousness itself. What we see is a visible manifestation of the invisible. Pride, nobility of purpose, sacrifice for quality of life, all such things are considered inspirational and give life significance. But what actually inspires us in the physical world are things that symbolize concepts which have powerful meanings for us. Such symbols realign our motives with abstract principles. A symbol can marshal great power because of the principle which already resides within our own consciousness. Meaning is so important that when life loses meaning, suicide commonly ensues. When life loses meaning, we first go into depression. Then life becomes less meaningful, and finally we leave it. Force has transient goals. When those goals are reached, there remains the emptiness of meaninglessness. Power, on the other hand, motivates us endlessly. If our lives are dedicated, for instance, to enhancing the welfare of others and everyone we contact, our lives can never lose meaning. If the purpose of our life, on the other hand, is merely financial success, what happens after that has been attained? This is one of the primary ideologies and causes of depression in middle-aged men and women. The disillusionment of emptiness comes from failing to align one's life with the principles from which power emanates. A good illustration of this phenomenon can be seen in the lives of great musicians, composers, and musical conductors of our own times. How frequently they continue productive careers into their 80s and even 90s, often having children and living vigorously until ripe old age. Their lives have been dedicated to the creation and embodiment of beauty. Beauty incorporates and expresses enormous power. We know clinically that alignment with beauty is associated with longevity and vigor. Because beauty is a function of creativity, such longevity is common in all creative occupations. The philosophic position of reductive materialism, based on the premise that nothing is real unless it is quantifiable, is endemic in the sciences. The source of power, however, is invisible and intangible. The sophistry of logical empiricism is clear from its essential premise. To say that nothing is real unless it is measurable is already an abstract position, is it not? 
This proposition itself is nowhere tangible, neither visible nor measurable. The argument of tangibility is itself created from the intangible. Even if such a position were valid, who would want to live without pride, without honor, without love, compassion, or value? Despite the pathetic implications of this argument, let us nevertheless address it. Does power have any tangible basis? Does it proceed exclusively from the undefinable, the so-called mystical, the philosophic, the spiritual, the abstract? Is there anything more we can know about power that would make sense to those who are oriented only to that left-brain world which, regardless of its computerized sophistication, remains only a system of mechanical measurements? Before we proceed, let us remind ourselves that the most advanced artificial intelligence machines in the world are unable to feel joy or happiness. Force can bring satisfaction, but only power brings joy. Victory over others brings us satisfaction, but victory over ourselves brings us joy. But as previous chapters have shown, not only can these qualities now be measured, they can be actually calibrated. To make this fact more comprehensible to reason, let us continue our tour through some easily understood concepts from advanced theoretical physics. We need not be intimidated by these concepts. On the contrary, their implications for daily life, although profound, are quite simple. We don't have to understand the molecular structure of rubber in order to benefit from having tires on our cars. Though their proofs may be complex, Einstein's theory of relativity, Bell's theorem, and so on, can all be stated in a few easily understandable sentences. Several recently defined concepts have relevance in understanding of the nature of power. One is physicist David Bohm's theory that states there is both a visible and an invisible universe. This idea should not be daunting. Many things with which we are familiar such as x-rays, radio, and TV waves, are not visible either. An enfolded universe runs parallel to the visible unfolded universe, which is itself merely a manifestation of that enfolded invisible universe. Thus, for instance, to the idea of building the world's tallest building, martial support eventually result in an invisible concept, which eventually became the Empire State Building within the visible world. The enfolded universe is connected with human consciousness, as inspiration arises in the mind of the Creator. Bohm says meaning links mind and matter like opposite sides of a coin. Another useful concept is Rupert Sheldrake's notion of morphogenetic fields or M fields. These invisible organizing patterns act like energy templates to establish forms on various levels of life. It is because of the discreteness of M-fields that identical representations of a species are produced. Something similar to M-fields also exists in the energy fields of consciousness and underlies thought patterns and images, a phenomenon called formative causation. The idea that M-fields assist learning has been verified by wide-scale experimentation. When Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, he created a new M-field. The belief system prevailing in human consciousness had been that the four-minute mile was a limit of human possibility. Once the new M-field was created, many runners suddenly began to break the four-minute mile records. 
This occurs every time mankind breaks into a new paradigm, whether it is the capacity to fly, an M field created by the Wright brothers, or the capacity to recover from alcoholism, an M field created by the famous Bill W., the founder of AA. Once an M field is created, everyone who repeats the accomplishment reinforces the power of that M field. We are all familiar with the fact that new ideas often seem to arise in the minds of several people far removed at the same time. Somehow the M field acts as an organizing principle, like a sort of general magnetic attraction. An M field does not have to move anywhere. It is a standing energy field, which is everywhere present. Once it is created, it exists as a universally available pattern throughout the invisible universe. The next concept we need to consider in more detail is so-called chaos theory, nonlinear dynamics. Its first application was in the prediction of weather, the study of which over the centuries had established the consensus that there was no definable, predictable mathematical pattern to weather, just as it had also been determined that there was no mathematical way to prove when a dripping faucet will drip or even to explain how a droplet is formed. Chaos merely means a mass of apparently meaningless data, for instance, a bunch of dots, in which one cannot see any inherent organizing pattern. With the advent of advanced computer technology, it was discovered that inner organizing patterns could be found by computer analysis in what looked like disorganized data, and that which appears to be incoherent actually has an inner hidden coherence. Such analysis revealed patterns which often looked like the figure 8 folded back upon itself, frequently with a funnel effect, so that the graphic itself has a repeatable geometric configuration. What science has realized is what mystics have claimed throughout the centuries, that the universe is indeed coherent, unified, and organized around unifying patterns. Nonlinear dynamics has verified that there really is no chaos in the universe. The appearance of disorder is merely a function of limits of perception. This came as a disturbing revelation to left-brained people, but seems self-evident to right-brained people. Creative people merely write, paint, sculpt, or design what they already see within their own minds. We don't dance from logic, we dance from feeling patterns. We make our choices from values, and values are associated with intrinsic patterns. The accepted chain of causality, as commonly understood in the basic sciences, occurs as the well-known sequence of A causes B causes C. In this scheme of material determinism, nothing is inherently free, but only the results of something else. It is thereby limited. What this system really defines is the world of force. Force A results in force B, which is then transmitted to force C, with consequences at point D, etc. D, in turn, becomes the beginning of another series of chain reactions, ad infinitum. This is the left-brain world, mundane and predictable. It is the limited paradigm from which the conventional sciences operate, chartable, familiar, controllable, but uncreative, determined and therefore limited by the past. It is not the world of genius, but to many it feels safe. It is the world of productivity and practicality. To creative people, however, it seems pedestrian, prosaic, uninspiring, and limiting. 
It is one thing to conceive of the Empire State Building, but something else to make it happen. To make a thing happen requires motivation, and motivation is derived from meaning. Therefore, the visible and invisible worlds are linked together as we have already diagrammed it. ABC cascading down to the appearance of a sequence A causing B causing C. Here we see that the concept ABC, which is within the invisible and folded universe, will activate emergence into the visible world to result in that sequence A, arrow B, arrow C. Thus the visible world is created from the invisible world and is therefore influenced by the future. The capacity of the invisible concept to materialize is based on the power of the original concept itself. We might say that the right brain gets the pattern and the left brain makes it visible. An ABC may be either a high-energy attractor or a low-energy attractor. Certain concepts and values apparently have much greater power than others. Thus far, science has only defined that attractors may have either high or low energy. Simply stated, powerful attractor patterns make us go strong, and weak patterns make us go weak. Some ideas are so weakening that merely holding them in mind makes a test subject unable to keep up their arm at all. Other concepts are so powerful that when they are held in mind, it is impossible to force down the subject's arm with any amount of exertion. This is a universal clinical observation. Powerful patterns are associated with health. Weak patterns are associated with sickness, disease, and even death. If you hold forgiveness in mind, your arm will go very strong. If you hold revenge in mind, your arm will go weak. For our purposes, it is really only necessary to recognize that power is that which makes you go strong and that force makes you go weak. In contrast, love, compassion, and forgiveness which may be seen by some mistakenly as being submissive, are in fact profoundly empowering. Revenge, judgmentalism, and condemnation, on the other hand, inevitably make one go weak. Therefore, regardless of moral righteousness, it is a simple clinical fact that in the long run the weak cannot prevail against the strong. That which is weak falls of its own accord. Individuals of great power throughout human history have been those who have totally aligned themselves with powerful attractors. Again and again they have stated that the power they manifested was not of their own making, was not of themselves. Each has attributed the source of the power to something greater than themselves. All of the great teachers throughout the history of our species have merely taught one thing over and over. In whatever language, at whatever time, all have said simply, give up weak attractors for strong attractors. In examining these attractors, we will notice that some weak patterns tend to imitate, in form only, more powerful patterns. These we will call imitators. Thus the German people under the Third Reich were deceived by that which appeared to be patriotism with a capital P, but was really nationalism with a small p. The demagogue or the zealot tries to sell us imitators as the real thing. Demagogues, to this end, put forth a great deal of rhetoric. In contrast, those who move from power need say very little. Part 2. Work. Chapter 9. 
Power patterns in human attitudes. The ability to differentiate between high and low energy patterns is a matter of perception and discrimination that most of us learn by painful trial and error. Failure, suffering, and eventual sickness result from the influence of weak patterns. In contrast, success, happiness, and health proceed from powerful patterns. Therefore, it is well worth taking a few minutes to scan the list of contrasting patterns which have been researched and calibrated to determine their respective criteria. This listing is an educational tool which operates from the principle of closure. Reflection on the many contrasting pairs of qualities itself can initiate a consciousness-raising process so that one gradually becomes aware of patterns operating in relationships, business affairs, and all the various interactions that make up the fabric of life. On the left side of the page are adjectives describing powerful positive patterns which calibrate above 200. On the right side of the page are weak negative patterns which calibrate below 200. We can start with abundance and then see that in contrast there is that which is excessive. We can see the power of accepting as compared to the weakness of rejecting. We see the power of admitting in contrast to denying. We see the value of that which is aesthetic in contrast to that which is merely artsy. We see the power of being agreeable rather than being condescending. We see the value of allowing rather than controlling, being appreciative rather than envious, of being approving rather than critical, of attraction versus seduction. We see the value of authoritative rather than dogmatic, of being aware rather than preoccupied. We see the value of being balanced rather than extreme. We see the value of the beautiful rather than that which is only glamorous. And profoundly, we see the value of beingness in contrast to just havingness. We see the power of believing rather than insisting, brilliant rather than clever, candid rather than calculating, carefree rather than frivolous, challenged rather than impeded, charitable instead of prodigal, cheerful rather than manic, cherishing instead of prizing, choosing to instead of having to, uh, the value of being civil rather than just formal, concerned rather than judgmental, conciliatory rather than inflexible. We see the value of being confident rather than arrogant, confronting rather than harassing. We see the value of being conscious rather than unaware, of being considerate rather than indulgent, of being constructive rather than destructive, of contending rather than competing, of being courageous rather than reckless, defending rather than attacking, democratic rather than dictatorial, detached rather than removed, determined in contrast to stubborn. We see the value of being devoted rather than just possessive, of being diplomatic rather than deceptive, of doing rather than getting, of educating rather than persuading. We see the value of that which is egalitarian rather than elitist, empathetic rather than pitying encouraging rather than promoting, energetic rather than just agitated. 
enlivening rather than exhausting, envisioning rather than picturing, equal rather than superior, erotic instead of lustful, essential rather than just apparent, eternal in contrast to that which is transitory and temporal, ethical versus equivocal, excellence versus adequacy, experienced rather than cynical, fair in contrast to scrupulosity, fertile in contrast to luxuriant, flexible instead of rigid, forgiving instead of condemning, free instead of regulated, generous instead of petty, gentle instead of rough, gifted instead of just lucky, giving is greater than taking, global versus local, gracious rather than decorous, grateful rather than indebted, harmonious rather than disruptive, healing rather than irritating, helpful instead of meddling, holistic instead of just analytic, honest instead of just cash registered legal, honoring instead of enshrining, humble instead of diffident, and humorous versus somber, impartial versus righteous, ingenious instead of scheming, inspired instead of mundane, intentional instead of calculating, intuitive in contrast to literal, inventive instead of prosaic. You see the value of inviting rather than urging, being involved instead of obsessed, joyful instead of just pleasurable, just instead of punitive, kind instead of cruel, leading instead of coercing, liberating rather than restricting, long-term rather than just immediate, loyal instead of chauvinistic, merciful instead of permissive, modest instead of haughty, natural instead of artificial, noble rather than pompous, nurturing rather than draining, and observant instead of suspicious. We see the value of being open rather than secretive, optimistic rather than pessimistic, orderly in contrast to confused, outgoing instead of reserved, patient instead of avid, patriotic instead of nationalistic, peaceful instead of belligerent, polite rather than obsequious, powerful rather than forceful. We see the value of praising instead of flattering, principled rather than just expediency, to be privileged in contrast to entitled, to be prolific in contrast to barren, purposeful instead of desirous, receiving instead of grasping, releasing, freeing instead of tenacious, reliant instead of dependent, requesting instead of demanding, respectful instead of demeaning, responsible instead of guilty, satisfied instead of sated, selective instead of being exclusive, serene in contrast to just being dull, serving in contrast to ambition, and sharing in contrast to hoarding. We see significance instead of importance, sober instead of intoxicated, spontaneous instead of impulsive, spiritual versus materialistic, steadfast instead of faltering, striving instead of struggling, surrendering instead of worrying, 
tender versus being hard, thoughtful rather than pedantic, thrifty rather than just cheap, timeless instead of faddish, tolerant instead of prejudiced, tractable in contrast to contrary, trusting rather than gullible, truthful versus falsehood, unifying rather than dividing, unselfish in contrast to self-seeking, valuing instead of exploitive, virtuous instead of just being celebrated, and warm rather than feverish. Simply having heard this list or being exposed to it, you are no longer exactly the same person you were before. Merely to become acquainted with the differences between these polarities begins to increase one's inner power. With these distinctions in mind, we will start to notice things we never observed before. Such revelations occur because, as we discover, the universe favors power. Moreover, the universe does not forget there are many sides to the question of karma, but every choice of who and how to be is a choice of great consequence. All our choices reverberate through the ages. Thousands of reports of near-death experiences have been reported over the centuries, as currently reflected in such bestsellers as Brinkley's Saved by the Light or B.J. Eady's Embraced by the Light, which calibrated at 595 and therefore confirm that we shall eventually have to accept responsibility for every thought, word, and deed we beget and re-experience exactly whatever suffering we have caused others. It is in this sense that we each create our own heaven or hell. The universe holds its breath as we choose, instant by instant, which pathway to follow. For the universe, the very essence of life itself, is highly conscious. Every act, thought, and choice adds to a permanent mosaic. Our decisions ripple through the universe of consciousness to affect the lives of all. Lest this idea be considered either merely mystical or fanciful, let us remember that fundamental tenet of the new theoretical physics. Everything in the universe is connected with everything else. Our choices reinforce the formation of powerful M-fields, which are the attractor patterns that influence others. Even if one sits isolated in a cave, his thoughts influence others, whether he wishes it or not. Every act or decision you make that supports life supports all of life, including your own. The ripples we create return to us. This, which may once have seemed a metaphysical statement, is now established as a scientific confirmable fact. Everything in the universe constantly gives off an energy pattern of a specific frequency which remains for all time and can be read by those who know how. Every word, deed, and intention creates a permanent record. Every thought is known and recorded forever. There are no secrets, nothing is hidden, nor can it be. Our spirits stand naked in time for all to see. Everyone's life, finally, is accountable to the universe. Chapter 10. Power in Politics To better understand the critical difference between force and power, and the implications of this distinction for our own lives, it is helpful to examine human behavior on a larger scale. The interactions of men and governments provide many clear illustrations. Looking at history from our unique perspective, we will, of course, be reminded 
of the powerful example set by the American Revolution, which first formally established freedom as an inalienable right, setting a precedent for centuries to come. Principles which calibrate as high as 700 affect mankind over great courses of time. The pen is indeed mightier than the sword, because power originates from the mind, whereas force is rooted only in the material world. A related pivotal event in global history, to which we have already referred and we will again, came about in this century through the power of a solitary person, Mahatma Gandhi, a 90-pound so-called colored, who single-handedly overcame the British Empire, which was then the greatest force in the world, ruling two-thirds the face of the globe. Gandhi not only brought the British Empire to its knees, he effectively rang down the curtain on the centuries-old drama of colonialization, and he did it by simply standing for a principle, that is, the intrinsic dignity of man and his right to freedom, sovereignty, and self-determination. Fundamental to this principle, in Gandhi's view, was the fact that such rights derive to man by virtue of the divinity of his creation. Gandhi believed that human rights are not granted by an earthly power, but are inherent in the nature of man himself because they are inherent as a consequence of his creation. Violence is force, and because Gandhi was aligned with power rather than force, he forbade all use of violence in his cause. And because he expressed universal principles, which calibrated 700, he was able to unite the will of the people. When the will of the people is so united and aligned with universal principles, it is virtually unconquerable. Colonialism, which calibrates at 175, is founded on self-interest of the ruling country. Gandhi demonstrated for the world to witness the power of selflessness versus the force of self-interest. The same principle has now been demonstrated quite dramatically in South Africa by Nelson Mandela. Power accomplishes with ease that which force is unable to accomplish even with extreme effort. Thus, in our own time, we have seen the almost effortless toppling of communism as a governmental form. After half a century of the most ominous and ineffectual military confrontation of history, the political naivete of the Russian people, who are long used to the tyrannical rule of the czars, did not allow them the civic wisdom to understand that in the name of communism, a totalitarian dictatorship was actually being established. Similarly, the German people were deceived by Hitler, who rose to power in the name of National Socialism, only to establish a virtual tyranny. A distinctive characteristic of force in politics is that it cannot tolerate dissent. Both rulers depended on the pervasive use of force through secret police. Stalin, who also put millions to death, relied on the KGB, as Hitler had the Gestapo. Adolf Hitler assembled the greatest military machine the world had ever seen. On the simple level of force, his military was unbeatable, yet he could not defeat a tiny island across the English Channel because of the power expressed by Winston Churchill, who unified the will of his people through principles of freedom and selfless sacrifice. Churchill, parenthesis, who calibrated 510 in the parenthesis, stood for power. Hitler stood for force. When the two meet, power always eventually succeeds. In the long run, if it is deeply founded in the will of the people, power is immune to force. 
Force is seductive because it emanates a certain glamour, whether that glamour is manifested in the guise of false patriotism, prestige, or dominance, while true power very often is quite unglamorous. What could be more glamorous than the Luftwaffe and Waffen-SS of Nazi Germany during the Second World War? These elite branches embodied romance, privilege, and style, and certainly had at their disposal enormous force, the most advanced weapons of the day, and an esprit de corps that cemented their might. Such is the glamour of the formidable. The weak are attracted to, and will even die, for the glamour of force. How else could something so outrageous as war even occur? Force often seizes the upper hand temporarily, and the weak are attracted by those who seem to have overcome weakness. How else could dictatorship be possible? One characteristic of force is arrogance. Power is characterized by humility. Force is pompous. It has all the answers. Power, in contrast, is unassuming. Stalin, who studied military supremacy, has gone down in history as an arch-criminal. In contrast, the more humble Mikhail Gorbachev, who wore a plain suit and easily admitted to faults, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. Many political systems and social movements begin with true power, but as time goes on, become co-opted by self-seekers and end up relying increasingly on force until they finally fall in disgrace. The history of civilization demonstrates this repeatedly. It is easy to forget that the initial appeal of communism was idealistic humanitarianism, as was that of the union movement in the United States until it became a refuge of petty politicians. To fully comprehend the dichotomy we are discussing, it is necessary to consider the difference between a politician and a statesman. The politician, operating out of expediency, rules by force after gaining his position through the force of persuasion and rhetoric, and often calibrates at less than 200. Statesmen, on the other hand, represent true power, rule by inspiration, teach by example, and stand for self-evident principles. The statesman invokes the nobility which resides within all men and unifies them through what can best be described as the heart. Though the intellect is easily fooled, the heart recognizes truth. Where the intellect is limited, the heart is unlimited. Where the intellect is intrigued by the temporary, the heart is only concerned with the permanent. Chapter 10. Power in Politics Continued Force often relies upon rhetoric, propaganda, and specious argument to garner support and disguise underlying motivations. One characteristic of truth, though, is that it needs no defense. It is self-evident. That all men are created equal requires no justification or rhetorical persuasion. That it is wrong to gas people to death in concentration camps is self-evident. It requires no argument. The principles upon which true power is based do not require vindication, as force invariably does. There are always endless arguments about whether force is justified or not. It is clear that power is associated with that which supports life, and force is associated with that which exploits life for the gain of an individual or an organization. Force is divisive, and through that divisiveness weakens, whereas power unifies. Force polarizes. The jingoism that has such obvious internal appeal to a militaristic nation 
just as obviously alienates the rest of the world. Power attracts whereas force repels. Because power unifies, it has no true enemies, though its manifestations may be opposed by opportunists whose ends it does not serve. Power serves others, whereas force is self-serving. The true statesman serves the people. The politician exploits people to serve their own ambitions. The statesman sacrifices himself to serve others. The politician sacrifices others to serve himself. Power appeals to our higher nature and force to our lower nature. Force is limited, whereas power is unlimited. Through its insistence that the end justifies the means, force sells out freedom for expediency. Force offers quick, easy solutions. In power, the means and the end are the same, but ends require greater maturity, discipline, and patience to be brought to fruition. Great leaders inspire us to have faith and confidence because of the power of their absolute integrity and alignment with inviolate principles. Such figures understand that you cannot compromise principle and still retain your power. Winston Churchill never needed to use force with the British people. Gorbachev brought about total revolution and the largest political monolith in the world without firing a shot. Gandhi defeated the British Empire without raising a hand in anger. And we might note that the seemingly endless Middle Eastern conflict is not resolvable through violence, but eventually through communication in the long run. Democracy and the United States of America Democracy is eventually being acknowledged universally as the superior form of government. Around the globe, there is a rising call for freedom. Many nations with a heritage of repression are learning the lessons necessary for the establishment of liberty. Following conventional science, historians usually try to explain such sequences of political events through an A causes B causes C causality. This, however, is merely the apparent sequential unfolding of something with a much greater power, the ABC attractor pattern out of which a society evolves. The power of the United States or any other democracy arises from the principles upon which it is founded. Thus we can find the basis of power by examining such documents as the Constitution of the United States, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and such acknowledged expressions of the spirit of democracy as the Gettysburg Address. If we calibrate the relative power of each line of these documents, we find the highest attractor pattern of all out of which the power of the entire United States government emanates, which is in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The above statement calibrates at 700. These sentiments are echoed in the Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln reminds us, that this nation was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This also calibrates at level 700. If we examine the actions and statements of Lincoln himself during the years of the Civil War, we will find with certainty that he was devoid of hatred, he had compassion rather than malice for the South, for he understood better than anyone else that the battle was really between man's higher and lower natures. 
He therefore represented the self-evident truths he referred to and personally mourned the price that he knew had to be paid. The Declaration of Independence states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that human rights are endowed by nature of man's creation and are inalienable. They do not derive as a fiat from force, nor are they granted by any temporal ruler. Democracy recognizes the divine right of the ruled rather than just the ruler. It is not a right by virtue of title, wealth, or military superiority, but instead is a profound statement of the essence of man's nature, defining principles intrinsic to human life itself, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mahatma Gandhi's power base calibrates identically with the power base of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. All are essentially concerned with freedom, liberty, and the equality of all men by virtue of endowment by a divine higher power. Interestingly, if we calibrate the power of the attractor field of theocracy, we find it consistently lower than that of any democracy which also recognizes the Creator as the ultimate authority. The makers of the Declaration of Independence were astute in drawing a very clear distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is religious, and they must have intuitively, if not rationally known, the marked difference between the power of the two. Religion is often associated with force, sometimes disastrously so, historically and today, whereas spiritual concepts such as loyalty, freedom, and peace do not create strife or conflict, much less war. Spirituality is always associated with nonviolence. If we examine the application of the Bill of Rights today, we find that its power in several areas has dwindled. The right to freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, as well as freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, have both been eroded over the years by expediency. The spirit of the United States Constitution has become sufficiently dimmed that laws which are blatantly unconstitutional are frequently proposed and often passed without a murmur of protest. Pockets of totalitarianism exist within government itself. Our society routinely tolerates totalitarian tactics by both federal and local agencies, manifested in the conspicuous use of intimidation. Unfortunately, we have gotten so used to an atmosphere of fear and violence that it comes as a surprise to Americans abroad that the threat of government intrusion or police force does not even exist in many foreign countries. It is most important to remember that to violate principle for practical expediency is to relinquish enormous power. The rationalization that the execution of criminals deters crime, for instance, does not hold up under the study, and the end does not justify the means. The consequence of this violation of principle is reflected in the crime statistics of the United States, where a murder is so common it does not even make the front page. Because we fail to differentiate principle from expediency, the average person lacks the discernment to understand the difference between patriotism with a small p and true patriotism with a large p, or the difference between Americanism with a small a and Americanism with a large a. Likewise, between God with a small g and God with a large g, and between freedom with a small f as compared to freedom with a capital F, and liberty from liberty. Thus, Americanism is used as a justification by white supremacy groups 
who calibrated only at 150, as well as lynch mobs, just as war-mongering throughout history has been conducted in the name of God, the misinterpretation of liberty as license tells us that many people do not know the difference between freedom as license and true freedom as a principle. Learning the difference between principles and their imitators requires experience and educated judgment. The exercise of such discretion is necessary for moral survival in the modern world in general, but is imperative in those gray areas where ethical ambiguity has been elevated from convention to an art form, the political arena and the marketplace of daily commerce. Chapter 11. Power in the Marketplace Man has freedom of choice, without which there would be no accountability or responsibility. The ultimate choice, really, is whether to align with a high-energy attractor field or a low-energy attractor field. The same weak attractor patterns that have brought down governments, social movements, and entire civilizations routinely destroy organizations and careers. One makes one's choice and then takes the consequences. Nowhere are these consequences more dramatically visible than in the realm of business. Nowhere else, however, could failure be more easily avoided if a few basic concepts were clearly understood. Attractor fuels can be quickly calibrated whether it is a product, a company, an advertisement, or an employee. In our research, the differences between businesses that have failed and businesses that have succeeded have proved so marked that excellent predictive accuracy can be expected. All too often, the buyer, who could be a voter, investor, or truth seeker, as well as a purchaser, is captured by the glamour of an imitator pattern, which on the surface appears to be a high-energy attractor pattern. People are dazzled by superficial style and slick presentations, like those naive investors who bought silver only to find that the entire commodity market had been manipulated. Our notorious savings and loan fiascos and their perpetrators could easily have been identified long before the scandals surfaced. Similar disasters can be avoided by simply examining whether a business endeavor is associated with a high or a low attractor pattern. This identification can become almost instinctive once one understands the difference between the operation of force and power in commerce. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, provides a model of how power comes from aligning with high-energy attractor patterns. The ABC, which he conceived, has resulted in the A causes B causes C manifestation in the world that is the rapidly growing Walmart colossus. The basic principles involved are spelled out in the book Sam Walton by Vance Trimble. In the aisles of many of today's giant stores, there seems to be no employees whatsoever. The gross indifference to customer goodwill is shocking. Walmart's employees, in contrast, are trained to be accommodating, warm, and energetic. They are trained to reflect a humane energy field in their workplace. Their jobs have meaning and value because they are aligned with service, a commitment to the support of life and human value. All Walmart stores feature an area where you can rest your feet and decide about purchases. Such an allocation of space to meet simple human needs would not pass the scrutiny of purely scientific management calculations in terms of gross sales per square foot, but such efficiency expertise has discarded, along with human compassion, the market allegiance of millions of customers. 
Computers don't feel. More attention would be paid to feelings if it were realized that feelings determine purchases. A commercial factor of great though often unrecognized importance is the family feeling of employees, their loyalty to each other and to their organization. This is a very prominent quality in successful companies. Employees who feel nurtured and supported are those who smile genuinely at customers. Another characteristic of such an environment is low employee turnover, whereas cold and impersonal companies have very rapid employee turnover. Employee shortage is always an expression of a lower tractor energy pattern. Critical factor analysis of a large cut-rate drug chain that had just gone Chapter 11 revealed that the few dollars saved by not having extra employees at the checkout counter regularly cost thousands of dollars in sales. Such short-sightedness is common in businesses dominated by low-energy fields. To be a success, it is necessary to embrace and operate from the basic principles that produce success and to not just imitate the actions of successful people. To really do what they do, it is necessary to be like they are. Companies that have imitated some of Walmart's features in hopes of regaining market share have not been successful because they merely imitated the A-B-C instead of aligning with the ABC, that is the core concept, from which these features emanated. Our research on attractor patterns correlates closely with the conclusions arrived at by Peters and Waterman in their work In Search of Excellence, a detailed analysis of several great companies. They concluded that successful companies were those which had heart, as opposed to strictly left-brain, scientifically-managed companies. In reading this study, one cannot help but be struck by the inadequacy of many marketing survey procedures. The statisticians simply don't know what questions to ask. In addition to counting the millions the companies make, analysts might well assess the multi-millions that they did not make. A good example is the recent decline in the U.S. auto industry. One would think it would be apparent from the success of the Rolls-Royce or the Volkswagen Beetle that espousing a philosophy of planned obsolescence rather than enduring quality demonstrates a gross miscalculation. Our research indicated years ago that by following the high-energy attractor patterns we have already identified, Detroit could reclaim the auto market. Truly creative innovation is required in order to recapture the imagination of the public. An enduring quality must supplant planned obsolescence as the price of a new car approaches well over $20,000. Sensibly enough, not many Americans are happy to lay out such sums in full knowledge that that investment will shortly be lost to obsolescence. Obviously, what the depreciating car loses is not any real innate value. The inflated price of glamour and novelty does not reflect any actual worth. People will gladly pay $50,000 or more for a used Rolls-Royce, knowing that 20 years from now it will still be classic in style, mechanically sound, with a high resale value, maybe even higher than that which they paid in the first place. Our research indicates that Americans would willingly pay such high prices for cars if their intrinsic worth were equivalent to their purchase price, so as to protect the investment. And if they would run well and maintain value a long time, ideally a lifetime. For instance, a modular car, in which the motor, drivetrain, etc., were easily removable and replaceable with a lifetime guarantee, that would certainly be a sure winner. 
Attractive research tells us that customers are willing to pay for quality and that good products would sell themselves without slick advertising gimmicks. Integrity and excellence speak for themselves because they are aligned with power. One of the most profitable and simple applications of critical factor analysis is in the field of advertising. The use of the simple kinesiologic technique we have described can instantly reveal whether an advertising campaign or a given commercial makes people go weak or strong. Companies pay enormous sums to reach the greatest possible audiences, but this strategy can then backfire when a widely viewed commercial that makes viewers go weak damages the company's image. An ad that makes people go strong will always produce a positive feeling about the product rather than an aversion. Similarly, advertisers who buy time during TV programs that make people go weak will find their product unconsciously associated with these negative feelings. By analyzing a commercial in detail, one can ascertain the elements that have a weakening negative effect. Sometimes it's the voice of the announcer, the mannerisms of an actor, or the use of certain words, concepts, or symbols. That some companies repeatedly produce tasteless and even embarrassing commercials reflects low attractor feels prevalent in their advertising and marketing departments. Beyond the surface world of commerce, society provides numerous other marketplaces where fulfillment of human needs is sought, bartered, stolen, coerced, and denied. It is a simple fact of life that satisfaction of needs brings contentment. Frustration breeds violence, crime, and emotional turmoil. If the mission of government regulatory institutions were realigned to support the fulfillment of human needs, rather than mounting moralistic black-and-white campaigns to stamp out social problems, these institutions could become powerful forces for human betterment. Perceptual fields are limited by the attractor pattern with which they are associated. This means that the capacity to recognize significant factors in a given situation is limited by the context that arises from the level of consciousness of the observer. The motive of the viewer automatically determines what is seen. Causality is, therefore, ascribed to factors that are in fact a function of the biases of the observer and are not at all instrumental in the situation itself. The concept of situational ethics tells us that the right or wrong of behavior cannot be determined without reference to context. As each conditioning factor colors the picture, Shades of gray are introduced that alter the significance of the whole scenario. One indication of a low-energy attractor field is a struggle of opposites. Whereas power always results in a win-win solution, force produces win-lose situations. The consequent struggle indicates that the correct solution has not been found, as when the assertion of one's group's interests violates those of another, or the rights of the accused conflict with those of the victim. The way to finesse a high-energy attractor field solution is to seek the answer which will make all sides happy and still be practical. Such solutions involve utilization of both the ameliorative right brain as well as the judgmental left brain. One basic principle has the power to resolve the problems of the social marketplace. It may be stated thusly, support the solution instead of attacking the supposed causes. Attack is in itself inherently a very weak attractor pattern, that calibrates at about 150, leading through fear to intimidation, coercion, and eventually moral corruption. The Vice Squad becomes just that, turning city streets into jungles of crime. Objective examination reveals that most intractables 
so-called social problems, appear unsolvable due to the persistence of either sentimentality or juvenile or childish moralizing. Neither of these positions is based on truth, and therefore all approaches proceeding from them are weak. Falsehood makes us all go weak. Acting from false positions typically results in the use of force. Force is the universal substitute for truth. The gun and the nightstick are evidence of weakness. The need to control others stems from lack of power, just as vanity stems from lack of self-esteem. Punishment is a form of violence, an ineffectual substitute for power. When, as in our society, the punishment rarely fits the crime, it can hardly be effectual. Punishment is based on revenge, which represents the weak energy level at about 150. Supporting the solution of human needs, on the other hand, creates a no-cost resolution that brings serenity. Attacking the artificially created problem is always expensive in addition to criminalizing society. Only the childish proceed from the assumption that human behavior can be explained in black and white terms. Denying basic biologic needs and instinctual drives is futile. Blocking normal sexual outlets merely results in the creation of abnormal sexual outlets. The solutions to that power are the ones realistically based at the level of acceptance at calibration 350, rather than condemnation, which only calibrates at 150. In Amsterdam, for instance, one section of the city is traditionally designated as a red-light district. It's quiet and serene with a pastoral atmosphere. Its streets are safe. In Buenos Aires, parts of parks are set aside for lovers. The police patrol these areas in both countries to protect rather than harass, and in both, all is peaceful. Another example is the previously cited government inability to solve the problem of drug use. Again, the mistake is in looking at the problem moralistically and acting out of force in a punitive role. The original critical error was the failure to differentiate between hard drugs and soft drugs. Hard drugs, such as narcotics, are addicting with severe withdrawal effects and have been traditionally associated with crime. Soft recreational drugs are non-addicting, do not induce withdrawal, and are usually handled initially by amateurs. By criminalizing soft drugs, the government created a new criminal syndicate, wealthy and international in scope. When prohibition was made effective, it created shortages of cheap, relatively harmless drugs on the street, which were then quickly replaced by hard drug merchants, and the peaceful, largely innocuous drug culture became criminalized and vicious. Successful solutions are based on the powerful principle that resolution occurs not by attacking the negative, but by fostering the positive. Recovery from alcoholism cannot be accomplished by fighting intoxication, but rather by choosing sobriety. The war to end all wars did no such thing, nor could it possibly have done so. Wars, including wars on vice, on drugs, etc., or any of the basic human needs, regularly traded off the great hidden social marketplace that underlies conventional commerce, which can only be won by choosing peace. Chapter 12. Power and Sports The theoretical understanding at which we have arrived in our study of consciousness provides a context which may be applied to any field of human activity. This can be illustrated by an examination of sports, a good example because sport is so widely observed and extensively documented. Great heroes of sports have been celebrated throughout history 
at least as much as great figures in science, the arts, or any other area of cultural achievement. Sports figures symbolize for all of us the possibilities of excellence and at the level of the champion mastery. What is it in athletics that brings a crowd to its feet and commands wildly enthusiastic loyalty? At first we might think it is pride, a fascination with competition and triumph. But while these motives may produce pleasure and excitement, they cannot account for the far greater emotions of respect and awe elicited by a display of athletic excellence. What animates the crowd is an intuitive recognition of the heroic striving required to overcome human limitation and achieve new levels of prowess. High states of consciousness are also frequently experienced by athletes. It is well documented that long-distance runners frequently attain sublime states of peace and joy. This elevation of consciousness, in fact, often inspires the prolonged transcendence of pain and exhaustion necessary to achieve high levels of performance. This phenomenon is commonly described in terms of pushing oneself to the point where one suddenly breaks through a performance barrier and the activity then miraculously becomes effortless. The body then seems to move with grace and ease of its own accord, as though animated by some invisible force. The accompanying state of joy is quite distinct from the thrill of success. It is a joy of inner peace and oneness with all of life. It is notable that this transcendence of the personal self and surrender to the very essence or spirit of life often occurs at a point just beyond the apparent limit of the athlete's ability. The seeming barrier is predicated by the paradigm of one's own past accomplishments or what has been recognized as theoretically possible, such as the historic four-minute mile. Until Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, it was universally accepted that it was not humanly possible to run any faster than that. Bannister's greatness was not just in breaking the record, but in breaking through that paradigm to a new model of human possibility. This breakthrough to new levels of potential has correspondence in every field of human endeavor. In many diverse enterprises, those who have achieved greatness have given parallel accounts of the circumstances surrounding their accomplishments. We have made calibrations of various kinds of records of athletic achievement and other areas of human endeavors, such as movies. Of all the movies about sports studied, the French film, The Big Blue, produced the highest calibration. This is the story of the world's deep-sea diving champion, Jacques Mayol, the Frenchman who for many years, until very recently, held the world record. The movie calibrates at the extraordinary energy level of 700. That is the oneness of all of life. The movie itself has the capacity to put viewers into a high state of consciousness. The manager of one movie house, which showed it, described audiences wandering out of the theater, lost in silence or crying with an inner joy, which she had never seen before and could not really describe. The movie achieves an accurate depiction of the world's greatest deep-sea diver in elevated states of consciousness through the use of slow-motion photography. A subjective sensation of slow-motion beauty and grace is frequently noted in higher states. Time seems to stop, and there is an inner silence despite the noise of the world. We see throughout the film that Jacques Mayot maintains this state by the intensity of his concentration, which keeps him in an almost constant meditative condition. In this mode, he transcends ordinary human limitation, is enabled to achieve great feats through altered physiology. 
The deeper he dives, the slower is his heartbeat, and his blood distribution concentrates almost entirely in the brain, as it does, for instance, in the porpoise. His best friend in the movie, himself a highly evolved athlete, dies in the attempt to match Mayo's feet because he has not reached the level of consciousness required to transcend the normal limits or requirements of the human body. The subjective experience of effortless bliss also occurs in other types of exceptional physical performance, such as that of the world-famous Sufi dancers, also known as the whirling dervishes, who, through discipline and exhausting practice, become able to move effortlessly through space over long periods of time with dazzling precision. The most highly developed martial arts clearly demonstrated how motive and principle are of ultimate importance in extraordinary athletic achievement. The most frequently heard admonition to trainees to stop trying to use force. Schools devoted to these arts produce masters whose overriding concern is victory of the higher self over the lower self through control, training, and commitment to goals aligned with true power. Alignment with these high-power attractor fields is not limited to the exercise of the discipline itself, but becomes an entire lifestyle. Thus, when the power of the principle is transferred to the practitioner, the results begin to be manifested everywhere in their life. The hallmark of true greatness in athletic achievement is always humility, such as was exhibited by Pablo Morales after winning his gold medals in the 1992 Summer Olympics. Such athletes express gratitude, inner awe, and an awareness that their performance was not merely the result of a personal effort, that maximum personal effort brought them to the breakthrough point from which they were then transported by a greater power than that of the individual self. This typically is expressed as the discovery of some aspect of the greater self with a capital S, hitheretofore unknown or unexperienced in its pure form. Through kinesiology, we can demonstrate that if one is motivated by any of the energy fields below courage, that one goes weak. The notorious Achilles heel that brings down not just athletes, but the potentially great in all areas of human achievement is pride. Pride, calibrated at 175, not only makes the performer go weak, but cannot provide the motivational power of love, honor, or dedication to a higher principle, or even to excellence itself. If we ask a powerful athlete to hold in mind the hope of defeating his opponent, or becoming a star, or making a lot of money, or becoming famous, we will see that he goes weak, and we can put down his trained muscular arm with minimal effort. The same athlete, however, holding in mind the honor of his country or his sport or the dedication of his performance to someone he loves or even the sheer joy of maximum effort for the sake of excellence goes powerfully strong and we cannot push down his arm with even the greatest effort. Thus, the competitor motivated by pride or greed or who is interested primarily in defeating the opponent will go weak at the moment of the starting gun and be unable to achieve the maximum continued effort necessary for great achievement. At times we see an athlete start badly for such reasons, but as the contest progresses and selfish goals are forgotten, we see an improvement in his performance. We also sometimes see the opposite when an athlete starts well because he is competing for the honor of his country, his team, or of the sport itself, 
and then falter as he nears the goal and the anticipation of personal glory or triumph over a rival makes him lose strength and form. One unfortunate sequence of consciousness occurs when an athlete sets a new record during qualifying trials, arousing new personal ambitions, and then during the final competition goes to pieces to the puzzlement of the audience. If top performers are imbued with the knowledge that their excellence is not a personal accomplishment but a gift belonging to all and a demonstration of man's potential, they go strong and remain so throughout the whole event. The scale of consciousness may be seen in one aspect as a scale of ego, with the level of 200 being the fulcrum at which selfishness begins to turn to selflessness. At the rarefied plane of Olympic competition, the disastrous consequences, both in private and in public life, of motivations emanating from levels below 200 were all too clearly illustrated by the scandals at the time. Excessive zeal to capture the Olympic medal and defeat one's opponent by any means available led to the abandonment of the power of ethical principle and then descended to the grossest level of force. There could hardly be a more telling example of how submission to a negative attractor field can produce a rapid collapse of an otherwise promising athletic career. Where higher motivations toward excellence give access to the realm of grace and power, self-centered motivations of personal gain draw one almost magnetically into the realm of force. The reaping of recognition, even in the symbolic form of a medal, let alone the financial reward that may accompany it, has little to do with true athletic greatness, which proceeds from an attainment of stature of the spirit. It is this that we laud in the champion. Even if the competitor does not surrender to the lust for wealth and fame, the drive to attain dominance in one's sport, rather than to simply manifest all the excellence of which one is capable, has its own corrupting egocentric effect, entrainment by the negative forces associated with the level of pride. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with some manifestations of pride. We all may well be proud when we take the America's Cup or the Olympians win medals, but that is a different kind of pride. It is an honoring of human achievement that transcends personal pride. We honor the endeavor, not the personal accomplishment, which is only the occasion and expression of something greater, universal, and innate in the human heart. The Olympics, one of the greatest dramas of human striving, one which captures everyone's imagination, provides a context which should counteract personal pride. The whole setting inspires the competitor to move from personal pride to an esteem which is an expression of unconditional love and which honors one's opponents as well for their dedication to the same lofty principles. The media tend to exaggerate and evoke the downside of sports and undermine the athlete because celebrity status either consciously or unconsciously elicits this egotism. Great athletes need to gird themselves against this source of contamination. Humility and gratitude seem to be the only effective shield against the onslaughts of media exploitation. Athletes in the traditional martial arts employ specific exercises to overcome any tendencies towards egotism. The dedication of one's skill, performance, or career to a higher principle provides the only absolute protection. True athletic power is characterized by grace, sensitivity, inner quiet, and paradoxically, 
gentleness in the non-competitive lives of even fierce competitors. We celebrate the champion because we recognize that he has overcome personal ambition through sacrifice and dedication to a higher principle. The great become legendary when they teach by example. It is not what they have nor what they do, but what they have become that inspires all of mankind, and it is that which we honor in them. We should seek to protect their humility from the forces of exploitation that accompany a claim in the everyday world. We need to educate the public that the abilities of these athletes and their great performances are gifts to mankind to be respected and defended from the abuse of the media and corporate commerce. The Olympic spirit resides within the heart of every man and woman. Great athletes can, by example, awaken awareness of those principles in all people. These heroes and their spokesmen have a potentially powerful influence on all of mankind, literally the power to lift the world on their shoulders. The nurturing of excellence and the recognition of its value is the responsibility of all men because the quest for excellence in every area of human endeavor inspires us all towards the actualization of every form of man's yet unrealized greatness. Chapter 13, Social Power and the Human Spirit When we cheer the spirit of the true athlete, what we applaud is a demonstration of all the significances that the word spirit entails for us. Courage, tenacity, commitment, alignment with principle, demonstration of excellence, honor, respect, and humility. To inspire implies filling with spirit. Dispirited means dejected, hopeless, defeated. But what exactly does the term spirit signify? The collective totality of human experience can be comprehended by spirit in phrases such as team spirit, or when we exhort people to get into the spirit of a thing. That spirit is a highly pragmatic factor which can determine the difference between victory or defeat is well known by military commanders, coaches, and CEOs. An employee or other group member who doesn't enter the spirit of the group enterprise soon finds themselves without a job or a group. From all the above, it is clear that the term spirit refers to an unseen essence and that although its expression varies from one situation to another, the essence itself never changes. This essence is vital. When we lose our spirit, we die. We expire from lack of that which inspires. Clinically speaking, then, we can say that spirit equates with life. The energy of life itself can be termed spirit. Spirit is the aliveness that accompanies and is the expression of alignment with life energy. The power of high-energy attractor patterns is anabolic, sustains life. Their opposites are catabolic, eventually leading to death. True power equals life equals spirit, whereas force equals weakness and eventually death. When an individual has lost or lacks those qualities we term spiritual, he becomes devoid of humanity, love and self-respect, and becomes selfish and violent. When a nation veers from its alignment with the spirit of man, it can become an international criminal. It is a common error to identify spirituality with religion. We have noted that the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, clearly differentiate between the spiritual and the religious. Government is forbidden to establish any religion, lest it impair the freedom of the people. 
Yet these same documents presume that government's authority derives essentially from spiritual principles. In fact, the founders of the world's great religions would be shocked at the profoundly unspiritual deeds wrought in their names throughout history, which would make a heathen shudder. Force always distorts truth for its own self-serving purpose. Over time, the spiritual principles upon which religions are based become distorted for expedient ends such as power, money, and other worldliness. Whereas that which is spiritual is tolerant, religiosity is commonly intolerant. The former leads to peace, the latter to strife, bloodshed, and pious criminality. There remains, however, buried within every religion, the spiritual foundation from which it originated. Like religions, entire cultures are weakened when the principles on which they are based are obscured or contaminated by false interpretation. To more fully understand the nature of spirit in power and how it originates and operates as a social movement, we will do well to study a contemporary spiritual organization of enormous power and influence about which everything is of public record and one which is avowedly aligned with the spirit of man and yet flatly states that it is not a religion. This example is that of the 55-year-old organization known as Alcoholics Anonymous. In our society, we all have gotten to know something about AA, because it has become woven into the very fabric of modern society and its adherents number in the millions. It and its offshoot organizations have been estimated to affect in one way or another the lives of about 50% of Americans at this time. Even where the 12-step-based self-help programs do not analyze directly, they affect everyone indirectly because they reinforce certain values by example. Let us study the power principles upon which Alcoholics Anonymous is based and how this foundation came about historically and examine the impact these principles have within the general population as well as among members. We can look at what AA is and also what it is not and learn from both. AA is, according to its preamble, not aligned with any sect, denomination, politics, or organization. It has no opinion on outside matters. It is neither for nor against any other approach to the problem of alcoholism. It has no dues, no fees, no ceremonies, no trappings, no officers, no laws. It owns no property, has no edifices. Not only are all members equal, but all groups are autonomous and self-supporting. Even the 12 basic steps by which members recover are described only as suggestions. The use of coercion of any kind is avoided. And this is emphasized by slogans such as, Easy does it, first things first, and live and let live. Alcoholics Anonymous respects freedom in that it leaves choice up to the individual. Its identifiable power patterns are those of honesty, responsibility, humility, service, and the practice of tolerance, goodwill, and brotherhood. AA does not subscribe to any particular ethic, has no code of right and wrong, good or bad, and avoids moral judgments. AA does not try to control anyone, including its own members. What it does instead is to chart a path. It merely says to its members, if you practice these principles in all your affairs, you will recover from this grave, progressive, and incurable fatal illness and regain your health, self-respect, and the capacity to live a fruitful and fulfilling life for yourself and others. AA is the original example of the power of these principles 
to cure hopeless disease and change the destructive personality patterns of members. From this original paradigm came all subsequent forms of group therapy through the discovery that groups of people coming together on a formal basis to address their mutual problems have enormous power. There arose Al-Anon for the spouses of AA members, then Alateen for their children, then Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Parents Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, and so on. There are now close to 300 anonymous 12-step self-help organizations dealing with every aspect and form of human suffering. Americans, as a result of all this, have now largely turned from condemning self-destructive behaviors to recognizing that these conditions are indeed curable illnesses. From a practical viewpoint, the sizable impact of self-help organizations on society can be counted not only in the relief of human suffering and the reconstitution of families, but also in the saving of billions of dollars. Absenteeism, automobile insurance rates, welfare, health care, and the penal system costs are all greatly moderated by the widespread behavioral change produced by this movement. The cost of state-provided counseling and group therapy alone for the millions of troubled individuals served would be staggering. The members of these organizations collectively, by the millions, unanimously agree that admitting the limitations of their individual egos allowed them to experience the true power, and that it is that power which brought about their recovery, which heretofore nothing on earth, including medicine, psychiatry, or any branch of modern science, have been able to affect. We can make some important observations from the story of how the prototype organization, AA, came into existence. Back in the 1930s, alcoholism was accepted as it had been over the centuries, as a hopeless progressive disease, which had baffled medical science and religion as well. In fact, the prevalence of alcoholism amongst the clergy itself was very alarmingly high. All forms of drug addiction were thought to be incurable, and when they reached a certain stage, victims were merely put away. In the early 1930s, a prominent American businessman, known to us as Roland H., who had sought every cure for his alcoholism without avail, went to see the famous Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Jung treated Roland for approximately a year, by which time he had achieved some degree of sobriety. Roland returned to the United States full of hope, only to fall ill again with active alcoholism. Roland went back to Switzerland to see Jung again and asked for further treatment. Jung humbly told him, that neither his science nor his art could help him any further, but that throughout man's history, rarely, but from time to time, some people who had abandoned themselves completely to some spiritual organization had surrendered to God for help and had recovered. Roland returned to the United States dejected, but he followed Young's advice, and he sought out an organization of that time called the Oxford Groups. These were groups of individuals who met regularly to discuss living life according to basic spiritual principles, very much like those adopted later by AA. Through this means, Roland in fact recovered, and his recovery was a source of astonishment to another concerned party named Edwin T., or Ebby, also an alcoholic, hopeless beyond all help. When Roland told Ebby of how he had recovered, Ebby followed suit and also got sober. The pattern of one person helping another with the same problem then extended from Ebby to his friend Bill W., who had been hospitalized frequently for hopeless and curable alcoholism and whose condition was medically grave. 
and he was described as hopeless. Abby told Bill that his recovery was based on service to others, moral house cleaning, anonymity, humility, and surrendering to a power greater than oneself. Bill W. was an atheist and found the idea of surrendering to a higher power unappealing to say the least. The whole idea of surrender was abhorrent to Bill's pride. He sank into absolute black despair. He had a mental obsession with and a physical allergy to alcohol that condemned him to sickness, insanity, and death, a prognosis which had been clearly spelled out to him and to his wife, Lois. Ultimately, Bill gave up completely, at which point he had a profound experience of an infinite presence and light and felt a great sense of peace. That night he was finally able to sleep, and when he awoke the next day, he felt as though he had been transformed in some powerful, indescribable way. The validity and efficacy of this experience was confirmed by Dr. William Silkworth, his physician on the west side of New York City. Silkworth had treated 10,000 alcoholics and in the process acquired enough wisdom to recognize the profound importance of Bill's experience. It was he who later introduced Bill to the great psychologist William James' classic book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Bill wanted to pass his gift on to others, and as he himself said, spent the next few months trying to sober up drunks, but without success. Eventually he discovered that it was necessary to convince the subject of the hopelessness of his condition, in modern psychological terms, to overcome his denial. Bill's first success was with a surgeon from Akron, Ohio, Dr. Bob, who turned out to have a great aptitude for the spiritual and became a co-founder of AA. He never took another drink until his death in 1956, nor did Bill W. until he died in 1980. The enormous power which was realized through Bill W.'s inner experience has manifested itself externally in the millions of lives which have been transformed because of it. In Life magazine's listing of the 100 greatest Americans who have ever lived, Bill W. is credited with being the originator of the entire self-help movement. The story of Bill W. is typical of individuals who have been channels of great power. The principles they convey in a brief career reorders the lives of millions over long periods of time. Jesus Christ, for instance, taught for only three short years, and yet his teachings transformed all of Western society for all generations since. Man's encounter with these teachings lies at the center of Western history for the last 2,000 years. The highest calibrations of attractor power fields, which you have discovered, have invariably been associated with the teachings of the greatest spiritual masters of history. There is always a diminution from the calibrated power of the energy level of the original teachings of the great masters to their current practice in the form of organized religion. Yet the original principles themselves retain their innate attractor power pattern. It is merely their expression which has become weaker. The teachings themselves have the same profound power that they always did. The power of a principle remains unchanged throughout time. Whether we fully understand them or not, these principles are the ideals for which mankind strives. From our own struggles to better ourselves, we learn compassion for those still in the grip of inner conflict. Out of this goes a wisdom including a compassion for the entire human condition. If we refer to the principles of advanced theoretical physics and the results of our own attractor research, 
it will be obvious that in a universe in which everything is connected with everything else, unseen power accomplishes for us things that we could never do by ourselves. As we have said before, we cannot see electricity, x-rays, or radio waves, but we know of their intrinsic power by virtue of their effects. Similarly, we constantly observe the effects of power in the world of thoughts and feelings, although until now it has not been considered possible to measure the energy or power of a thought. When we discuss high-power attractor fields, we frequently can allude to them only by means of symbols. National flags are just dyed patterns on pieces of material from a physical viewpoint, but men are willing to die for what they symbolize. Empowerment, as we have said, comes from meaning. Those things which have the greatest meaning to us arise from the spiritual and not from the material world. Thus far, we have seen that alignment with the principles associated with high-power attractor energy fields can result in Olympic achievement, success in commerce, political victory on an international level, and recovery from hopeless progressive diseases. These same attractor patterns are responsible for the finest music ever written. They are the basis of the most eminent religious teachings, the world's greatest art and architecture, and the wellspring of all creativity and genius. Chapter 14 Power in the Arts The great works of art, music, and architecture which have come down to us through the centuries are enduring representations of the effect of high-energy attractor patterns. In them we see a reflection of the commitment of the master artists of our civilization to perfection and grace, and thereby to the ennoblement of humanity. The fine arts have always provided the venue for man's highest spiritual strivings in the secular realm. As far back as the time of the sculptor Phidias in ancient Greece, it has been the role of the arts to realize, in the physical media, ideals about which man could and should be, to sit down in tangible form, accessible to all, a distilled expression of the human spirit. Great art bodies forth the ordered essence not only of human experience, but of the world we live in. It is this that we call beauty. Like the theoretical physicist, the artist finds order in apparent chaos. Where there's only a block of meaningless marble, Michelangelo sees the David or Pieta and with his chisel removes the extraneous stone to liberate that perfected image. Contemplating the random patterns of a meaningless plaster wall in the Sistine Chapel, he conceives through the inspiration of art a wondrous ABC, and then through the technique of art, he actualizes A to B to C, which we know as the Last Judgment. The bequest of the arts to man is internal, too. In beholding realized beauty, a sensitivity to the beautiful is inculcated in us, enabling us to discover and create our own aesthetic rewards in the apparently disordered jumble of existence. Art and love are man's greatest gifts to himself. There is no art without love. Art is always the making of the soul, the craft of man's touch, whether that touch is corporeal or the touch of the mind and spirit. So it has been since Neanderthal times, and so it will always be. Thus we find that computer-generated art and even great photographs never calibrate as highly as original paintings. A most interesting kinesiologic experiment, which anyone can reduplicate, is to test the strength of a person 
who is looking at an original painting and then repeat the test, looking at a mechanical reproduction of that painting. When a person looks at something that has been handcrafted, he goes strong. When he looks at a reproduction, he goes weak. And this is true regardless of pictorial content. An original of a disturbing subject will make the test subject go stronger than a copy of a pleasant subject. Dedicated artists put love into their work. There is great power in both the human touch and human originality. Therefore, kinesiology provides a fail-safe detector of art forgery. The great psychoanalyst Carl Jung emphasized over and over again the relationship of art to the dignity of man and the importance of the human spirit in art. Jung himself and his work calibrate highest of all the famous psychoanalysts of history. Many of the others, aligned with such attractor patterns as material determinism, produce much lower scores. Music is in some ways the most subtle in that it is the least concrete of the arts. However, in bypassing left-brain rationality to appeal directly to our subconscious right-brain sense of pattern, it is at the same time the most visceral and emotional. It also provides the easiest example of how attractor patterns order reality. If you wish to comprehend the difference between chaos and meaning, thereby attaining an effective definition of art, simply contemplate the difference between noise and music. A description of the creative process by the contemporary Estonian composer Arvo Part, whose work is often described as transcendental or mystical, condenses much of what we have observed regarding the crucial role of artistic genius in the unfoldment of attractor patterns. And he writes, To write, I must prepare myself for a long time. Sometimes it takes five years. In my life, my music, my work, in my dark hours, I have the certain feeling that everything outside this one thing has no meaning. The complex and many-faceted only confuses me, and I must search for unity. What is it, this one thing, and how do I find my way to it? Traces of this thing appear in many guises, and everything that is unimportant falls away. Here I am, alone with silence. I have discovered that it is enough when a single note is beautifully played. That is my goal. Time and timelessness are connected. This instant and eternity are struggling within us. Among the arts, it is music that most readily brings tears to our eyes, or brings us to our feet, or inspires us to pinnacles of love and creativity. We have already noted that longevity seems to be a corollary of association with the attractor fields of classical music, whether as performer, conductor, or composer. Classical music often demonstrates extremely high inherent power patterns. Of all the arts, architecture is the most tangible and influential in the lives of men everywhere. We shop, go to work, and seek our entertainment in buildings. Thus, the form of the structure itself, because its influence is a background to so much human activity, deserves the utmost attention. Among the world's architecture, the great cathedrals elicit a special awe. Their energy patterns have calibrated the highest among architectural forms. This appears to be the result of several factors. Our experience of cathedrals can combine a number of arts simultaneously. Music, sculpture, painting, spatial design. Moreover, these edifices are dedicated to the divine. That which is begotten in the name of the Creator is aligned with the highest attractor patterns of all. 
The cathedral not only inspires, but unifies, teaches, symbolizes, and serves all that is noblest in man. Beauty and architecture, however, need not be expansive nor grand in scale. There are few architectural settings more charming than the little thatched cottages dotting the Irish countryside, each one more quaint and picturesque than the last. Innate appreciation for the aesthetic allows in much traditional domestic architecture elegant statements of beauty via simplicity. Well-conceived public architecture speaks with historical authenticity of the beauty of line combined with utility. Function and beauty are impressively joined in the great subway stations of Russia and in the design and layout of many new high-rise apartment buildings in Canada. Older cultures seem always to have known the practicality of beauty, that that which is designed without beauty quickly deteriorates. An architecturally ugly neighborhood becomes part of a feedback loop of blight and violence. The sleazy, dehumanized housing projects of urban ghettos manifest their weak power patterns as a matrix of squalor and crime. It, though it must be remembered that depending on which attractor pattern one aligns with, the destitution of the ghetto can be an excuse for depravity or the inspiration to rise above it. It is not the facts of one's environment but one's attitude towards them that determines whether they will be the occasion for defeat or an inspiration to victory. Grace is the expression of the power of aesthetic sensitivity, and power is always manifested with grace, whether in beauty of line or style of expression. We associate grace with elegance, refinement, and economy of effort. We marvel at the grace of the Olympic athlete, just as we are uplifted by the grace of the Gothic cathedral. Gracious power patterns acknowledge and support life. They respect and uphold the dignity of others. Grace is an aspect of unconditional love. Graciousness also implies generosity, and not merely material generosity, but generosity of spirit, such as the willingness to express thanks or acknowledge the importance of others in our lives. Grace is associated with modesty and humility. Power does not need to flaunt itself, though force always must because it originates in self-doubt. Great artists are thankful for their power whatever its expression, because they know it is a gift for the good of mankind, entailing responsibility to others. Beauty has expressed itself in so many different forms and different cultures throughout various periods of time that we have good reason to say it is in the eye of the beholder. However, we should note that it is only the vehicle of beauty that changes. The essence of beauty does not change, only the form in which it is perceived. It is interesting that people of advanced consciousness are able to see beauty in all forms. To them, not only is all life sacred, but all form is beauty. Chapter 15, Genius and the Power of Creativity Creativity and genius are the center of powerful high-energy attractors. No human talents are more germane to the creation of new M-fields or the enfoldment of the enfolded universe. In fact, these are the explicit domain of creativity and genius. Yet these closely allied processes remain shrouded in mystery. There is a paucity of information about the essential nature of either creativity or genius. Human history is the record of man's struggle to comprehend truths which to those of genius appear obvious. 
Genius is by definition a style of consciousness characterized by the ability to access high-energy attractor patterns. It is not a personality characteristic. It is not something that someone has or even something that someone is. Those in whom we recognize genius commonly disclaim it. A universal characteristic of genius is humility. The genius has always attributed his insights to some higher influence. The process of animating genius most commonly involves first formulating a question, waiting an indefinite interval for consciousness to work with the problem, then suddenly the answer appears in a flash in a form which is characteristically nonverbal. Great musicians throughout history have stated they did not plan their music, but rather wrote down what they heard finished within their own minds. The father of organic chemistry, Kakul, saw the pattern of the carbon ring organic nucleus in a dream. In an illuminated moment, Einstein had the revolutionary insight, which then took him years to translate into provable mathematics. Indeed, one of the main problems of genius is how to transform that which is perceived in one's private understanding into a visible expression comprehensible to others. The revelation itself is usually complete and self-explanatory to him who receives it, but to make it so to others may take a lifetime. Genius thus seems to proceed from sudden revelation rather than from conceptualization, and there is an unseen process involved. Although the genius's mind may appear stalled and frustrated with the problem, what it really is doing is preparing the field. There is a struggle with reason, which eventually leads, like a Zen koan, to a rational impasse from which the only way forward is by a leap from a lower to a higher attractor energy pattern. Attractor energy patterns have harmonics, as do musical tones. The higher frequency the harmonic, the higher the power. What the genius arrives at is a new harmonic. Every advance in human consciousness has come through a leap from a lower attractor pattern to a higher harmonic. Posing the original question activates an attractor. The answer lies within its harmonic. This is why it is said that the question and the answer are merely two sides of one coin, and that one cannot pose a question unless the answer already exists. Otherwise, there would be no pattern from which the question could be formulated. Recognized geniuses may be rare, but genius resides within all of us. There is no such thing as luck or accident in this universe. And not only is everything connected to everything else, but no one is excluded from the universe. We are all members. Consciousness is a universal quality, like the quality of physicality. Because genius is a characteristic of consciousness, genius also is universal. That which is universal is therefore theoretically available to every man. The processes of creativity and genius are inherent in human consciousness. Inasmuch as every human has within himself the same essence of consciousness, genius is a potential that resides within everyone. It awaits only the right circumstances to express itself. Each of us has had moments of genius in our lifetimes, perhaps only known to ourselves or to those closest to us. We suddenly make a brilliant move or decision, or say exactly the right thing at the right moment, without really knowing why. Sometimes we would like to congratulate ourselves for these fortuitous events, but in truth we really do not know from whence they come. Genius often is expressed through a change of perception, a change of context or paradigm. The mind struggles with an insoluble problem, poses a question, and is open to receive an answer.
The source from which this answer comes has been given many names, varying from culture to culture and from time to time. In the arts of Western civilization, it has traditionally been identified with the Greek goddesses of inspiration called the Muses. Those who are humble and grateful for illumination received continue to have the capacity to access genius. Those who abrogate the inspiration to their own ego soon lose this capacity or are destroyed by their success. High power, like high voltage, must be handled with respect. Genius and creativity, then, are subjectively experienced as a witnessing. It is a phenomenon which bypasses the individual self or ego. The capacity to finesse genius can be learned, though often only through painful surrender, when the phoenix of genius arises out of the ashes of despair after a fruitless struggle with the unsolvable. Out of defeat comes victory, out of failure, success, and out of humbling, true self-esteem. One of the problems in attempting to understand genius is that it takes near genius to recognize it. The world frequently fails to identify genius altogether. Society often gives a claim to the work of genius without noting the intrinsic genius of its creation. Until one acknowledges the genius within oneself, one will have great difficulty in recognizing it in others. We can only see without that which we realize within. In recent times, as an example, Mikhail Gorbachev has been the subject of enormous worldwide attention, but the world did not really acknowledge his intrinsic genius. Single-handed, in only a few short years, he completely revolutionized one of the greatest empires on earth, his only source of power, his inspiration and vision. Had the communist regime been based on power, nothing could have overturned it. But because it was based on force, it was destined to come to an end under the hand of a charismatic leader aligned with power. Genius is one of the greatest untapped resources of our society. It is no more specific than it is personal. People of great gifts not infrequently have multiple talents. A genius may be a genius in different realms and might have answers to a diversity of problems. Society suffers a great loss because it does not know how to nurture its geniuses. They don't actually cost much to maintain. The source of genius is impersonal, and true genius is seldom interested in money or fame. But society, in fact, is often either indifferent or hostile to genius. The lifestyle of those whom we term genius is typically simple. Genius is characterized by an appreciation for resources and the economy of ingenuity because the genius values life and sees the intrinsic worth of all its expressions. Inasmuch as time and resources are precious, doing more than necessary is viewed as a waste. Therefore, people of genius often lead very quiet lives and only reluctantly sally forth when there is a cause that must be supported. There is no need to get when you already have. Genius, because it is in touch with an endless source of supply, experiences only a minimum of need. Such simplicity seems a common characteristic of true success in general. The basis of this non-materiality, this seeming a naivete, is a radical understanding of the nature of the universe itself. That which supports life is supported by life. Survival is thus effortless, and giving and receiving are one and the same thing. Genius is notoriously interpreted as unconventionality or eccentricity. It is true that persons of genius, 
because of their alignment with high-energy attractors, have a different perspective on life. Therefore, things have a different significance for them. The genius is frequently inspired to intense activity by insights beyond our understanding. Genius is not stardom. Those of genius who attain prominence are a very small minority. There remains a legion of geniuses who achieve no such status. Many appear in no way noteworthy and may, in fact, have never had formal higher education. What characterizes this type is the capacity to utilize exhaustively what experience they have and to capitalize on it by the dedication necessary to reach a high degree of mastery. Many productive geniuses are not recognized until years after their death. In fact, the gift or curse of genius often brings about unfortunate consequences during an individual's earthly lifetime. One characteristic of genius is the capacity for great intensity, which is often expressed in cyclic form. When inspired, the person of genius may work 20 hours a day to realize the solution while it is still fresh in mind. These periods of intense activity are interspersed with periods of apparent stasis, which are in actuality intervals of fermentation, a necessary part of the creative process. Therefore, the personality of the genius sometimes seems to incorporate polar extremes. Geniuses understand the need for creating a space for ideas to crystallize. The stage is often set by complete distraction. Creativity occurs under appropriate inner, not outer circumstances. We all know stories of people who have gotten the answers to complex problems while sitting in traffic on the freeway. A primary reason so many people fail to recognize and therefore empower their own genius is because in the popular mind, genius is confused with high IQ. This is a gross misunderstanding. It would be more helpful to see genius as simply an extraordinary high degree of savvy in a given area of human activity. The misconception about IQ has arisen from the fact that many celebrated geniuses in the fields of mathematics and physics indeed did have high IQs. However, in those fields, the IQ necessary to comprehend the work is a prerequisite. There are droves of non-cerebral artistic geniuses, musical geniuses, designers and inventors, geniuses in many fields, whose talent is that of innovative creativity within specified areas. Let us remember that IQ is merely a measure of academic capacity for logically comprehending symbols and words. The values that one lives by are more definitive of genius than IQ. From our studies, it appears that the alignment of one's goals and values with high-energy attractors is more closely associated with genius than anything else. Genius can be more accurately identified by perseverance, courage, concentration, enormous drive, and absolute integrity. Talent alone is not enough. Dedication of an unusual degree is required to achieve mastery. And in the simplest definition, one could say that genius is the capacity for an extraordinary degree of mastery in one's calling. A formula followed by all geniuses, prominent or not, is do what you like to do best and do it to the very best of your ability. Chapter 16, Surviving Success. The tragic careers of many individuals of genius subsequent to being discovered and celebrated by the public illustrates that there is success with a small s and then there is success with a capital S. The former frequently jeopardize life 
while the latter enhance it. True success enlivens and supports the spirit. It has not to do with isolated attainment, but being successful as a total person, attaining a successful lifestyle that benefits not only yourself, but everyone around you. Successful people's lives are empowered throughout by the context of their accomplishments. In contradistinction, that which the tabloid world calls success often erodes the successful person's health and relationships. Spiritual collapse is commonplace in the lives of the rich and the famous. But what the world calls success is merely celebrity, and the capacity of celebrity to destroy is documented daily. Famous people constantly succumb to failed marriages, addiction, alcoholism, suicide, or untimely death. If we listed the names of all the celebrities whose careers were blighted by such tragedies, it would fill a score of pages. As example, the movie stars Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, pop stars Elvis Presley, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, the writers Poe, London, Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald. The list goes on and on. In addition to such notorious examples of the price of celebrity, are the uncounted thousands of less famous successful lives ruined by drug problems or the twisting of personality whereby formerly decent folk become vain, cruel, self-centered, and inordinately self-indulgent. It is not just that such people have gotten too much wealth, too much fame, too much attention, but that these influences distorted their egos and reinforced what might be called the small self instead of the big self. The small self is the part of us that is vulnerable to flattery. The self with a capital S is an aspect of our more evolved nature which is humble and grateful for success. The small self aligns with weak attractor patterns. The greater self is aligned with high power energy fields. Whether it upholds or destroys us depends not upon success itself, but how it is integrated into our personalities. Whether we are proud or humble, whether we are egotistical or grateful, whether we deem ourselves better than others because of our talents, whether we consider them as a gift for which we are thankful, these are the determining factors. We all know people for whom even a bit of success is corrupting. They become arrogant, officious, and controlling when given a little authority. And we all know people of much greater authority who are cordial, sensitive, and caring. When we come to know the powerful men of the world, captains of industry, presidents of banking firms, Nobel Prize winners, and members of legendary American families, it is striking to see how many are open, warm, sincere, and view success as a responsibility, i.e., noblesse oblige. These are truly successful people, notably courteous and considerate to all, whether they are visiting potentates or talking to servants. They treat everyone as an equal. The truly successful have no inclination to act arrogantly, because they consider themselves not better but more fortunate than others. They see their position as a stewardship, a responsibility, to exercise their influence for the greatest benefit of all. What allows the truly successful to be so gracious, open, and giving can be explained through our formula of causality, in which we have an ABC, and cascading below it are three arrows, and below that we say A causing B causing C or A before and then followed by C. The truly successful identify with the ABC. 
they realize that they are a channel acted through to create success in the outer world. Inasmuch as they identify with the sources of success, they have no anxiety about losing it. But a person who views his success in the realm of the external, A causes B causes C, will always be insecure because its source is felt to be out there. Solid confidence comes from the knowledge that the source of success is within. By believing that the source of power lies outside oneself, one thereby becomes powerless and vulnerable and therefore defensive and possessive. True success originates from within, independent of external circumstances. The ladder of success seems to have three main steps. Initially, it is what we have that counts. Status depends upon visible signs of material wealth. As one progresses, status is afforded by what one does rather than has. At this level on the ladder, one's position and activities bring significant social status. But the attraction of social roles loses glamour as one achieves mastery and matures. It is what one has accomplished that is important. Finally, one is concerned only with what one has become as a result of life's experiences. Such people have a charismatic presence that is the outer manifestation of the grace of their inner power. In their company, we feel the effect of the powerful attractor energy patterns with which they are aligned and which they reflect. Success comes as the automatic consequence of aligning one's life with high-power energy patterns. Why is true success so relatively effortless? It might be likened to the magnetic field created by an electric current running through a wire. The higher the power of the current, the greater the magnetic field that it generates. And the magnetic field itself then influences everything in its presence. There are very few at the top. The world of the mediocre, however, is one of intense competition. And the bottom of the pyramid is crowded. Charismatic winners are sought out. Losers have to strive to be accepted. People who are loving, kind, and thoughtful of others have more friends than they can count. Success in every area of life is a reflex to those who are aligned with successful patterns. And the capacity to be able to discern the difference between the strong patterns of success and the weak patterns leading to failure is now available to each of us. Chapter 17, Physical Health and Power We become healthy as well as wealthy by being wise. But what is wisdom? According to our research, it is a result of alignment with high-power attractive patterns. Although in the average life we find a mixture of energy fields, the pattern with the highest power dominates. We have now explored sufficient material to be able to introduce a basic dictum of nonlinear dynamics and attractor research. Attractors create context. In essence, this means that one's motive, which arises from the principles to which one is committed, determines one's capacity to understand and thereby give significance to one's actions. The effect of alignment with principle is nowhere more striking than in its physiologic consequences. Alignment with high-energy attractor patterns results in health and with weak ones in disease. This syndrome is specific and predictable, that high-energy patterns can be proven to strengthen and low-energy patterns to weaken through a demonstration meeting the scientific criteria of 100% replicabilities is a fact with which the reader is by now thoroughly familiar. The human central nervous system clearly has an exquisitely sensitive capacity 
to differentiate between life-supportive and life-destructive patterns. High-power attractor energy fields, which makes the body go strong, release brain endorphins and have a tonic effect on all the organs, whereas adverse stimuli, which release adrenaline, suppress immune response and instantaneously cause both weakness and de-innervation of specific organs depending on the nature of the stimulus. It is this clinical phenomenon upon which treatment modalities such as chiropractic, acupuncture, reflexology, and many others are based. All of these treatments, however, are designed to correct the results of an energy imbalance unless the basic attitude which is causing the energy imbalance is corrected the illness tends to return. People by the millions in self-help groups have demonstrated that health and recovery from a whole gamut of human behavioral problems and illnesses comes as a consequence of adopting attitudes correlated with high-energy attractor patterns. Generally speaking, physical and mental health are attended upon positive attitudes, whereas ill health, both physical and mental, is associated with such negative attitudes as resentment, jealousy, hostility, self-pity, fear, anxiety, etc. In the field of psychoanalysis, these positive attitudes are called welfare emotions, and the negative ones are called emergency emotions. Chronic immersion in emergency emotions results in physical or mental ill health and a gross weakening of one's personal power. How does one overcome negative attitudes so as to avoid this atrophy of power and health? Clinical observation indicates that the patient must reach a decision point. A sincere desire for change allows one to seek higher attractor energy patterns in their various expressions. One does not get over pessimism by associating with cynics. The popular idea that you are defined by the company you keep has some clinical basis. Attractor patterns tend to dominate any field in which they are received. Thus, all that is really necessary is to expose oneself to a high energy field and one's inner attitudes will spontaneously begin to change. This is a phenomenon well known among self-help groups, as reflected in the saying, just bring the body to the meeting. If you merely expose yourself to the influence of higher patterns, they begin to rub off. As it is said, you get it by osmosis. It is generally held by traditional medicine that stress is the cause of many human disorders and illnesses. The problem with this diagnosis is that it does not accurately address the source of the stress. It looks to blame external circumstances without realizing that all stress is internally generated by one's attitudes. It is not life's events but one's reaction to them that activates the symptoms of stress. A divorce, as we have said, can be either agony or relief. Challenges on the job can result in stimulation or anxiety, depending on whether one's supervisor is seen as a teacher or as an ogre. Our attitudes stem from our positions, and our positionality has to do with motive and therefore context. According to the overall way in which we interpret the meaning of events, the same situation may be tragic or comic. Physiologically speaking, in choice of attitude, one chooses between anabolic endorphins or catabolic adrenaline and stress hormones. It would be foolish to claim that the only impacts on our health are those originating internally. Impersonal elements of the physical world can also increase or decrease our strength. Here, too, kinesiologic testing is valuable. It will clearly show that synthetics, plastics, artificial coloring, preservatives, insecticides, artificial sweeteners, to mention a few, 
make the body go weak, whereas substances which are pure, organic, or made by human hands tend to make us go strong. If we experiment with vitamin C, for example, we find that organic vitamin C is superior to chemically produced ascorbic acid. The former makes one go strong and the latter does not. Eggs from organically fed free-run chickens have much more intrinsic power than eggs from caged and chemically fed chickens. The health food movement seems to have been right all along. Unfortunately, neither the American Medical Association nor the National Council on Food and Nutrition have a history of being enlightened in the field of nutrition. The scientific community now finally recognizes that nutrition is related to behavior and health, but this simple observation caused a controversy when Linus Pauling and myself claimed 20 years ago in the book Orthomolecular Psychiatry that nutrition affects the chemical environment of the brain and bloodstream and thereby influences various behaviors, emotions, mental disorders, and brain chemistry. More recently, this author published a series of papers, the last in 1991, on a 20-year study showing that a regimen of certain vitamins prevented the development of a neurologic disorder called tardive dyskinesia, a frequently irreversible disorder, which occurs in a high percentage of patients on long-term treatment with major antipsychotics. In a study of 61,000 patients treated by 100 different doctors over a 20-year period, the introduction of vitamins B3, C, E, and B6 decreased the expected rate of this terrible neurologic disorder from 25 to 0.04%. Among 61,000 patients protected by high-dose vitamin therapy, only 37 patients, rather than the predicted nearly 20,000, developed the disorder. The paper was largely ignored in the United States because there was still no paradigm to give it credibility. The medical profession has simply been uninterested in nutrition, and organized medicine had traditionally been less than kind to innovators. It is helpful to remember that it is a foible of human nature to stoutly defend an established position despite overwhelming evidence against it. The only healthy way to deal with such lack of recognition is acceptance. Once we really understand the human condition, we will feel compassion where we once might have felt condemnation. Compassion is one of the highest of all energy attractor power patterns. As we shall see, our capacity to understand, forgive, and accept is directly linked to our personal health. Chapter 18 Wellness and the Disease Process It has been a common observation throughout the ages that certain diseases are associated with certain emotions and attitudes. The medieval concept of melancholy, for instance, connected depression with impairment of the liver. In contemporary times, many physical disorders have been clearly linked with the emotions of stress. That emotions do have physiologic consequences is well documented. In the early days of psychoanalysis, research to identify specific diseases with specific psychological conflicts gave rise to the whole field of psychosomatic medicine. We have all heard about the connection between heart disease and type A personality versus type B personalities, and of how suppressed anger results in hypertension and strokes. The presumption has been that emotions affect hormonal change through neurotransmitter variations in different areas of the brain associated with controlling different organs 
by way of the sympathetic or autonomic nervous system. In more recent years, concern over the spread of AIDS has given great impetus to research on the body's immune system. Generally, it appears that that which is experienced as stress results in suppression of the thymus gland. With this, the body's defenses are impaired. But the various research approaches to this topic fail to examine the relationship between belief systems and attitudes and the resultant context of perception, which determines the nature of individual experience. The etiology of stress is always related to the organism's proclivity to respond to stimuli in specific and characteristic patterns. Drawing on what we already know from the mathematics of nonlinear dynamics and attractor research, as clinically confirmed by kinesiology and acupuncture, we can derive a formulation of the basic nature of the disease process itself. An idea or constellation of thoughts presents itself in consciousness as an attitude which tend to persist over time. The attitude is associated with an attractor energy field of corresponding power or weakness. The result is a perception of the world, creating events appropriate to trigger the specific emotion. All attitudes, thoughts, and beliefs are also connected with various pathways called meridians of energy to all of the body's organs. Through kinesiologic testing, it can be demonstrated that specific acupuncture points are linked with specific attitudes, and the meridian, in turn, serves as the energy channel to specific muscles and body organs. These specific meridians have been traditionally named according to the organs that they energize. For instance, the heart meridian, the gallbladder meridian, etc. There is nothing mysterious about these vital internal communications, and they can be demonstrated in seconds to anyone's satisfaction. As we know, if you hold a particular negative thought in mind, a very specific muscle will go weak. If you then replace the thought with a positive idea, the same muscle will instantly go strong. The connection between mind and body is immediate. So the body's responses shift and change from instant to instant in response to one's train of thoughts and associated emotions. We have referred previously to the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions, which draws upon the science of nonlinear dynamics and its associated mathematics. We will recall that this describes the manner in which a minuscule variation in a pattern of inputs can result in a very significant change in the eventual output this is because the repetition of a slight variation over time results in a progressive change of pattern or sometimes even a leap to a new harmonic when the increment increases logarithmically. The effect of the minute variation becomes amplified until it eventually affects the whole system and an entire new energy pattern evolves, which itself may, by the same process, then result in a further variation and so on. In the world of physics, this process is called turbulence and is the subject of an enormous amount of research, especially in the field of aerodynamics, in the combined focus of physics and mathematics. Such turbulence, when it occurs in the attractor energy fields of consciousness, creates an emotional upset which continues until a new level of homeostasis is established. When the mind is dominated by a negative worldview, the direct result is a repetition of minute changes in energy flows to the various body organs. The subtle field of overall physiology is affected in all of its complex functions, mediated by electron transfer, neural, hormonal balance, nutritional status, etc. 
eventually an accumulation of infinitesimal changes becomes discernible through measurement techniques such as electron microscopy, magnetic imaging or x-ray, or biochemical analysis. But by the time these changes are detectable, the disease process is already well advanced in its own self-perpetuating resonances. We could say that the invisible universe of thought and attitude becomes visible as a consequence of the body's habitual response. If we consider the millions of thoughts that go through the mind continuously, it is not surprising that the body's condition could radically change to reflect prevailing thought patterns as modified by genetic and environmental factors. It is the persistence and repetition of the stimulus which, through the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions, results in the observable disease process. The stimulus that sets off the process may be so minute that it escapes detection itself. If this scheme of disease formation is correct, then all disease should be reversible by changing thought patterns and habitual responses. In fact, spontaneous recoveries from every disease known to mankind have been recorded throughout history. This phenomenon was the subject of ABC Network Television's 2020 show on April 8, 1994. Traditional medicine has documented spontaneous cures, but has never had the conceptual tools with which to investigate the phenomenon. But even thoroughly modern surgeons are very reluctant to operate on anyone who is convinced that he will die during the surgery because not infrequently such patients do just that. It is said in Alcoholics Anonymous that there is no recovery until the subject experiences an essential change of personality. This is the basic change first manifested by AA founder Bill W., a profound transformation in total belief system with a sudden leap in consciousness. Such a major metamorphosis in attitude was first formally studied by the psychiatrist Harry Tebow of Greenwich, Connecticut, who discovered it while treating a hopeless alcoholic woman named Marty, the first woman in AA. She underwent a sudden change of personality to a degree unaccountable through any known therapeutic method. Dr. Tebow documented that she was transformed from an angry, self-pitying, intolerant, and egocentric posture to a kind and gentle one and became forgiving and loving. Her example is important because it so clearly demonstrates this key element in recovery from any progressive or hopeless disease. Dr. Tebow wrote the first of a series of papers on this observation under the title, The Power of Surrender. In every studied case of recovery from hopeless and untreatable diseases, there has been this major shift in consciousness, so that the attractor patterns that resulted in the pathologic process no longer dominated. The steps necessary for recovery from such grave illnesses were formalized by the first 100 alcoholics who recovered, and these became the well-known 12 steps of AA and all the 12-step recovery groups that have followed. The fact that pursuing these steps has resulted in the recovery of millions of people suggests that this experience may have a universal applicability to other disease processes. The advice Dr. Carl Jung gave Rowland was, throw yourself wholeheartedly into any spiritual group that appeals to you, whether you believe in it or not, and hope that in your case a miracle may occur. And that quote may hold true for anyone who wishes to recover from a progressive disease. In spontaneous recovery, there is frequently a marked increase in the capacity to love and the awareness of the importance of love as a healing factor and modality. 
We have been told that to love is to live healthily by numerous books on the bestseller list. But the mind resists change as a matter of pride. Love of our fellow man can ensue only when we stop condemning, fearing, and hating others. Such radical change can be disoriented. The courage to endure the temporary discomfort of growth is also required. Recovery from any disease process is dependent on willingness to explore new ways of looking at oneself and life. This includes the capacity to endure inner fears when belief systems are shaken. People cherish and cling to their hates and grievances. To heal humanity, it may be necessary to pry whole populations away from lifestyles of spite, attack, and revenge. A prime difficulty with thoughts and behaviors associated with the energy fields that calibrate below 200 is that they cause counter-reaction. A familial law of the observable universe is that force results in equal and opposite counterforce. All attacks, therefore, whether mental or physical, result in counterattack. Malice literally makes us sick. We are always the victims of our own spite. Even secret hostile thoughts result in a physiologic attack on one's own body. On the other hand, like love, laughter heals because it arises through viewing a small context from a larger and more inclusive one, which removes the observer from the victim posture. Every joke reminds us that our reality is transcendent beyond the specifics of events. Gallo's humor, for instance, is based on the juxtaposition of the opposites of a paradox. The relief of basic anxiety then results in a laugh. One of the frequent accompaniments of sudden enlightening realization is laughter. The cosmic joke is the side-by-side -side comparison of illusion with reality. Humorlessness, in contrast, is inimical to health and happiness. Totalitarian systems are notably devoid of humor at every level. Laughter, which brings acceptance and freedom, is a threat to their rule through force and intimidation. It is hard to oppress people who have a good sense of humor. Beware the humorless, whether in a person, institution, or belief system. It is always accompanied by an impulse to control and dominate, even if its proclaimed objective is to create prosperity or peace. One cannot create peace as such. Peace is the natural state of affairs when that which prevents it is removed. Relatively few people are genuinely committed to peace as a realistic goal. In their private lives, people prefer being right at whatever cost to relationships or themselves. A self-justified positionality is the real enemy of peace. When solutions are sought on the level of coercion, no peaceful resolution is possible. The healthcare field itself demonstrates how attempts to control only compound themselves into a burgeoning bureaucratic morass. Complexity is costly, and systems are as weak and inefficient as the attitudes that underlie their construction. Systems associated with very weak attractor fields are ineffective because of their inherent dishonesty and become wasteful and cumbersome. The healthcare industry is so overburdened with fear and regulation that it can barely function. Healing from individual illness or the healing of the healthcare industry itself can only occur by the progressive steps of elevation of motive and abandonment of self-deception to attain a new clarity of vision. There are not any villains, the fault is in the misalignment of the system itself. If we say that health, effectuality, and prosperity are the natural states of being in harmony with reality, then anything less than that calls for internal scrutiny, 
rather than the projection of blame on things outside the system itself. Attractor patterns obey the laws of their own physics, even if they are not Newtonian. To forgive is to be forgiven. As we have observed repeatedly, in the universe where everything is connected with everything else, there is no such thing as an accident, and nothing is outside the universe. Because the power of the actual elements is unseen, and only the manifestation of effects is observable, there is an illusion of accidental events. A sudden and unexpected event may appear to be random and unrelated to observable causes, but its actual origin can be traced through research. A sudden illness always has discernible antecedents. Even accident proneness involves numerous small preparatory steps before the so-called accidents occur. A disease process is evidence that something is amiss in the workings of the mind, and that is where the power to effect a change resides. Treating an illness as a physical process only, within the A causes B causes C, illusionary world of effects does not correct the origin of the dysfunction and is palliative rather than curative. It is possible for a lifelong affliction to heal rapidly with a mere shift of attitude, but although this shift may seem to occur in a split second, it may take years of inner advanced preparation. We remember that the critical point in any complex system is the locus at which the least power is required to alter the whole system. A move of even one pawn on the chessboard completely changes the possibilities of the game. Every detail of the belief system that we hold has consequences for better or for worse. It is for this reason that there is no condition that is incurable or hopeless. Somewhere, sometime, somebody has recovered from it through the processes that we have described. It is instrumental not only in recovery but for any major advancement of consciousness to have compassion for oneself and all of mankind as we go through the painful struggles of evolution. Only thus do we become healers as well as healed, and only thus may we hope to be healed of any malaise, physical or spiritual. Does all this mean that if we learn to operate on the level of unconditional love we will become immortal? No, the protoplasm of the physical body is vulnerable to its own genetic programming as well as to its external environment. But from the viewpoint of consciousness level 500 and up, it appears that death itself is only an illusion and that life goes on unimpeded by the limitation of perception which results from being localized as a physical body. Consciousness is the vital energy which both gives life to the body and survives beyond the body in a different realm of existence. Part 3. Meaning. Chapter 19. The Database of Consciousness. The great Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung, noting the ubiquity of archetypal patterns and symbols, deduced that collective unconscious, a bottomless subconscious pool of all the shared experience of the whole human race, we may think of it as a vast hidden database of human awareness characterized by powerful universal organizing patterns. Such a database, comprising all the information ever available to human consciousness, implies stunning inherent capabilities. It is far more than just a giant storehouse of information awaiting retrieval process. Tapping into all that has ever been experienced anywhere in time, the great promise of the database is its capacity to know virtually anything the moment it is asked. This is the origin of all information obtained sub- or supra-rationally 
by intuition or premonition, by divination or dream or lucky guess. It is the fountainhead of genius, the well of inspiration, and the source of uncanny psychic knowledge, including foreknowledge. It is, of course, the inventory drawn upon by kinesiologic testing. Thinkers who are troubled by the notion of paranormal or non-rational knowledge usually balk at logical or illogical inconsistencies with Newtonian concepts of simultaneity, causality, time, and space. In actuality, it is a bigger universe than that. These same thinkers will scan the evening sky and find pleasure in identifying a favorite constellation. But in reality, there are no such things as constellations. That familiar patterns of stars is made up of points of light originating in totally unrelated sources some millions of light years closer or farther away, some even in different galaxies, some actually separate galaxies themselves, Many have millennia since even burned out and ceased to exist. Those lights have no spatial or temporal relationship. It is not only the shape of a dipper or a bear or a man, but only the very pattern, the constellation itself, that is projected onto the sky by the eye of the beholder. Yet the zodiac is still real because we conceive it in the first sense of the word. Astrology still exists and for many people is quite useful pragmatic tool in explaining themselves and their relationships. Why not? The database of consciousness is an infinite resource. The database behaves like an electrostatic condenser with a field of potentiality rather than like a battery with a stored charge. A question cannot be asked unless there is already the potentiality of an answer. The reason for this is that both the question and the answer are created out of the same paradigm and therefore are exactly concordant. There is no up without an already existent down. Causality occurs as simultaneity rather than as sequence. Synchronicity is the term used by Dr. Young to explain this phenomenon in human experience. As we understand from our examination of advanced physics, an event here in the universe does not cause an event there in the universe. Instead, both appear simultaneously and the sequence is that of observation itself. What is the connection between these events, then, if it is not a Newtonian linear sequence of cause and effect? Obviously, the two events are related or connected to each other in some invisible manner, but not by gravity or magnetism or a cosmic wind or an ether. They are encompassed by an attractor field of such magnitude that it includes both events. We may know this is so because otherwise the events would not be observable as events at all, much less simultaneously or as related to each other in time or supposed causality. The connection between these two events occurs only in the observer's consciousness. He sees a connection and describes a pair of events hypothesizing a relationship. This relationship is a concept that exists solely in the mind of the observer. It is not necessary that any corollary external event exist in the universe. Unless there is an underlying attractor pattern, nothing can be experienced. Thus, the entire manifest universe is its own simultaneous expression and experience of itself. Omniscience is omnipotent and omnipresent. There is no distance between the unknown and the known. The known is manifested from the unknown merely by the asking. The Empire State Building was born in the mind of its architect.
Human consciousness is the agent whereby an unseen concept is transformed into its manifest experience, such as that building, and thus frozen in time. What actually happened on 32nd Street in New York City is still there for all to see. What happened in the consciousness of its creator also stands recorded in the database for all of us to see to this day. Both exist complete, but in different sensory domains. By transferring concept into concrete and steel, the architect simply enabled the rest of us to experience his own inner vision. We supposedly normal humans are completely preoccupied with our function as transformers of concepts from the invisible level to the sensory perceptual level. Extraordinary individuals live primarily in the world of the ABC. Those who live beyond that, in the completely formless domain of pure consciousness itself, we call mystics. To such individuals, the origin of everything is obvious. They are uninterested in the process of making things visible and manifest. In everyday life, these are the creative people who spawn new enterprises and then turn over their execution and management to others. The yet more advanced mystics conclude that only their inner ABC level of awareness is real and that the observable world is a dream or illusion. It should be pointed out, however, that this is only another limited point of view. There is neither real nor non-real, only that which is. That which is, is so, from all viewpoints, or none. Existence without form is not really imaginable. Yet at the same time, it is the ultimate reality, including both the yin and the yang, the unmanifest and the manifest, the formed and the formless, the seen and the unseen, the temporal and the timeless. Thus the seeming real world is simultaneously the real world with a capital R, for that which is all possibility must include within it all which is. Creation is therefore continuous, or there could be no creation at all. To look for the beginning of creation is to proceed from an artificial notion of time. The start of something that is outside of time cannot be located in time. The Big Bang can only occur in the mind of an observer. The universe is very cooperative. Inasmuch as the universe is not different from consciousness itself, it is happy to create whatever we wish to find out there. The problem is with the concept of cause itself, which begs the question by presuming a time warp, a sequence, a string of events that would make sense. If we step outside of time, there are no causes at all. We could say that the manifest world originates out of the unmanifest. But then that again would be inferring a sequential causal series in time, i.e. unmanifest becoming manifest. Once beyond the warp of time with its implicit restrictions of comprehension to terms of mere sequence, there is no backwards or forwards. It is then just as valid to say reciprocally that the manifest universe causes the unmanifest. And at a certain level of understanding, this is demonstrably true. If, for example, we look at electrons lined up on one side of a dielectric membrane and protons lined up on the other side in an equal balance, how can we say which causes the other to line up? Similarly, though healing is a consequence of compassion, Compassion is not its cause. In an energy field of 600 or higher, almost anything has a tendency to heal. The source of all life and all form is of necessity greater than its manifestations, 
yet it is neither different from them nor separate to any degree. There is no conceptual artifact of separation between creator and created. As scripture states, that which is, was, and always will be. Time, then, is a locus of the perception of a hologram that already stands complete. It is a subjective sensory effect of a progressively moving point of view. There is no beginning nor end to a hologram. It is already everywhere complete. In fact, the appearance of being unfinished is part of its completeness. Even the phenomenon of unfoldment itself reflects a limited point of view. There is in reality no enfolded versus unfolded universe. There is actually only a becoming awareness. Our perception of events happening in time is analogous to a traveler watching the landscape unfold before him. But to say that the landscape unfolds before the traveler is merely a figure of speech. Nothing is actually unfolding. Nothing is actually becoming manifest. There is only the progression of awareness. These paradoxes dissolve in the greater paradigm which includes both opposites, wherein opposites as such are only the actual location of the observer. This transcendence of opposition occurs spontaneously at consciousness levels of 600 and above. The notion that there is a knower versus a known is in itself dualistic, and that it implies a separation between subject and object which again can only be inferred by the artificial adoption of an arbitrary point of observation. The maker of all things in heaven and earth, of all things visible and visible, stands beyond both, includes both, and is one with both. Existence is, therefore, merely a statement that awareness is aware of its awareness and of its expression as consciousness. Ontology need not be speculative. It is, after all, only the theology of existence. Anyone who is aware that he exists already has access to his highest formulations and beyond. There is only one absolute truth. All the rest are semi-facts, spawned from the artifacts of limited perception and positionality. To be or not to be is not a choice. One may decide to be this or that, but to be is simply the only fact there is. All the foregoing has been expressed at various times in man's intellectual history, by sages who have moved beyond duality in their awareness. But even then, to claim that the comprehension of non-duality of existence is superior to its realization as dual is again to fall into another illusion. There is ultimately neither duality nor non-duality. There is only awareness. Only awareness itself can state that it is beyond all concepts such as is or is not. This must be so, because is can be conceived only by consciousness itself. Awareness itself is beyond even consciousness. Therefore, it may be said that the absolute is unknowable exactly because it is beyond knowing, because it is beyond the reach of consciousness itself. Those who have attained such a state of awareness report that it cannot be described and can have no meaning for anyone without the experience of that context. Nonetheless, this is the true state of reality, universally and eternally. We merely fail to recognize it. Such a recognition is the essence of enlightenment and the final resolution of the evolution of consciousness to the point of self-transcendence. Chapter 20. The Evolution of Consciousness Thousands of calculations and innumerable calibrations drawn from kinesiologic testing 
of individuals, as well as from historical analysis, indicate that the average advance in level of consciousness throughout the global population is on an average little more than five points for a lifetime. Apparently, from untold millions of individual experiences in one's life, usually only a few lessons are ever really learned. The attainment of wisdom is apparently slow and painful, and few are willing to relinquish familiar, even if inaccurate, views. Resistance to change or growth is considerable. It would seem that most people are willing to die rather than alter those belief systems which confine them to lower levels of consciousness. If this is true, then what is the prognosis for the human condition? Is a five-point advance per generation all that can be expected? This troubling question deserves our attention. In the first place, as we can observe from the distribution of levels of consciousness throughout the world population, great masses of our species are at the low end of the evolutionary scale and still rely on forests to compensate for their actual powerlessness. More advanced cultures exhibit more variation. The Japanese capitalized on the lessons of World War II and collectively made a very major jump in their evolution. On the other hand, America's level of consciousness sank as a result of the Vietnam War. What was actually learned as yet remains to be seen. Unfortunately, our entertainment in general trades on emotional sensationalism and so gravitates towards violence. Murder is nightly family fair on television. Our children grew up on a steady metal diet of it. Americans have learned to enjoy the gruesome. The more bizarre, the better. Cruelty and havoc are becoming status quo. In the city of Phoenix, where an initiative requiring children to have parental permission to carry guns recently failed, ABC News on January 1, 1993, reported the handgun killing of a two-and-a-half-year-old by a three-year-old. It seems that society institutionalizes certain self-propagating levels of consciousness, which become an ingrained characteristic of various social strata. Nonetheless, there remains free choice, and thus a considerable potential for individual mobility and variety of experience, making available alternate options. From our study of advanced theoretical physics, nonlinear dynamics, and the nature of nonlinear equations, it is clear that, at least in theory, choice is not only possible, but inevitable. It is out of regularity that irregularity appears. All attractor patterns are connected to each other, if only by a single strand, so to speak. But how exactly do transformational choices occur? What occasions them? Who makes them and why? This is a crucial subject regarding which few principles have been defined. Growth and development are irregular and nonlinear. Practically nothing is known about the essential nature of growth or any process in nature, for that matter. No one has ever studied the nature of life itself, only its images and consequences. There simply has not been an adequate mathematics to comprehend it. Linear differential equations brought us to approximations, but not to essence. A simple sprouting seed performs incredible wonders through an intrinsic wizardry of which we have no understanding whatsoever. It is commonly observed growth, both individual and collective, can take place either slowly or suddenly. It is not limited by restraints, but by tendencies. Innumerable options are open to everyone all the time because people want the context that would make them attractive. 
One's range of choice is ordinarily limited by one's vision. Context, value, and meaning are merely different terms for a subtle web of energy patterns within an overall organizing attractor energy field, which is itself only part of a still larger one, and so on, in an infinite continuum throughout the universe, eventually including the total field of consciousness itself. While the sheer magnitude of such a complex of energy patterns seems beyond human cognizance, its totality is nonetheless comprehended by individuals whose consciousness reaches the 600 to 700 range. This gives us some idea of the enormous capacity for understanding possessed by those with advanced consciousness. The most important element in facilitating an upward movement in consciousness is an attitude of willingness, which opens up the mind through new means of appraisal to the possible validity of new hypotheses, though motives for change are as multitudinous as the innumerable facets of the human condition, they are most often found to arise spontaneously when the mind is challenged in the face of a puzzle or a paradox. Deliberately creating such an impasse is a customary device in certain disciplines, such as Zen, to finesse a leap of awareness. On our scale of consciousness, there are two critical fulcrums that allow for major advancement. The first is at level 200, the initial level of empowerment. Here arises the willingness to stop blaming and accept responsibility for one's own actions, feelings, and beliefs. So long as cause and responsibility are projected outside oneself, one must remain in the powerless mode of victimhood. The second is the 500 level, reached by accepting love and non-judgmental forgiveness as a lifestyle, exercising unconditional kindness to all persons, things, and events without exception. In 12-step recovery groups, it is said there is no such thing as a justified resentment. Even if somebody did do you wrong, you are still free to choose your response and let the resentment go. Once one makes this commitment, they begin to experience a different, more benign world as their perceptions evolved. It is initially very challenging to understand that attitudes can alter the world one experiences, and that there are numerous valid ways of experiencing it. But, as in viewing a hologram, what you see depends completely on the position from which you view it. Which position, then, is so-called reality? In fact, this is a holographic universe. Each point of view reflects a position defined by the viewer's unique level of consciousness. If you are on this side of the hologram, your perception will hardly agree with that of the observer on the other side. He must be crazy as a common reaction to such wide discrepancy. And the world is a set of holograms in limitless dimensions, not, as is often said, of mirrors, which are fixed in time and place and offer only a single reflection. Auditory experience also is part of a holographic series of attractor fields of all the sounds that ever were. The physical world is tactile, too. It has texture, color, dimension, and spatial relationships, such as position and shape. Each of these is, again, part of an underlying sequence which, with all other qualities, goes back in to the end of time, to the original source of its existence, which is now. A hologram, we might say, is in and of itself a process. There is nothing fixed in a three-dimensional hologram. And what then of a four-dimensional hologram? 
It would include all possible instances of itself simultaneously. To change seems to be to move through time. But if time itself is transcended, then there is no such thing as sequence. If all is now, there is nothing to follow from here to there. Each hologram is in itself an evolutionary projection from an endless nonlinear matrix of events which are not causally related, but instead synchronous. Then, at the perceptual level of 600 to 700, what was, what is, and what will be are comprehended wordlessly within the complete simultaneous holographic possibility. The term ineffable here begins to take on meaning. Let us attempt to understand all this better through an example. Let us imagine, for instance, a so-called bum on a street corner. In a fashionable neighborhood in a big city stands an old man in tattered clothes, all alone leaning against the corner of an elegant brownstone. Look at him from the perspective of various levels of consciousness and note the differences in how he appears. From the bottom of the scale at level 20, the level of shame, the bum looks dirty, disgusting, disgraceful. From level 30, or guilt, he would be blamed for his condition. He deserves what he gets. He's probably a lazy welfare cheat. At conscious level 50, hopelessness, his plight might appear desperate. Evidence that society can't do anything about homelessness. At level 75, or grief, the old man looks tragic, friendless, forlorn. A consciousness level of 100 of fear. We might see him as threatening, a social menace. Perhaps we should call the police before he commits some crime, we think. At 125 desire, he might represent a frustrating problem. Why doesn't somebody do something? At level 150, or anger, the old man might look like he could be violent, or on the other hand, one could be furious that such a condition exists. At 175, pride, he could be seen as an embarrassment or as lacking the self-respect to better himself. At consciousness level 200, that of courage, we might be motivated to wonder if there is a local homeless shelter, or maybe he needs a job or a place to live. At level 250 or neutrality, the bum looks okay, maybe even interesting. Live and let live, we say to ourselves. After all, he's not hurting anyone. At level 310, willingness, we might decide to go down there and see what we can do to cheer him up or volunteer some time at a local mission. At level 350 or acceptance, the man on the corner appears to be intriguing. He probably has an interesting story to tell. He's where he is for reasons we may never understand. At level 400 reason, he is a symptom of the current economic and social malaise or perhaps a good subject for an in-depth psychological study and worthy of a government grant. Chapter 20. The Evolution of Consciousness Continued At the higher levels, the old man begins to look not only interesting, but friendly or even lovable. Perhaps we would then be able to see that he was, in fact, one who had transcended social limits and gone free, a joyful old guy with the wisdom of age in his face and the serenity that comes from indifference to material things. At level 600, he is revealed as one's own inner self in its temporary expression. When approached, the bum's response to these different levels of consciousness would also vary. With some people, he would feel secure. With others, frightened or dejected. Some would make him angry, others maybe even delighted. Some people he would therefore avoid, and others greet with pleasure. 
Thus it is said that that what we meet is actually a mirror. So much for the manner in which our level of consciousness decides what we see. It is equally true that having placed that construct upon the reality before us, we will react to it in a fashion predicted by the level from which we observe. External events may define conditions, but they do not determine the consciousness level of human response. We can take the more literal scene of our current penal system as an illustration. Placed in an identical, extremely stressful environment, different inmates react in ways that are very extraordinarily different according to their level of consciousness. Prisoners whose consciousness is at the lowest end of the scale sometimes attempt suicide. Others become psychotic. Some become delusional. Some in the same circumstances fall into despondency. Some go mute and stop eating. Still others sit with head in hands trying to hide tears of grief. A very frequent experience is that of fear, including paranoid defensiveness. In the same cell block, we see other prisoners with a greater degree of energy go into rage, become violent, assaultive, and homicidal. Pride is everywhere present in the form of macho bragging and struggles for dominance. By contrast, some inmates find the courage to face the truth of why they are there and begin to look at their own inner lives honestly. There are always some who just roll with the punches and try to get some reading done. At the level of acceptance, we see prisoners who seek out help and join support groups. It is not unusual for an occasional inmate to take a new interest in learning, start studying in the prison library, become a jailhouse lawyer. Some of history's most influential political books were written behind bars. A few prisoners go through a transformation of consciousness and become loving and generous caregivers to their fellows. And it is not unheard of for a prisoner aligned with higher energy fields to become deeply spiritual, even actively pursue enlightenment. How we react depends upon the world we seem to be reacting to. Who we become, as well as what we see, are both determined by perception, which can be said simply to create the perceptual experiential world. It is interesting to note that the farther down the scale of consciousness a person is, the harder it is for them to maintain eye contact. At the low end, visual contact is avoided altogether. In contrast, as we go up the scale, the ability to hold prolonged and finally almost endless gaze at great depth becomes characteristic. We are all familiar with the guarded glance of guilt, the glare of hostility, and in contrast, the unblinking open-eyedness of innocence. Power and perception go hand in hand. How then does perception work? What are its mechanics? That perception is subjectively unique is evidenced by common observation. We are all familiar with the example of a mock trial in law school, wherein different witnesses relate wildly divergent accounts of the same event. The mechanism of perception is like a movie theater in which the projector is consciousness itself. The forms on the film emulsion are the attractor energy patterns, and the moving pictures on the screen are the world that we perceive and call reality. We could say that the configurations on the film are the ABC attractor fields in mind, and the moving pictures on the screen is the A causes B causes C, which is observed as the phenomenal world. This schema provides a model for a better understanding of the nature of causality, which occurs on the level of the film, 
but not on the level of the screen. Because the world routinely applies its efforts to the screen of life at the level of A causes B causes C, these endeavors are ineffectual and costly. Causality stems from the attractor patterns of levels of energy, the ABCs of the configurations imprinted on the film of mind, which are then illuminated by the light of consciousness. The nature of the stream of consciousness is patterns of thought, perception, feeling, and memory, is the consequence of entrainment of the attractor energy field by which it is dominated. It is well to remember that this domination is volitional. It is not imposed, but is the outcome of one's own choices, beliefs, and goals. By consent, we synchronize with the field pattern, which implies specific styles of processing and influences all our decisions according to its accompanying set of values and meanings. What appears as important and exciting from one perspective, might be boring or even repulsive at another level. Truth is subjective. That fact can be seen as frightening. The current elevation of science to the status of infallible oracle is an expression of our insecure compulsion to feel that there is some kind of a measurable, universally predictable, objective world out there upon which we can truly rely. But in transcending the emotional distortions of perception, science itself creates yet another conceptual distortion due to the limitation of its parameters. Science must of necessity remove data from context in order to study it. But in the end, it is only the context which gives the data its whole significance, value, or meaning. The eventual discovery arrived at by advanced theoretical physics can be reached from any organized field of human knowledge. The more detailed one's analysis of the structure of what is supposedly out there, the more one discovers that what one is examining is, in fact, the nature of the intricate processes of consciousness which are actually originating from within. There is actually nothing out there other than consciousness itself. The habitual tendency to believe otherwise is a fundamental illusion, a vanity of the human mind, which tends always to view its transitory subject as mine. Objectively, it can be seen that thoughts really belong to the consciousness of the world. The individual mind merely processes them in new combinations and permutations. What seems to be truly original thoughts appear only through the medium of genius and are invariably felt by their authors to be found or given, not created. It may be the case that we are each unique. There is no two snowflakes alike. However, we are still just snowflakes. We all inherit the human condition of mind in our seemingly unasked for birth. To transcend the limitation of mind, it is necessary to dethrone it from the tyranny as sole arbiter of reality. The mind's vanity confers its imprimatur of authenticity on the movie of life that it happens to view. Its very nature is to convince us that its unique view of experience is the genuine article. Each individual secretly feels that their experience of the world is their only true and accurate one. In our discussion of the levels of consciousness, we noted that one of the downsides of pride is denial. Every mind engages in denial in order to protect its supposed correctness. This begets the fixity and resistance to change, which prevents the average consciousness 
from advancing much more than five points in a lifetime. Great leaps in level of consciousness are always preceded by surrender of the illusion that, quote, I know, end of quote. Frequently, the only way one can reach this willingness is to change when one hits bottom by running out a course of action to its end in the defeat of a futile belief system. Light cannot enter a closed box. The upside of catastrophe can be an opening to a higher level of awareness. If life is viewed as a teacher, it then becomes just that. Unless the painful lessons of life with which we deal are transformed through humility into gateways to growth and development, they are wasted. We witness, we observe, we record apparent processions of experiences, but even in awareness itself, nothing actually happens. Awareness merely registers what is being experienced. It has no effect on it. Awareness is the all-encompassing attractor field of unlimited power identical with life itself. There is nothing the mind believes that is not fallacious at a higher level of awareness. The mind identifies with its content. It takes credit and blame for what it believes, for it would be humbling to the mind's vanity to admit that the only thing it is doing is experiencing. And in fact, it is only experiencing experiencing itself. The mind does not even experience the world, but only sensory reports of it. Even brilliant thoughts and deepest feelings are only experiences. Ultimately, we have but one function, to experience experiencing. The major limitation of consciousness is its innocence. Consciousness is gullible. It believes everything it hears. Consciousness is like hardware that will play back any software you put into it. We never lose the innate innocence of our own consciousness. It persists, naive and trusting, like an impressionable child. Its only guardian is the discerning awareness that scrutinizes the incoming program. Over the ages, it has been noted that merely observing the mind tends to increase one's level of consciousness. A mind which is being watched becomes more humble and begins to relinquish its claims to omniscience. A growth in awareness can then take place. With humility comes the capacity to laugh at oneself and increasingly to be less the victim of the mind and more its master as demonstrated by the famous Zen ox-herding pictures. From thinking that we are our minds, we begin to see that we have minds, and that it is the mind that has thoughts, beliefs, feelings, and opinions. Eventually, we may arrive at the insight that all our thoughts are merely borrowed from the great database of consciousness, and we're never really our own to begin with. Prevailing thought systems are received, absorbed, identified with, and in due time, replaced by new ideas that have become fashionable. As we place less value on such passing notions, they lose their capacity to dominate us, and we experience progressive freedom of, as well as from, the mind. This, in turn, ripens into a new source of pleasure. Fittingly, the pleasure of existence itself matures as one ascends the scale of consciousness. Chapter 21 the study of pure consciousness. Various aspects of consciousness have been the subject of traditional philosophy, and the expressions of consciousness as mind or emotion have been the subjects of the clinical sciences. But the nature of consciousness itself has never been clinically studied 
in any comprehensive sense. In medicine, the presumption that consciousness is no more than a function of the brain is reflected in such statements as, quote, the patient regained consciousness, end quote. This routine neuro depiction has assumed consciousness as a mundane physical phenomenon, a self-evident priority for experience about which nothing more need be said. The one recurrent focus of interest in the subject has been speculation regarding what happens to man's consciousness at death. Does the power of life and awareness arise from a physical basis? Does the body sustain conscious life, or is it the other way around? The power of life sustains the body. Because the way the question is asked will be defined by the questioner's preconception of causality. The level of the questioner will predetermine the nature of the answer. Each questioner will therefore derive an answer representative of what is actually merely their own level of consciousness. To the materialistic scientist, the question will appear nonsensical and a fruitless exercise in tautology. To those at the other pole, the enlightened, the question will seem comical, and the limited perception it reveals will elicit compassion. The common man might take on faith the authority of either, or of conventional religious teachings, to answer the question. All discussions of life, death, and the final fate of consciousness must necessarily reflect differences of context. The reciprocal of Descartes, I think, therefore I am, is, I am, therefore I think. Because thinking takes place as form, Descartes is correct. That which has form must already have existence in order to have form. I am is a statement of awareness witnessing that the capacity for experience is independent of form. Descartes implies that consciousness is only aware of itself when it assumes form but the enlightened throughout history have disagreed, customarily stating that consciousness is beyond form and is indeed the very omnipotent matrix out of which form arises. Modern physicists concur. For example, David Bohm in his concept of an enfolded versus an unfolded universe. Without consciousness, there would be nothing to experience form. It can also be said that form itself, as a product of perception with no independent existence, is thus transitory and limited, whereas consciousness is all-encompassing and unlimited. How could that which is transitory, with a clear beginning and ending, create that which is formless, all-encompassing, and omnipresent? However, if we see that the notion of limitation itself is merely a product of perception, with no intrinsic reality, then the riddle solves itself. Form becomes an expression of the formless. Ontologically, consciousness is an aspect of isness and beingness and is implicit in man's definition of himself as human. Humanness is only one expression of beingness. The operation of consciousness in human beings is the greater subject of our study. Although consciousness itself may be intangible, it is intrinsic to all human behavior. For purposes of this work, the problem is how to clinically explicate the connection between consciousness and behavior in an accurate and meaningful way that can be scientifically studied and validated. Fortunately, kinesiology categorically demonstrates the physical expression of sentience through the instantaneous reaction of the body to events experienced within consciousness. 
The technique affords us an elegant methodology with an unmistakably established endpoint that can be calibrated, documented, and reproduced experimentally. Characteristics of Pure Consciousness Our vision of consciousness is linked with our concept of self. The more limited the sense of self, the smaller is the parameter of experiencing. Restricted paradigms of reality are global in their effects. As an example, our studies of the so-called poor have made it evident that poorness is not just a financial condition, but that the really poor are poor in all areas of life, friendships, poor in verbal skills, poor in education, poor in social amenities, poor in resources, poor in health, and poor in overall level of happiness. Poorness, then, can be seen as a quality characteristic of a limited self-image resulting in a paucity of resources. It is not a financial condition, but a level of consciousness. The energy of that level of awareness calibrates at about 60. The identification and therefore experience of self could be limited to an identification of oneself as merely one's physical body. Then, of course, we might well ask, how does one then know that one has a physical body? Through observation, we note that the presence of the physical body is registered by the senses. The question follows, what is it then that is aware of the senses? How do we experience what the senses are reporting? Something greater, something more encompassing than the physical body has to exist in order to experience that which is lesser. And that something is mind itself. A person identifies with his body because his mind is experiencing the body. Patients who have lost sizable portions of their bodies report that their sense of self remains undiminished. Such a person will say, I am still just as much me as I ever was. The question then arises, how does one know what is being experienced by the mind? By observation and introspection, one can witness that thoughts have no capacity to experience themselves, but that something both beyond and more basic than thought experiences the sequence of thoughts, and that its sense of identity is unaltered by the content of the thoughts. What is it that observes and is aware of all the subjective and objective phenomena of life? It is consciousness itself that is both awareness and the source of experiencing. Both are purely subjective. Consciousness itself is not determined by content. Thoughts flowing through consciousness are like fish swimming in the ocean. The ocean's existence is independent of the fish. The content of the sea does not define the nature of the water. Like a colorless ray, consciousness illuminates the object witnessed. Thus, its traditional depiction throughout the world literature is with light. Identification solely with the content of consciousness accounts for the experience of self as limited. In contrast, to identify with consciousness itself is to know that one's actual self is unlimited. When circumscribed self-identifications have been surmounted so that the sense of self is identified as consciousness itself, the condition is called enlightened. One characteristic of the experience of pure consciousness is a perception of timelessness, or timelessness of perception. Consciousness is experienced as beyond all form and time, and seen as everywhere equally present. It is described as isness, 
or beingness, and in the spiritual literature as I amness. Consciousness does not recognize separation, which is the consequence of a limitation of perception. The enlightened state is of a oneness in which there is no division into separate parts. Such division is only apparent from a localized perception. It is really only incidental to a fixed point of view. Similar descriptions throughout the history of thought are in accord with the studies of William James, as reported in the famous Gifford Lectures, in the famous book, Varieties of Religious Experience. The experience of consciousness itself has been described as rare, unique, ineffable, and beyond mind, as a thought-free state of knowingness, complete, all-inclusive, with neither need nor want, beyond the limitation of experiencing a merely personalized individual self. Another attribute of pure consciousness is cessation of the ordinary flow of thought or feeling. There's also a condition of the presence of infinite power, infinite compassion, gentleness, and love. In this state, the small personal self becomes the infinite self with a capital S. There is an accompanying recognition of the very origin of the capacity to experience self as self. This awareness of self as self is the culmination of the process of eliminating limited identifications. Chapter 21. The Study of Pure Consciousness Continued The steps necessary to be taken to facilitate awareness of self with a capital S as consciousness have been well detailed historically. Numerous techniques have been prescribed to facilitate removal of obstacles to expanded awareness. These can be found in the practice of various spiritual disciplines. The one process common to all such teachings is the progressive elimination of the identification of self as finite. Enlightenment is said to be relatively rare, not so much because of the difficulty of following the necessary steps, but because it is a condition of interest to very few, particularly in modern society. If we were to stop 1,000 people on the street and ask them, what is your greatest ambition in life, how many would say, to become enlightened. Contemporary Recognition of Higher Consciousness The growing level of interest in consciousness as a scientific subject was evidenced by the first international conference on the subject entitled Toward a Scientific Basis of Consciousness, which was held at the University of Arizona, April 1994. This was an international interdisciplinary convocation of impressively credentialed scholars. However, among the numerous eminent presenters and the wide range of highly specialized subjects dealt with, there was little inquiry beyond rational materialistic explanations of consciousness as a purely physical phenomena. Parenthesis, materialistic reductionism. In fact, approaches to the subject of consciousness are as varied as human experience itself. We have cited many of the cutting-edge insights of modern inquiry into this issue in passing. It may be helpful to review the evolution of contemporary thought on this matter in order to more clearly proceed to our own conclusions. The presence of some variety of consciousness is ordinarily considered to be the distinguishing characteristic of that which is living as opposed to that which is non-living. 
Life is the expression of consciousness in the observable or experiential world of form. But the totality of human experience attests that consciousness is both manifest and unmanifest. The awareness of consciousness within form is common. The awareness of pure consciousness beyond form is exceptional. This experience of pure consciousness itself, devoid of all content, has been consistently reported throughout human history. Always the reports have been the same. Many who attained that state became great teachers of history and it profoundly influenced human behavior. Such beings, in the course of their comparatively short years, have been capable of creating a realization by millions of people over millennial periods of the contextual significance of existence itself. Because these teachings have not concerned the material world as experienced through the senses, they have been labeled spiritual or mystical. Before the recent interest of scientists in the subject, the study of consciousness was exclusively the concern of spiritual teachers and their students. But in the last 20 years, the considerable interest of numerous theoretical physicists has turned, as we have seen, to the correlation between advanced theoretical physics and the non-material universe. The deepening of popular cultural focus since the 1960s created a receptive audience for spin-offs of this exploration. In such books as Fritjof Capra's The Theo of Physics or Robert Ornstein's The Psychology of Consciousness, which are now classics, the occurrence of higher states of consciousness, traditionally thought to be extremely rare, grows more common as the M-field of the new paradigm spreads. Recent surveys indicate that approximately 65% of people report having had experiences previously categorized as strictly spiritual. Because science is, by its very nature, concerned only with observable phenomena, it has never been attracted to spiritual concepts as a subject for consideration, despite the fact that many great scientists throughout history have personally testified to subjective experiences of pure consciousness occurring in the course of and frequently crucial to their work. But the exploding field of nonlinear dynamics provoked curiosity and commentary regarding the nature of existence and consciousness itself expressed in such books as Does God Play Dice? or The Mathematics of Chaos by Ian Stewart. The new concept of a science of wholeness became the subject of popular books such as Looking Glass Universe and Turbulent Mirror by Briggs and Pete. Recently, astronomers, mathematicians, brain surgeons, and neurologists, as well as physicists, have been caught up in a tide of enthusiasm about the significance of the new discoveries. We have frequently pointed out that man is unable to observe or recognize an event until there is a prior context and language for naming the event. This inability, called paradigm blindness, is the direct consequence of a limitation of context. Thus it was that the extension of the new intellectual substructure pervading the physical sciences only slowly created the potential for new views and approaches in the human sciences, such as psychology. Although Abraham Maslow long ago discussed peak experiences, the mainstream literature of psychology never addressed the subject of consciousness itself, 
with the exception of such classics as the varieties of religious experience by William James before mentioned, which has long been the standard scientific work on the psychology of consciousness as spiritual experience. Eventually, transpersonal psychology went beyond the bounds of experimental and clinical psychology to investigate those aspects of human experience which were purely subjective. Unusual experiences or abilities, once discounted as hoaxes or hallucinations, finally became the subject of parapsychology, legitimizing experimental attempts to verify experiences such as extrasensory perception. The field of psychiatry originally arose from the attempt to address the tangible etiology of the intangibles in human behavior and disease. Psychiatry as a branch of medicine concerned itself with pathology. Therefore, it dealt almost exclusively with the lower levels of consciousness in their neurophysiologic correlates. Consciousness as such, however, remained outside the paradigm of classic psychiatry. In medicine, physicians who worked from a larger paradigm of the healing process and included non-traditional modalities in their therapeutic approaches became known as holistic practitioners, a term that at first carried distinct overtones of unprofessionalism among the ranks of the medical establishment. But the contributions of pioneering individuals in this field, especially in such areas as recovery from heart attacks, or the use of prayer to speed up recuperation in surgical patients demanded serious recognition. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross brought the attention of the professions as well as the public to the phenomena of dying and near-death experiences as reported by patients. Out-of-body experiences also eventually became a relatively common subject as surgical patients reported out-of-body adventures in which they witnessed their entire operations and heard everything that was said in the operating room. Thelma Moss became well known for her work with curling photography of energy fields, such as those around the fingertip. Her photographs of the energy body of a full leaf remaining after it had been cut into are well known. Eventually, even acupuncture has gained a place of some respect in the American health field, with many physicians learning the technique despite the fact that traditional medicine has not recognized any energies other than mechanical, electrical, or chemical. Holistic approaches operate from a different context of the nature of human consciousness than does traditional medicine, with emphasis on healing rather than just treating. And though their connection with the theoretical breakthroughs of recent decades may not appear explicit, the alternate therapies employed by holistic healthcare givers, whether physicians, alternative practitioners, or lay healers, no matter how widely they may differ in their approach and method, all have one common element. All are based on techniques to influence not protoplasm as such, but an energy field which surrounds, courses through, and influences the human body. Outside the medical domain, the phenomenal success of the 12-step self-help movement to which we have frequently alluded, has impressively established that healing can be affected through the practice of principles of consciousness. The capacity to heal desperate conditions recognized by Carl Jung in his work with Roland, the first link as we have seen in the long chain of healings that eventually became the worldwide Alcoholics Anonymous movement, lay distinctly within the realm of higher consciousness. The profound spiritual experience held out as hope by Jung to Rowland 
very much akin to the transformations of enlightenment, was the essence of the message passed on to Bill W., the founder of AA. It is notable that Bill W. characterized AA as the language of the heart. All these trails, blazed in the pioneering of theoretical and applied human wisdom, have a common point of convergence, or perhaps it might be better said that they share a common point of origin. Bill Wilson's revelation from the depths of despair did not proceed from conceptual rationality or any other introspective focus on self, but rather from a leap to higher consciousness, a transport of self to the presence of infinite light and power. That this transformational experience has led to the recovery of millions is merely testimony to the power of energy fields which calibrate at 600 or more. That is the level at which there is a crossover of the experience of consciousness from form to formlessness. This formless power, the so-called higher power of the worldwide 12-step self-help movement, and the basis for its millions of recoveries, is the same wellspring of power to which all these far-flung branches of intellectual exploration have been not so much thrusting forward as working their way back. What they're looking for is the power of pure consciousness itself. Chapter 22, Spiritual Struggle From the understanding of consciousness at which we have arrived, we can reinterpret the struggle of man's spiritual enterprise. Pure consciousness self, that which is described as isness, beingness, I amness, represents the infinite potential, infinite power, an infinite energy source of all existence, which is identified as deity, God, divinity. Within this potential, the unmanifest becomes manifest as the avatar, the Christ, the Buddha, the great teacher, the great guru, whose energy field calibrates at 1,000. These individuals set up attractor patterns of enormous force to which the mind, with its holographic capacity to react globally to attractor fields, is subject. Of lesser moment, but still enormously powerful, are the enlightened teachers who have taught the path to the realization of the self with a capital S. The self with a capital S has been described by the enlightened throughout time as infinite, formless, changeless, all-present, unmanifest, and manifest, Herein is the oneness, the allness, and the godness of all that exists, indistinguishable from the Creator, whose power in the human realm is a giant attractor field, which allows and encompasses variation as free will, so that, in the end, all paths lead to me. Teachings and other works that treat of this have typically calibrated at 700 in our studies. At energy level field 600, ordinary thought ceases. Beyond temporal, linear process, existence is witnessed as knowingness, omnipresence, and non-duality. Because existence itself has no locality, the me-slash-you duality and consequent illusion of separation disappears. This state is the peace beyond all understanding, infinite, unconditional love all-encompassing, all-knowing, all-present, omnipowerful, and concordant with the self with a capital S, which is the awareness that the manifest is one with the unmanifest. 
Truly spiritual states can be said to begin at a calibrated level of about 500, and at 540 becomes unconditional love, and then continues on to infinity. Teachers who calibrate in the high 500s and the 600s are frequently recognized as saints. Their state of consciousness is often described as sublime. It is a not uncommon experience for students to enter into such a sublime state when in the presence of teachers whose energy feels calibrated at 550 and over, and this occurs through the process called entrainment, which is the dominance of a powerful attractor field. Until the devotee himself arrives at the higher state of awareness, this state will not persist when not in the higher energy field of the teacher. Advanced spiritual seekers often fluctuate in and out of this so-called presence of the beloved as they approach enlightenment. This loss of the higher state and descent to a lower is identified in both Eastern and Western literature as an anguish of the soul. Spiritual work, like other intensive pursuits, can be arduous and frequently requires the development of specific tools for the task, including an extremely focused intent and unfailing concentration. The difficulty of inner work results from the great effort required to escape from the familiar gravity of lower attractor fields and move to the influence of a higher field. In order to ameliorate this struggle, all religions issue proscriptions against exposing oneself to the lower energy fields. It is only from an authoritarian viewpoint that such error is depicted as sin. A more liberal viewpoint accepts man's dalliance in lower energy fields as pardonable failings. But attitudes, emotions, and behaviors characteristic of the energy fields below 200 do, in fact, generally preclude spiritual experience. The classical chakra system, recognized by many spiritual disciplines, correlates almost exactly with the map of consciousness that has emerged from our studies. The level 600 corresponds to the crown chakra, 500 to the heart, 200 and up to the solar plexus, while the lower attitudes and emotions of spite, envy, resentment, and jealousy are associated with the spleen. The base chakra has to do with animal survival, absorption with which prohibits spiritual progress. Thus, all spiritual teachings advise against worldliness, suggesting avoidance of attachment to sex or money. The lower regions are also the locus of addictions. One can be fixated at any of the lower levels. Almost all of these energy fields and the behaviors associated with them now have given rise to specific self-help groups, all of which concur that without a spiritual context, recovery is quite unlikely, if not impossible. In consciousness-raising programs in general, a universal dictum is that one is powerless until one tells the truth. All spiritually-oriented self-help groups require this first step. They are unanimous that an open mind and willingness are necessary prerequisites to progress. In other words, one must have reached an energy field of 200 in one's own inner development to be healable. Lingering within the influence of fields below this entails a real danger of becoming so deeply entrained that one cannot escape. This is not always so, however. History has noted many occasions of individuals in the very depths of such entrainment who suddenly break through to a high level of consciousness. Such sudden breakthroughs are still seen on occasion in modern society. This, as we have seen, was the precise experience of Bill Wilson, which resulted in the founding of AA. 
This experience seems typically to be characterized by a total transformation of consciousness and liberation from the entrainment of lower attractor fields and the sudden emergence into higher awareness. This type of experience, common in the early days of AA when its members were frequently so-called last gaspers, is not reported by so-called high-bottom members who constitute the majority of newcomers to AA today. Just as the entrainment or influence of the higher energy fields has an anabolic or growth-enhancing effect on a subject, entrainment by lower attractor fields has the opposite, a catabolic or destructive effect. The most widespread example in today's culture is the influence of some forms of violent rap music. Among our test subjects, punk rock, death rock, gangster rap, etc., made every single subject go weak confirming the earlier observations made by Dr. John Diamond. In a more recent study of students reported in the Arizona Republic, Dr. James Johnson of the University of North Carolina found that rap music increases tolerance for and predisposition to violence while promoting materialism and reducing both immediate interest in academics as well as long-term success. A common experience observed in therapy groups and clinics is that drug abusers do not recover if they continue to listen to heavy metal rock. A one-year follow-up of inpatient and outpatient cocaine addicts from Sedona Villa, a branch of Camelback Hospital of Phoenix, indicated that not a single cocaine abuser who continued to listen to this kind of violent and negative music recovered. Self-help groups for the addicted invariably recommend avoiding the influence and therefore the energy fields of former lifestyle associates. These addicts found that just leaving the drug was not enough. To do so was merely to attack the so-called A causes B causes C of addiction. As long as they could not make the commitment of will to entirely leave the influence of the field, of which the music like the drug was simply a manifestation, they could not escape entrainment to the low-energy attractor, the ABC of addiction. Recovered addicts who leave the energy field of their self-help programs rather predictably relapse. Besides having relinquished the infusion of the combined power of their fellow members, their assertion that they can go it alone is a notorious symptom of an uncoming relapse as the ego arises because it indicates an infiltration of arrogance and pride which calibrate at 175, which is below the power of the energy field required for healing. The same principle, of course, operates in the other direction. To seek enlightenment is to seek entrainment to the most powerful attractor patterns. The key again is will, a constantly repeated act of choice. Here, the chaos theory principle of sensitive dependence on initial conditions provides a scientific explanation of the traditional way of spiritual progress. In all spiritual disciplines, the opening wedge predicated for advancing one's awareness is described as willingness. History shows what has been clinically known as well, that a persistent willingness is the trigger that activates a new attractor field and allows one to begin to leave the old. We may visualize a lesser attractor field approaching a greater one, at which point the introduction of a third element, such as free will, suddenly creates a crossover, a so-called saddle pattern, and the change takes place. In Eastern spiritual disciplines, it is accepted that the devotee alone, unaided by a guru or a teacher, is unlikely to make much progress. The AA experience is that a true alcoholic is unable to recover without the help of a sponsor.
In sports, great coaches are sought after because their influence inspires maximum effort. A devotee can abet his own progress by merely focusing on an advanced teacher and thereby aligning with that teacher's energy field. In our testing, it was shown repeatedly that holding in mind the image of an advanced spiritual teacher made every subject go strong, irrespective of their personal beliefs. The agency of change in spiritual struggles of personal metamorphosis is always beyond the power of the seeker. Great saints, such as Francis of Assisi, have typically asserted that they were mere channels of a higher power from without and took no credit for personal initiative or achievement of their own state which they attributed solely to grace. This is illustrative of the instrumentation whereby the newcomer from a lesser level of awareness who places himself in the influence of a higher awareness is transformed by so-called osmosis, which is merely a linguistic style of denoting entrainment. Even casual observers frequently note this conspicuous absence of agency on the part of the person so clearly transmuted by an invisible force. When someone suddenly goes from the influence of a lower attractive field to that of a higher, it is often acclaimed as a miracle. The unfortunate verdict of human experience is that few escape the energy fields that gradually come to dominate their behaviors. A currently popular spiritual program designed to facilitate such escape is A Course in Miracles. The purpose of this course of spiritual psychology is to prepare the necessary groundwork to precipitate a sudden jump in consciousness through encouraging a total change of perception. In more traditional fashion, prayer and meditation also provide points of departure to rise from the influence of a lower energy field into a higher Physicians, who themselves calibrate at 500 and over, become powerful healers and accomplish striking successes with treatments with which others are unable to achieve similar results and, of course, thereby produce paradoxical data in many so-called double-blind studies. Such inexplicable variances show the intervention of power unaccountable by the routine causal explanation that predominates in medical science. In a holographic world, any so-called single event is actually the result of all events. In the universe, events as such have no self-existent reality. The universe is man's consciousness. It requires a comprehension beyond that of just the intellect alone. The achievements of pure reason are the great landmarks of cultural history. They have made man the master of his external environment and to some degree on the physical plane of his internal environment. But reason has its limits in more ways than one. The intellectual brilliance of the 400 level, so dazzling and enviable to those in the 300s, quickly palls for those who have transcended it. From a higher perspective, it is all too clear how tedious and trivial reason's infatuation with itself can become. Reason is the mirror of the mind's vanity. Ultimately, there are few things more boring to observe than self-admiration. Rationality, the great liberator which has freed us from the demands of our lower natures, is also a stern warder, denying our escape to the planes above and beyond intellect. For those entrained at the level of the 400s, reason itself becomes the cap, a ceiling in spiritual evolution. It is striking how many of history's great names calibrate at 499, Descartes, Newton, Einstein, dozens more. 
It is a final sticking point, an enormous barrier. The fight to overcome it is the most common and frequently the lengthiest of spiritual struggles. It is not unheard of for very advanced scientists, thoroughly entrained by the influences of the level of reason, to have sudden breakthroughs and emerge into a realm of global awareness and wholeness. The world of spirituality is coincident with the world of non-deterministic science and nonlinear systems, as we have attempted to show. Our research and this presentation, in fact, are designed to facilitate rational recognition of spiritual phenomena by those who are predominantly linear and habituated to the so-called left-brain modality. Perhaps the construct of our map of the anatomy of consciousness can illuminate somewhat the nature of ultimate causality by illustrating that the power of creation proceeds from the top down rather than from the bottom up. It is our hope, though, not to dogmatize, but to assist the reader in a process of self-revelation, as it is our desire to address not merely that figment designated as the reader's rational self, but his entire consciousness. In our study, it is the total person that reacts to the test stimuli. Although the subject's mind may not be aware of what is going on, his total being certainly is, or there would be no consistency to our findings. This reminds us of the observation of advanced spiritual teachers, that the devotee has only to discover that which they already know. Chapter 23, The Search for Truth Cynical though it may at first sound, we must admit that for everyday operational purposes, truth is whatever is subjectively convincing at one's current level of perception. At the lower levels of consciousness, propositions are accepted as true even when they are logical, unfounded, and express tenets neither intellectually provable nor practically demonstrable. This is not a phenomenon restricted to the so-called lunatic fringe. Far more often than we would like to admit, innocent persons are convicted and jailed on the testimony of clearly irrational or biased witnesses. Globally, the basis for perennial wars, like those of Slavic Europe or the Middle East, is an insane belief in the justice of revenge, which virtually guarantees endless conflict. With few exceptions, even religions which ostensibly represent the teachings of the Prince of Peace have never forbidden war or the killing of other human beings under so-called justifiable circumstances, justifiable, of course, to those doing the killing, their victims would likely fail to appreciate the justification. Such self-contradictory behavior, diametrically opposed to the underlying principles of a faith, will appear less surprising if we apply critical factor analysis to calibrate the evolution or devolution of spiritual teachings over time. We can look at the world's foremost religious teachings thusly. Christianity the level of truth originally expounded by Jesus Christ calibrates at 1,000, the highest attainable on this plane. By the second century, though, the level of truth of the practice of his teachings had dropped to 930, and by the sixth century had dropped to 540. By the time of the Crusades, at the beginning of the 11th century, it had fallen to its current level of 498. A major decline in the year 325 A.D., was apparently due to the spread of misinterpretations of the teachings originating from the Council of Nicaea. Students of religious history will find it interesting to calibrate the level of truth of Christianity 
as practiced before and after Paul, Constantine, Augustine, etc. It should be noted that the Lampsa translation of the Bible from the Aramaic of the New Testament calibrates at 750, whereas the King James Version from the Greek calibrates at 500. Just as there is a wide range in the level of truth of various translations, so there is a wide variation between the different Christian practices. Most major persuasions, such as Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Christian science, and many small denominations, calibrate in the high 500s. Specialized interpretations, such as that of the contemporary A Course in Miracles, on the one hand, or the 14th century mysticism of Meister Eckert, on the other hand, calibrate 6 to 700. As in the case of Islam, however, extreme fundamentalist groups with explicit reactionary political agendas can calibrate as low as 125 or even much lower. Buddhism The level of truth of the teachings of the Buddha was also originally at 1,000. By the 6th century AD, the level of truth in practice, however, had dropped to an average of 900. These teachings have deteriorated less than any other religion. Hinayana Buddhism, the so-called lesser vehicle, still calibrates at 850. Mahayana Buddhism, the so-called greater vehicle, calibrates at 950. Current Zen Buddhism is in the 600s. Hinduism The teachings of Lord Krishna calibrated at 1,000 and have deteriorated very slowly over time so that the truth of the current practice still calibrates at 850 or over. Judaism The teachings of Abraham calibrated at 985. The practice current at the time of Moses was 770, which is the level of the truth of the Talmud. Modern Judaism calibrates at 499. The Old Testament calibrates also at about 475. Islam the level of consciousness of Muhammad varied. The Quran calibrates at 570. The kernel of Islamic faith is an expression of loving acceptance and inner peace, but the evolution of practical dogma was intertwined from the start with the politics of territorial expansion in the form of jihad or religious warfare. The truth of the teachings had dropped severely by the end of the period of the Crusades. In modern times, the ascendance of fanatic nationalistic religious movements characterized by paranoia and xenophobia has rapidly eroded the spiritual essence of this faith. At the present time, the level of truth of the teachings of militant Islamic fundamentalism varies between 90 and 130. When we look at the decline of the level of truth of the world's great religions, we notice that those which are the most yin have remained relatively pure throughout the ages, whereas those that are more yang and involved in worldly affairs have degraded markedly, until the militant extremist faction of the most aggressive religions has actually sunk below the critical level of integrity at 200. The more dualistic the creed, the greater seems to be its vulnerability to misinterpretation. Dualism promotes a split between belief and action and the discernment of levels of truth. When this occurs, the spiritual essence can be confused in translation into physical expression. Thus, the conceptual Christian soldier, parenthesis of the spirit, end of parenthesis, becomes, through a distorted literal translation, 
a self-justified battlefield killer. The Hindus did not fall into the error of confusing levels of interpretation. The battle described in the opening of the Bhagavad Gita was never misinterpreted to suggest Lord Krishna teaches that believers are to engage in actual warfare. The Buddha's view that the cause of all pain and suffering is ignorance, which he saw as the only sin possible, and that one's duty is to be compassionate towards others and pray for them, is hardly susceptible of such distortion. The downfall of all lofty spiritual teachings has been their misinterpretation by the less enlightened. Each level of consciousness predefines its own limited capacity for perception and comprehension. Until one has oneself become enlightened or at least experienced the higher states of consciousness, all spiritual teachings remain hearsay and are thus prone to distortion and misunderstanding. Scripture can be quoted to justify any position. The so-called righteous are always dangerous because of their imbalanced perception and their consequent indifference to moral violence. Within any religion, fundamentalist sects always calibrate the lowest, often operating at the same level of consciousness as criminality. Their hallmark is egocentric extremism and irrationality. But with 85% of the human population calibrating below the critical level of 200, error is easily disseminated and readily accepted around the world. Cults proliferate because the general public has no objective criterion with which to distinguish truth from falsehood. Using the tools of this study, we may identify as a cult any purportedly spiritual movement that calibrates below the level of 200. As we have seen above, cults are not just isolated, renegade phenomena. They also thrive as tolerated subgroups within the world's great religions, distorting teachings and subverting their intent. Cults, indeed, need not be formally religious at all. The ultimate cult, of course, is that of anti-religion, based on anti-divinity, which we know as Satanism. It has no explicit religious agenda of its own, as it defines itself through antithesis and reversal of benign principles. In one form or another, it has always been with us. As up implies down, and light implies darkness, man's socially organized search for truth and commitment to higher spiritual levels has also implied the socially organized promulgation of falsehood and submission to the lowest energy fields. Examination of the nature of anti-religion demonstrates, in fact, the enormously destructive power of negative energy fields, and examples are unfortunately ready at hand. The trappings of disguised Satanism spread as fashions of a pop youth subculture, its primary vehicle being an overt musical style. But principles are implicit in trappings, and principles generate attractor fields. The effects are all too familiar to any clinician practicing near an urban area. The destruction of energy fields is pathogenic. Victims become desensitized to distinctions between good and evil, a value inversion which can be clinically examined. Habituates are found to directly display the so-called blown-out acupuncture system and desynchronization of the cerebral hemispheres in response to repetitive negative patterns of the associated music, the net result is, in effect, a hypnotic trance during which the listener is highly susceptible to the violent and blasphemous suggestion of the lyrics. In this sense, these children become literally enslaved, 
prone to later bouts of irrational destruction, in which they, in truth, really don't know why they act as they do, as they are acting out unconscious post-hypnotic suggestions. But the influence persists. Continued weakening of the body and its immune system, long after the music stops, is accompanied by an inversion of kinesiological response. Negative stimuli that would make a neural person go weak paradoxically cause a strong response, while those that would make a normal person go strong now produce a weak response. Unaware that they are the victims of a potent negative energy field, the members of this subculture sink into sometimes inescapable subservience to forces beyond their comprehension. Youth subjected to such physical, emotional, and sexual abuse can suffer permanent damage to the brain's neurotransmitter balance and become adult depressives who habitually seek out abusive partners and must endlessly struggle against an inclination to suicide that is, in fact, a lingering form of post-hypnotic suggestion. We may wish to deny that such a spiritual plague, reminiscent of the Dark Ages, would still remain virulent in our seemingly enlightened society. But such perverse influences do not operate in a moral vacuum or arise from a social matrix that does not already incorporate preconditions for their growth. The paradox of a puritanical society is that it encourages constant seduction, but denies satisfaction, so a perpetual frustration of normal outlets eventually finds release in perverse ones. If we look more closely, we may find that other elements of what we call civilization, in fact, also fosters its persistence. While the young are being programmed by the specialized TV and computer games that glorify violence, their parents are being brainwashed by adult media. Kinesiologic testing showed a fairly typical TV serial caused test subjects to go weak multiple times during a single episode. Each of these weakening events suppressed the observer's immune system. Each weakening reflected an insult to the viewer's central as well as autonomic nervous systems. Invariably accompanying each of these disruptions of the acupuncture system were suppressions of the thymus gland. Each insult also resulted in damage to the brain's delicate neurohormonal and neurotransmitter systems. Each negative input brought the watcher closer to eventual sickness and to depression, now one of the world's most prevalent illnesses. Subtle grades of subclinical depression kill more people than all the other illnesses of mankind combined. There is no antidepressant that will cure depression which is spiritually based because the malaise does not originate from brain dysfunction, but from an accurate response to the desecration of life. The body is the reflection of the spirit in its physical expression, and its problems are dramatization of the struggles of the spirit which gives it life. A belief that we ascribe to out there has its effect in here. Everyone dies by his own hand. That is a hard clinical fact, not a moral view. Chapter 23. The Search for Truth Continued. The attempt to impose standards of would-be absolute good and evil is, in fact, one of the great moral pitfalls. But without moralizing, we can plainly state that whatever calibrates above 200 supports life and therefore may be functionally defined as good, whereas whatever calibrates below 200 is destructive, non-supportive of life, and can thus be declared functionally negative. 
By testing, we can prove that a false premise, such as the end justifies the means, is operationally negative. Yet this is a routine accepted justification for much of human behavior, from the picadillos of commerce to the enormities of war. Such spiritual ambiguity, leading ultimately to irretrievable confusion between functional good and evil, has always been the Achilles heel of human society. It is this process of perversion of truth through a failure of discernment which has provided the instrumentation of the decline in the world's great religions, as noted above. Religions which fall below the level of 500 may preach love, but they will not be able to practice it. And no religious system which encourages war can claim spiritual authority without the blatant hypocrisy that has made atheists of many honest men. Society is collectively most vulnerable when the capacity to distinguish between attractors and imitators or to perceive nuances of different levels of consciousness is dulled. Thus, through civil abuses become law and political extremists persuade with righteous slogans. The children of violence become its perpetrators because a confused society, which has lost the capacity for discernment necessary to protect its own consciousness, can hardly hope to protect its young. An individual's level of consciousness is determined by the principles to which they are committed. To maintain progress in consciousness, there can be no wavering about principle, or the individual will fall back to a lower level. Expediency is never an adequate justification. If it is wrong to kill another human being, that principle can allow no exceptions, regardless how mostly appealing a construct may be used to justify the exception. Thus, a society which condones capital punishment will always have a problem with murder. Both are products of the same level of perception. To the murderer, the killing of the victim is also a justifiable exception. Once a principle is breached, its mutated form propagates like cancer. A society which supports killing, whether in war or by the police or by the penal system, cannot at the same time effectively stop so-called criminal killing. To kill is to kill is to kill. There is no escaping the fact. The decision to kill or not is a basic issue on the path to real power. But this rudimentary step has not even been essayed by 85% of the world's population or by virtually any of its governments. Coco, the famous gorilla, who was a resident of the Primate Research Institute, has worked for years with a psychologist and developed a sophisticated sign language vocabulary. She is truthful, affectionate, intelligent, and trustworthy. Her integrity calibrates at 250. Thus, one is safer with the gorilla Coco than with 85% of the humans on the planet. Injury to man's so-called spiritual eye has resulted in dimness of moral vision and blindness to truth, which afflict 85% of the Earth's population who linger below that critical level of integrity. The great issue that confronts mankind as a whole is the healing of this spiritual blindness. The more immediate problem of so-called right and wrong that always diverts our societal focus only exists as a function of perception based on the lower levels of consciousness. Little children are taught that dangerous behaviors are wrong, but as they grow older, discernment should replace moralism. Whether it is wrong to kill other human beings may be a moral dilemma at lower levels of consciousness. At higher levels, the very question is ridiculous and not even conceivable. 
Conventional morality is therefore only a provisional substitute for a faculty of higher consciousness. Moralism, a byproduct of duality, becomes insignificant as the consciousness level rises through the 500s and becomes irrelevant at the level of 600. Merely to reach a stage where one functions primarily from reason requires a major evolution in consciousness to the 400s, a very powerful level in world society. Freud, Einstein, and Descartes calibrated at 499, which is also the level of humanism. But reason, so vulnerable to loss of perspective through self-absorption, has in the long run never provided man any solid moral or even intellectual certitude. Again and again it has, to the contrary, led from the chaos of ignorance to an equally baffling cerebral maze. In a world of mass confusion, we desperately need a reliable, accurate, objectively verifiable yardstick through which to measure truth. Hopefully this study has presented such a tool. Any increased infusion of the influence of truth into the collective human consciousness gives us cause for greater hope than may be apparent from what tends inevitably to be a rather gloomy overview. We have established that consciousness is capable of discerning any change of energy to a degree of log 10 to the minus infinity. This means that there is no possible event in the entire universe not detectable by the exquisite sensitivity of consciousness itself. The energy of human thought, though minute, is nevertheless absolutely measurable. A thought which emanates from the consciousness level 100 will typically measure between log 10 to the minus 800 million to 10 to the minus 700 million microwatts. On the other hand, the loving thought at the consciousness level of 500 measures approximately log 10 to the minus 35 million microwatts. Although only 15% of the world's population is above the critical consciousness level of 200, the collective power of that 15% has the weight to counterbalance the negativity of the remaining 85% of the world's population. Because the scale of power advances logarithmically, a single avatar at a consciousness level of 1,000 can, in fact, and does totally counterbalance the collective negativity of all of mankind. Kinesiologic testing has shown that one individual at level 700 counterbalances 70 million individuals below level 200. One individual at level 600 counterbalances 10 million individuals below level 200. One individual at level 500 counterbalances 750,000 persons below level 200. One individual at level 400 counterbalances 400,000 individuals below level 200. One individual at level 300 counterbalances 90,000 persons below level 200. 12 individuals at level 700 equal one avatar at calibrated level 1,000. There were at the times of the writing of the book 12 persons on the planet who calibrated over 600. At this time, however, there are only six, three between 600 and 700, one between 700 and 800, one between 800 and 900, and one between 900 and 1,000. May 2006.
Were it not for these counterbalances, mankind would self-destruct out of the sheer mass of its unopposed negativity. However, the difference in power between a loving thought and a fearful thought is so enormous as to be beyond the capacity of the human imagination to even comprehend. We can see from the analysis, however, that even a few loving thoughts during the course of the day more than counterbalance all of our negative thoughts by their sheer power. From a social behavioral viewpoint, as we said, truth is a set of principles by which people live, regardless what they might say they believe. We have seen that there is subjective truth, operational truth, hypothetical truth, intellectual truth, and then there is so-called factual truth. The legitimacy of any of these is dependent on the context of a given perceptual level. Truth is not functional unless it is meaningful, and meaning, like value, is dependent on a unique perceptual field. Facts and data may be convincing at one level and irrelevant at another. Functional validity of information received also varies with the intellectual level and capacity for abstraction of the mind of the recipient. To be operational, truth must be not simply true, but knowable. Yet each level of truth is unknowable to the levels below it and has no validity beyond its own territory. Thus, we can conclude that all kinds of truth as we know it within the dimension of ordinary human function are examples of dependent truth, whose veracity is totally contingent on a given set of parameters or context. Even our revered so-called scientific truth is also truth by definition only under certain conditions and therefore subject to dispute and error. Statistical inference has become a propaganda tool, and the statistical distortions by which anything can be proven about anything have alienated our credence. Is there any impersonal truth, independent of individual condition or context? Truth as detected by the research methods explained throughout this book derive its validity from ultimate sources far beyond the influence of any localized perceptual field. It represents neither personality nor opinion and does not vary with any condition of test subject or environment. Ignorance does not yield to attack, but it dissipates in the light and nothing dissolves dishonesty faster than the simple act of revealing the truth. The only way to enhance one's power in the world is by increasing one's integrity understanding, and capacity for compassion. If the diverse populations of mankind can be brought to this realization, the survival of human society and the happiness of its members are more secure. The initial effect of taking responsibility for the truth of one's life is to raise lower energy field levels to 200, the critical level at which power first appears, and the stepping stone to all the higher levels. The courage to face truth leads eventually to acceptance, where greater power arises at the level of 350. Here, then, there is sufficient energy to solve the majority of man's social problems. This, in turn, leads to the yet greater power available at level 500, which is the level of love. Knowing our own and everyone else's human foibles gives rise to forgiveness and thence to compassion. Compassion is the doorway to grace and to the final realization of who we are, why we are here, and the ultimate source of all existence.
Chapter Twenty Four, Resolution. A thorough absorption of the material presented herein has been shown to be able to raise one's level of consciousness by an average of thirty-five points. Inasmuch as the progression of consciousness during the average human lifetime lived on this planet has been only five points, such an increase of thirty-five in individual awareness is of enormous benefit in and of itself. And as advanced theoretical physics and nonlinear dynamics have shown, any individual increase also raises, to some degree, the consciousness of everyone on the planet. To become more conscious is the greatest gift anyone can give to the world. Moreover, in a ripple effect, the gift comes back to its source. While the level of consciousness of mankind as a whole stood at a perilous 190 for many centuries, as we have seen. In the late 1980s, it suddenly jumped to the hopeful level of 204. For the first time in history, man is now on safe ground from which to continue his upward march, and this promise of new hope comes none too soon. Today, many of the subjects we have discussed are exploding in the news media: the perversion of religion to the ends of political savagery, the deepening depravity of crimes, the involvement of children in violence. Moral confusion in politics, and the bizarre violence of cults all appear against a backdrop colored by the prevalence of lies as social tender, and a lack of consensus as to individual and collective responsibility towards one's fellow man. This social confusion and paralysis stems from the dearth of guidelines upon which to base decisions. Hopefully, this book has taken a step towards filling that void with what is, in fact. An essay on the science of morality. By use of the term morality, we do not refer to merely petty moralistic judgments of right and wrong, but to an at once objective and personal basis from which to make decisions and evaluations regarding the highest conduct of our lives. In a social framework, we can certainly choose to refuse passive acquiescence to any political system that falls below the level of two hundred. Instead, applying it to our newly developed faculties of examination and correction, it is now possible, for instance, to establish clear criteria by which holders of public office should be selected. Each office requires a specific minimum level of awareness in order to be effective. In general, any government official who falls below 200 will not solve problems but create them. The larger social issue is how, in view of the dark side of mankind's behavior, One can maintain compassion. It is a relative world. Everyone acts from his own level of truth, and therefore believes that their own actions and decisions are right. It is this very so-called rightness that makes fanatics so dangerous. But the real danger to society does not come from overt bigotry, such as even white supremacism, which calibrates at one fifty. As such damage can at least be monitored. The really grave danger to society lies in the silent and invisible entrainment that stealthily conquers the psyche. In the process of entrainment of the public consciousness, negative attractor fields are cosmeticized by rhetoric and manipulation of symbols. Moreover, it is not the overt message of the negative input that destroys consciousness, but the energy field that accompanies it. The extreme negativity of many popular works of pseudo philosophy, for example, is obvious if one tests these books. 
but even being forewarned cannot defend us against unwitting entrainment by invisible energy fields, which are activated when these works are read. One may think he can maintain his psychic independence by refuting the work intellectually, but mere exposure to the material has a profound negative effect that continues even after the material is intellectually rejected. It is as though there is within these negative influences a hidden virus whose invasion of our psyche goes unnoticed and undetected. Additionally, we often relax our circumspection when encountering material that ascribes to itself the attributes of spiritual insight or religion, forgetting that every heinous crime of which man is capable has been perpetrated in the name of God. While violent cults may be clearly repellent, belief systems that masquerade as piety are even more insidious, for they corrupt by the silent entrainment of invisible attractor fields. Here it is best to heed the traditional wisdom that tells us not to fear evil or fight it, but merely to avoid it. But in order to avoid it, one has to have the capacity to recognize it. Socrates said, in effect, that without such capacity, youth, including the youth that continues to reside within every adult, is corrupted by lower attractor energy fields. Though he was put to death for teaching this discernment, his teaching remains. Obscurity is dispelled by augmenting the light of the sermon, not by attacking the darkness. The final issue, then, is the problem of how we may best cultivate and preserve the power of moral discernment. Our journey of investigation has finally led us to the most critical realization of all, that mankind actually lacks the capacity to recognize the difference between good and evil. By humbly surrendering to this awareness, men may be forearmed. When we admit we are gullible and easily seduced by the senses and deluded by glamour, including intellectual glamour, we have at least the beginning of discernment. Fortunately, in this world of duality, man has been given a consciousness which can instantly detect that which is destructive and signal it to his otherwise ignorant mind by the grossly visible weakening of his body in the presence of inimicable stimuli. Wisdom can ultimately be reduced to the simple process of avoiding that which makes you go weak. Nothing else is really required. Through frequent practice of this technique, spiritual blindness to the discernment of truth from falsehood can be progressively replaced by a growing intuitive vision. Some lucky few seem born with this innate capacity. Their lives remain clear and undamaged by negative entrainment. But for most of us, life has not been that easy. We have spent a great deal of time in repairing the damage done by destructive attractor fields, which have acted almost unconsciously and hypnotically. Recovering even from a single addiction can take up the majority of a single lifetime. And the most common and insidious addiction is to denial, which plagues all of mankind through intellectual vanity. The intellect, contrary to its delusions of grandeur, not only lacks the ability to recognize falsehood, but lacks the necessary power to defend itself, even if it had the capacity of discernment. Is it irrelevant, in light of history's enormous accretion of works of intellectual speculation, to say that man's vaunted capacity of reason lacks that critical faculty of discernment? The whole field of philosophy is merely evidence that man has struggled and failed for thousands of years, 
to arrive at the simplest recognition of what is true and what is false, or the discourse would long ago have reached some consensus. And it is clear from common human conduct that even if the intellect could reliably arrive at this basic conclusion, it still lacks the power to stop the effect of negative fields. We remain unconscious of the causes of our afflictions while the intellect dreams up all kinds of plausible excuses, hypnotized itself by these same forces. Even when a person intellectually knows his behavior is self-destructive, this knowledge has no necessary deterrent effect whatsoever. Intellectual recognition of our addictions has never given us the power to control them. In Scripture, we are told that man is afflicted by forces unseen. It is a commonplace observation of our century that silent and visible rays of energy are emitted even by innocent-looking objects. The discoverers of radium paid for this realization with their lives. X-rays are lethal, and radioactive emissions kill silently, as does radon. The attractor energy fields that destroy us are equally invisible and no less powerful though far more subtle. When it is said that someone is possessed, what is meant is that his consciousness has become dominated by negative attractor fields from which the person cannot extricate themselves. By this definition, we can see that whole segments of society are so thoroughly possessed that they themselves are unconscious of their own motives. Wisdom tells us one worships either heaven or hell and will eventually become the servant of one or the other. Hell is not a condition imposed by a judgmental God, but rather the inevitable consequence of one's own decisions. Hell is the final outcome of constantly choosing the negative, and thus isolating oneself from love and truth. Enlightened beings have always described the general populace as being trapped in a dream, and the majority of people are driven by unseen forces, and most are in despair over this fact a great deal of their lives. We pray to God to relieve us of the burden of our sins, and, by confession, we look for relief. Remorse seems woven into the fabric of life. How can salvation be possible, then, for those who have unwittingly become ensnared in such destructive influences? However, in fact, even from a merely scientific viewpoint, Salvation is indeed possible. In truth, it is guaranteed by the simple fact that the energy of a loving thought is enormously more powerful than that of a negative one. Therefore, the traditional solutions of love and prayer have a sound scientific basis. Man has within his own essence the power of his own salvation. Humanity could be called an affliction from which we are all burdened. We don't remember asking to be born and we inherited a mind so limited it is hardly capable of distinguishing between that which embraces life and that which leads to death. The whole struggle of life is in transcending this myopia. We cannot enter into higher levels of existence until we advance in consciousness to the point where we overcome duality and are no longer earthbound. Perhaps it is because of our collective will to transcend that we have earned the capacity to finally discover an inborn compass to lead us out of the darkness of ignorance. We needed something very simple which could bypass those traps of the wily intellect for which we have paid such an enormous price. This compass merely says yes or no. 
It tells us that that which is aligned with heaven makes us go strong, and that which is aligned with hell makes us go weak. The ubiquitous human ego is actually not an I at all, it is merely an it. Seeing through this illusion reveals an endless cosmic joke, in which the human tragedy itself is part of the comedy. The irony of human experience is in how fiercely the ego fights to preserve the illusion of being a separate individual I, even though this is not only an ontologic impossibility, but the very wellspring of all suffering. Human reason exhausts itself ceaselessly to explain the inexplicable. Explanation itself is high comedy, as preposterous as trying to see the back of one's own head. But the vanity of the ego is boundless, and it becomes even more overblown in this very attempt to make sense of nonsense. The mind, in its identity with the ego, cannot by definition comprehend reality. If it could, it would instantly dissolve itself upon recognition of its own illusory nature and basis. It is only beyond the paradox of mind-transcending ego that that which is stands forth as self-evident and dazzling in its infinite absoluteness. And then all these words are useless. But perhaps from compassion for each other's blindness, we can learn to forgive ourselves. Peace can then be our assured future. Our purpose on earth may remain obscure, but the road henceforth is clear. With the consciousness level of humanity now finally above 200, we may expect great transformations throughout human culture as mankind becomes more responsible for his knowledge and thus its deeds. We have become fully accountable whether we like it or not. We are at the point in the evolution of our collective awareness where we may even assume stewardship of consciousness itself. Humanity is no longer resigned to passively paying the price of ignorance, or its communal consciousness would not have risen to its new level. From this time forth, man may choose to no longer be enslaved by darkness. His destiny can then be certain. Gloria in excelsis Dio. About the author. Biographical and Autobiographical Notes Dr. Hawkins is an internationally known spiritual teacher, author, and speaker on the subject of advanced spiritual states, consciousness research, and the realization of the presence of God as Self with a capital S. His published works, as well as recorded lectures, have been widely recognized as unique in that a very advanced state of spiritual awareness occurred in an individual with a scientific and clinical background, who was later able to verbalize and explain the unusual phenomenon in a manner that is clear and comprehensible. The transition from the normal ego state of mind to its elimination by the presence is described in the trilogy Power vs. Force, published in 1995, which won praise even from Mother Teresa, The Eye of the Eye, 2001, and I, Reality and Subjectivity, 2003, which have been translated and are available worldwide in foreign editions. The trilogy was preceded by research on the nature of consciousness and published as a doctoral dissertation, Qualitative and Quantitative Analysis and Calibration of the Levels of Consciousness, 1995, which correlated the seemingly disparate domains of science and spirituality.
This was accomplished by the major discovery of a technique that for the first time in human history demonstrated a means to discern truth from falsehood. The importance of the initial work was given recognition by its very favorable and extensive review in Brain-Mind Bulletin and at later presentations such as the International Conference on Science and Consciousness. Many presentations were given to a variety of organizations, spiritual conferences, church groups, nuns, and monks, both nationally and in foreign countries, including the Oxford Forum. In the Far East, Dr. Hawkins is a recognized teacher of the way to enlightenment. In response to his observation that much spiritual truth has been misunderstood over the ages due to lack of explanation, Dr. Hawkins presented monthly seminars and provided detailed explanations that are too lengthy to describe here. Recordings of these lectures are available. The overall design of this lifetime work is to recontextualize the human experience in terms of the evolution of consciousness and to integrate a comprehension of both mind and spirit as expressions of the innate divinity that is the substrate and ongoing source of life and existence. This dedication is signified by the statement, Gloria in Excelsis Dio, with which his published works begin and end. Biographic Summary Dr. Hawkins has practiced psychiatry since 1952 and is a life member of the American Psychiatric Association and numerous other professional organizations. His national television appearance schedule has included The McNeil Lear NewsHour, The Barbara Walters Show, The Today Show, Science Documentaries, and many others. He is the author of numerous scientific and spiritual publications, books, videotapes, and lecture series. Nobelist Linus Pauling co-authored his landmark book, Orthomolecular Psychiatry. Dr. Hawkins's diverse background as researcher and teacher is noted in his biographical listings in Who's Who in America and Who's Who in the World. He was a consultant for many years to Episcopal and Catholic dioceses, the monastery, monastic orders, and the Zen monastery. Dr. Hawkins has lectured widely, with appearances at Westminster Abbey, the Universities of Argentina, Notre Dame in Michigan, Fordham and Harvard Universities, and the Oxford Forum. He gave the annual Landsberg Lecture at the University of California Medical School at San Francisco. He is also a consultant to foreign governments on international diplomacy and has been instrumental in resolving long-standing conflicts that were major threats to world peace. In recognition of his contributions to humanity, Dr. Hawkins became a knight of the Sovereign Order of the Hospitaliers of St. John of Jerusalem, which was founded in 1077. Dr. Hawkins relates that while the truths reported in this book were scientifically derived and objectively organized, like all truths, they were first experienced personally. A lifelong sequence of intense states of awareness, beginning at a young age, 
first inspired and then gave direction to the process of subjective realization that has finally taken form in power versus force. At age three, there occurred a sudden, full consciousness of existence, a nonverbal but complete understanding of the meaning of I am, followed immediately by the frightening realization that I might not have come into existence at all. This was an instant awakening from oblivion into a conscious awareness, and in that moment, the personal self was born and the duality of is and is not entered his subjective awareness. Throughout childhood and early adolescence, the paradox of existence and the question of the reality of the self remained a repeated concern. The personal self would sometimes begin slipping back into a greater impersonal self with a capital S, and the initial fear of non-existence the fundamental fear of nothingness, would recur. In 1939, as a paperboy with a 17-mile bicycle route in rural Wisconsin, on a dark winter's night, Dr. Hawkins was caught miles from home in a 20-below-zero blizzard. His bicycle fell over on the ice, and the fierce wind ripped the newspapers out of the handlebar basket, blowing them across the ice-covered snowy field. There were tears of frustration and exhaustion, and his clothes were frozen stiff. To get out of the wind, he broke through the icy crust of a high snowbank, dug out a space, and crawled into it. Soon the shivering stopped, and he experienced a delicious warmth, and then a state of peace beyond all description. This was accompanied by a suffusion of light and a presence of infinite love that had no beginning and no end, and was undifferentiated from his own essence. His physical body and surroundings faded as his awareness was fused with this all-present, illuminated state. His mind grew silent. All thought stopped. An infinite presence was all that was or could be, beyond all time or description. After that timelessness, there was suddenly an awareness of someone shaking his knee. Then his father's anxious face appeared. There was great reluctance to return to the body and all that that entailed. But because of his father's love and anguish, the spirit nurtured and reactivated the body. There was compassion for his father's fear of death, although at the same time, the concept of death seemed absurd. This subjective experience was not discussed with anyone since there was no context available from which to describe it. It was not common to hear of spiritual experiences other than those reported in the lives of saints. But after this experience, the accepted reality of the world began to seem only provisional. Traditional religious teachings lost significance and, paradoxically, he became an agnostic. Compared to the light of divinity that had illuminated all existence, the god of traditional religion shone dully indeed. Thus, spirituality replaced religion. During World War II, hazardous duty on a minesweeper often brought close brushes with death, but there was no fear of it. It was as though death had lost its authenticity. After the war, fascinated by the complexities of the mind and wanting to study psychiatry, he worked his way through medical school. 
His training psychoanalyst, a professor at Columbia University, was also an agnostic. They both took a dim view of religion. The analysis went well, as did Dr. Hawkins' career, and success followed. He did not, however, settle quietly into professional life. He fell ill with a progressive, fatal illness that did not respond to any treatments available. By age 38, he was an extremis and knew he was about to die. He didn't care about the body, but his spirit was in a state of extreme anguish and despair. As the final moment approached, the thought flashed through his mind, What if there is a God? So he called out in prayer, If there is a God, I ask him to help me now. He surrendered to whatever God there might be and went into oblivion. When he awoke, a transformation of such enormity had taken place that he was struck dumb with awe. The person he had been no longer existed. There was no personal self or ego, only an infinite presence of such unlimited power that it was all that was. This presence had replaced what had been me, and the body and its actions were controlled solely by the infinite will of the presence. The world was illuminated by the clarity of an infinite oneness that expressed itself as all things revealed in their infinite beauty and perfection. As life went on, the stillness persisted. There was no personal will. The physical body went about its business under the direction of the infinitely powerful but exquisitely gentle will of the presence. In that state, there was no need to think about anything. All truth was self-evident, and no conceptualization was necessary or even possible. At the same time, the physical nervous system felt extremely overtaxed, as though it were carrying far more energy than its circuits had been designed for. It was not possible to function effectively in the world. All ordinary motivations had disappeared along with all fear and anxiety. There was nothing to seek, as all was perfect. Fame, success, and money were meaningless. Friends urged the pragmatic return to clinical practice, but there was no ordinary motivation to do so. There was now the ability to perceive the reality that underlay personalities. The origin of emotional sickness lay in people's belief that they were their personalities. And so, as though of its own, a clinical practice resumed and eventually became huge. People came from all over the United States. The practice had 2,000 outpatients, which required more than 50 therapists and other employees, a suite of 25 offices, and research and electroencephalic laboratories. There were a 1,000 new patients a year, in addition, there were appearances on radio and network television shows. In 1973, the clinical research was documented in a traditional format in the book, Orthomolecular Psychiatry. This work was 10 years ahead of its time and created something of a stir. The overall condition of his nervous system improved slowly, and then another phenomenon commenced. 
There was a sweet, delicious band of energy continuously flowing up the spine and into the brain where it created an intense sensation of continuous pleasure. Everything in life happened by synchronicity, evolving in perfect harmony. The miraculous was commonplace. The origin of what the world would call miracles was the presence, not the personal self. What remained of the personal me was only a witness to these phenomena. The greater I, deeper than the former self or thoughts, determined all that happened. The states that were present had been reported by others throughout history and led to the investigation of spiritual teachings, including those of the Buddha, enlightened sages, Huang Po, and more recent teachers such as Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadatta Maharaj. It was thus confirmed that these experiences were not unique. The Bhagavad Gita now made complete sense. At times, the same spiritual ecstasy reported by Sri Ramakrishna and the Christian saints occurred. Everything and everyone in the world was luminous and exquisitely beautiful. All living beings became radiant and expressed this radiance in stillness and splendor. It was apparent that all mankind is actually motivated by inner love, but has simply become unaware. Most lives are lived as though by sleepers, unawakened to the awareness of who they really are. People around him looked as though they were asleep and were incredibly beautiful. It was like being in love with everyone. He found it necessary to stop the habitual practice of meditating for an hour in the morning and then again before dinner, because it would intensify the bliss to such an extent that it was not possible to function. An experience similar to the one that had occurred in the snowbank as a boy would recur, and it became increasingly difficult to leave that state and return to the world. The incredible beauty of all things shone forth, in all their perfection, and where the world saw ugliness, there was only timeless beauty. This spiritual love suffused all perception, and all boundaries between here and there, then and now, or separation, disappeared. During the years spent in inner silence, the strength of the presence grew. Life was no longer personal. A personal will no longer existed. The personal I had become an instrument of the infinite presence and went about and did as it was willed. People felt an extraordinary peace in the aura of that presence. Seekers sought answers, but as there was no longer any such individual as David, they were actually finessing answers from their own self, with a capital S, which was not different from his. From each person, the same self shone forth from their eyes. The miraculous happened beyond ordinary comprehension. Many chronic maladies from which the body had suffered for years disappeared. Eyesight spontaneously normalized and there was no longer a need for his lifetime bifocals. Occasionally, an exquisitely blissful energy, an infinite love would suddenly begin to radiate from the heart towards the scene of some calamity. Once, while driving on a highway, this exquisite energy began to beam out of his chest. 
As the car rounded a bend, there was an auto accident. The wheels of the overturned car were still spinning. The energy passed with great intensity into the occupants of the car and then stopped of its own accord. Another time, while he was walking on the streets of a strange city, the energy started to flow down the block ahead and arrived at the scene of an incipient gang fight. The combatants fell back and began to laugh, and again the energy stopped. Profound changes of perception came without warning in improbable circumstances. While dining alone at Rothman's on Long Island, the presence suddenly intensified until everything and every person, which had appeared as separate in ordinary perception, melted into a timeless universality and oneness. In the motionless silence, it became obvious that there are no events or things, and that nothing actually happens, because past, present, and future are merely artifacts of perception, as is the illusion of a separate I being subject to birth and death. As the limited, false self dissolved into the universal self, with a capital S, of its true origin, there was an ineffable sense of having returned home to a state of absolute peace and relief from all suffering. It is only the illusion of individuality that is the origin of all suffering. When one realizes that one is the universe, complete and at one with all that is, forever without end, then no further suffering is possible. Patients came to Dr. Hawkins from every country in the world, and some were the most hopeless of the hopeless. Grotesque, writhing, wrapped in wet sheets for transport from faraway hospitals they came, hoping for treatment for advanced psychosis and grave incurable mental disorders. Some were catatonic. Many had been mute for years. But in each patient, beneath the crippled appearance, was the shining essence of love and beauty, perhaps so obscured to ordinary vision that he or she had become totally unloved in this world. One day a mute catatonic was brought into the hospital in a straitjacket. She had a severe neurological disorder and was unable to stand. Squirming on the floor, she went into spasms and her eyes rolled back in her head. Her hair was matted. She had torn all her clothes and uttered guttural sounds. Her family was fairly wealthy. As a result, over the years she had been seen by innumerable physicians and famous specialists from all over the world. Every treatment had been tried on her, and she had been given up as hopeless by the medical profession. A short, nonverbal question arose. What do you want done with her, God? Then came the realization that she just needed to be loved. That was all. Her inner self shone through her eyes, and the self, with a capital S, connected with that loving essence. In that second, she was healed by her own recognition of who she really was. What happened to her mind or body didn't matter to her any longer. This, in essence, occurred with countless patients. Some recovered in the eyes of the world, and some did not. But whether a clinical recovery ensued didn't matter any longer to the patients. Their inner agony was over. As they felt loved and at peace within, their pain stopped. 
This phenomenon can only be explained by saying that the compassion of the presence recontextualized each patient's reality so that he or she experienced healing on a level that transcended the world and its appearances. The inner peace of the self encompassed Dr. Hawkins and his patients beyond time and identity. It was clear that all pain and suffering arises solely from the ego and not from God. This truth was silently communicated to the minds of the patients. This was the mental block in another mute catatonic who had not spoken in many years. The self said to him through mind, You're blaming God for what your ego has done to you. The patient jumped off the floor and began to speak, much to the shock of the nurse who witnessed the incident. The work became increasingly taxing and eventually overwhelming. Patients were backed up, waiting for beds to open, although the hospital had built an extra ward to house them. There was an enormous frustration in that the human suffering could be countered in only one patient at a time. It was like bailing out the sea. It seemed that there must be some other way to address the causes of the common malaise, the endless stream of spiritual distress and human suffering. This led to the study of kinesiology, which revealed an amazing discovery. It was the wormhole between two universes, the physical world and the world of the mind and spirit, an interface between dimensions. In a world full of sleepers lost from their source, here was a tool to recover and demonstrate for all to see that lost connection with the higher reality. This led to the testing of every substance, thought, and concept that could be brought to mind. The endeavor was aided by his students and research assistants. Then a major discovery was made. Whereas all subjects went weak from negative stimuli, such as fluorescent lights, pesticides, and artificial sweeteners, students of spiritual disciplines who had advanced their levels of awareness did not go weak as did ordinary people. Something important and decisive had shifted in their consciousness. It apparently occurred as they realized they were not at the mercy of the world, but rather affected only by what their minds believed. Perhaps the very process of progress toward enlightenment could be shown to increase man's ability to resist the vicissitudes of existence, including illness. The self had the capacity to change things in the world by merely envisioning them. Love changed the world each time it replaced non-love. The entire scheme of civilization could be profoundly altered by focusing this power of love at a very specific point. Whenever this happened, history bifurcated down new roads. To Dr. Hawkins, it now appeared that these crucial insights could not only be communicated with the world, but visibly and irrefutably demonstrated. It seemed that the great tragedy of human life had always been that the psyche is so easily deceived. Discord and strife have been the inevitable consequence of man's inability to distinguish the false from true. But here was an answer to this fundamental dilemma a way to recontextualize the nature of consciousness itself and to make explicable that which otherwise could only be inferred. It was time to leave New York, 
with its city apartment and home on Long Island, for something more important. It was necessary to perfect himself as an instrument. This necessitated leaving the world and everything in it, replacing it with a reclusive life in a small town where the next seven years were spent in meditation and study. Overpowering states of bliss returned unsought, and eventually there was the need to learn how to be in the divine presence and still function in the world. The mind had lost track of what was happening in the world at large. In order to do research and writing, it was necessary to stop all spiritual practice and focus on the world of form. Reading the newspaper and watching television helped him catch up on the story of who was who, the major events, and the nature of the current social dialogue. Exceptional subjective experiences of truth, which are the province of the mystic who affects all mankind by sending forth spiritual energy into the collective consciousness, are not understandable by the majority of mankind and are therefore of limited meaning except to other spiritual seekers. This led to an effort to be ordinary, because just being ordinary in itself is an expression of divinity. The truth of one's real self can be discovered through the pathway of everyday life. To live with care and kindness is all that is necessary. The rest reveals itself in due time. The commonplace and God are not distinct. And so, after a long circular journey of the Spirit, there was a return to the most important work, which was to try to bring the presence at least a little closer to the grasp of as many fellow beings as possible. The presence is silent and conveys a state of peace that is the space in which and by which all is and has its existence and experience. It is infinitely gentle and yet like a rock. With it, all fear disappears. Spiritual joy occurs on a quiet level of inexplicable ecstasy. Because the experience of time stops, there is no apprehension or regret, no pain, no anticipation. The source of joy is unending and ever-present. With no beginning or ending, there is no loss or grief or desire. Nothing needs to be done. Everything is already perfect and complete. When time stops, all problems disappear. They are merely artifacts of a point of perception. As the presence prevails, there is no further identification with the body or the mind. When the mind grows silent, the thought, I am, also disappears, and the pure awareness shines forth to eliminate what one is, was, and always will be, beyond all worlds and all universes, beyond time, and therefore without beginning or end. People wonder, how does one reach this state of awareness? But few will follow the steps because they are so simple, First, the desire to reach that state was intense. Then began the discipline to act with constant and universal forgiveness and gentleness without exception. One has to be compassionate towards everything, including one's own self and thoughts. Next came a willingness to hold desires in abeyance and surrender personal will at every moment. As each thought, feeling, desire, or deed was surrendered to God, the mind became progressively silent. At first, it released whole stories and paragraphs, then ideas and concepts. As one lets go of wanting to own these thoughts, 
they no longer reach such elaboration and begin to fragment while only half formed. Finally, it was possible to turn over the energy behind thought itself before it even became thought. The task of constant and unrelenting fixity of focus, allowing not even a moment of distraction from meditation, continued while doing ordinary activities. At first, this seemed very difficult, but as time went on, it became habitual, automatic, requiring less and less effort, and finally it was effortless. The process is like a rocket leaving the earth. At first, it requires enormous power, then less and less as it leaves the earth's gravitational field, and finally it moves through space under its own momentum. Suddenly, without warning, a shift in awareness occurred, and the presence was there, unmistakable and all-encompassing. There were a few moments of apprehension as the self died, and then the absoluteness of the presence inspired a flash of awe. This breakthrough was spectacular, more intense than anything before. It has no counterpart in ordinary experience. The profound shock was cushioned by the love that is with the presence. Without the support and protection of that love, one would be annihilated. There then followed a moment of terror as the ego clung to its existence, fearing it would become nothingness. Instead, as it died, it was replaced by the self as everythingness, the all in which everything is known, and obvious in its perfect expression of its own essence. With non-locality came the awareness that one is all that ever was or can be. One is total and complete, beyond all identities, beyond all gender, beyond even humanness itself. One need never again fear suffering and death. What happens to the body from this point is immaterial. At certain levels of spiritual awareness, ailments of the body heal or spontaneously disappear. But in the absolute state, such considerations are irrelevant. The body will run its predicted course and then return from whence it came. It is a matter of no importance. One is unaffected. The body appears as an it rather than as a me. It appears to be another object like the furniture in the room. It may seem comical that people still address the body as though it were the individual you, but there is no way to explain this state of awareness to the unaware. It is best to just go on about one's business and allow providence to handle the social adjustments. However, as one reaches bliss, it is very difficult to conceal that state of intense ecstasy. The world may be dazzled and people may come from far and wide to be in the accompanying aura. Spiritual seekers and the spiritually curious may be attracted as may be the very ill who are seeking miracles. One may become like a magnet and a source of joy to them. Commonly, there is a desire at this point to share this state with others and to use it for the benefit of all. The ecstasy that accompanies this condition is not absolutely stable. There are also moments of great agony. The most intense occur when the state fluctuates and suddenly ceases for no apparent reason. These times bring on periods of intense despair and fears that one has been forsaken by the presence. These falls make the path arduous, and to surmount these reversals requires great will. It finally became obvious that one must transcend this level or constantly suffer excruciating so-called descents from grace. This glory of ecstasy, then, has to be relinquished as one enters upon the arduous task of transcending duality, 
until one is beyond all opposites and their conflicting pulls. But while it is one thing to happily give up the iron chains of the ego, it is quite another to abandon the golden chains of ecstatic joy. It feels as though one is giving up God, and a new level of fear arises, never before anticipated. This is the final terror of absolute aloneness. To the ego, the fear of non-existence was formidable, and it drew back from it repeatedly as it seemed to approach. The purpose of the agonies and of the dark nights of the soul then became apparent. They are so intolerable that their exquisite pain spurs one on to the extreme effort required to surmount them. When vacillation between heaven and hell becomes unendurable, the desire for existence itself has to be surrendered. Only once this is done may one finally move beyond the duality of allness versus nothingness, beyond existence versus non-existence. This culmination of the inner work is the most difficult phase, the ultimate watershed, where one is starkly aware that the illusion of existence one here transcends is irrevocable. There is no returning from this step, and this specter of irreversibility makes this last barrier appear to be the most formidable choice of all. But, in fact, in this final apocalypse of the self, the dissolution of the sole remaining duality of existence versus non-existence, identity itself dissolves in universal divinity, and no individual consciousness is left to choose. The last step, then, is taken by God. This has been a production of the Institute for Advanced Consciousness and Spiritual Research. This is Gail Edwards. Thank you for joining us. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.